This is Jocko Podcast number 361 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. In March of 1969, the Rand Corporation, a semi-private think tank that specialized in research and analysis for the Department of Defense, published a report titled The Navy SEAL Commandos, a case study of military decision-making and organizational change. As far as I know, the first academic level study of the SEAL teams. The report's author was Francis J. Bing West, a former Force Recon Marine and Vietnam War veteran whose investigation had begun a year earlier and whose research had produced a raft of documents, dozens of interviews, and the firsthand observation of several SEAL missions into the Rung Sat and Mekong Delta. From this research, West had produced an 18-page report whose introduction provided a brief description of SEAL training, training he estimated at a cost of around $14,000 per man, plus an overview of the SEAL's commitment to Vietnam at its height, a commitment that never exceeded 150 SEALs or roughly 1,150 fewer than the in-country height of the Green Berets' total complement. It was a commitment that stood out in even starker relief when placed next to the author's obvious admiration for the SEAL's progression from lackluster coastal raiders to the war's most aggressive direct action commandos. Admittedly, commandos who had had no business becoming such and thus had drawn the interest of the same preeminent think tank that had created the US military's nuclear defense strategy. Intended as a study on organizational change, the report's true purpose had been to discover how the Navy could have possibly succeeded in creating a land-focused commando force, a force that even the Viet Cong had reportedly dubbed the men with green faces, a color not normally associated with the Navy's traditional medium. It was a puzzle of personal importance to the author as the Marine Corps, the far more likely branch of service, had never succeeded in creating anything similar. Ultimately, the author decided the most important factor in the SEALs' infringement was owing to the SEALs themselves and the culture that weighed upon them. Drawn from a notoriously selective training program that produced few qualified candidates, the SEALs naturally had had to find a mission that kept casualties low a circumstance that might have pushed them, like the LERPs or the Force Recon Marines, into a reconnaissance role, had they had anyone to pass the intelligence to. They hadn't. Nor had there been any great pressure from the Riverine Force to engage in any sort of Green Beret-style advisory, duty, or civic action. Organizational orphans with no larger force to support or control them, and possessing no love or admiration for the Vietnamese, the SEALs had set out into the swamps, not to prove themselves, their training had already done that, said the author, but because not to go would have been inexcusable to the others. They had developed a collective value system which emphasized physical hardiness and courage, and they liked to fight. So when the tactics of patrol and ambush had proved unproductive, nobody not a SEAL, meaning no blue water superior officer, had ordered them to try something else. They had just done it. What strikes me 
as most remarkable about the SEAL story, the author concluded, is their performance and their ability to learn and adapt in a decentralized, sub-optimizing environment. The Navy's traditional latitude and the UDT's traditional adaptability created what several unidentified SEALs soon described to a documentary filmmaker as the war's unsung soldier and what we consider, without question, the best troops that the country has. Both descriptions notable because they didn't use the word sailors and just short of the Reader's Digest appraisal that had dubbed them the war's super commandos. By the end, these would be assessments that were next to impossible to dispute. And that right there is a little excerpt from the book By Water Beneath the Walls, a book written by Ben Milligan. He's been on the podcast a couple times. He's a former SEAL, and this is... Uh, indisputably, speaking of indisputably, this is the best book about the history and the emergence of the SEAL teams that's ever been written. And that section that I just read is from a section of the book called Culmination, which is where the roots of the SEAL teams finally grew into what we ultimately became. From our frogman forefathers, it was in Vietnam, where the SEALs proved their metal as a maritime direct action force. And it is an honor to have one of those Vietnam era seals here with us tonight, Mr. Gil Espinoza, to share his experiences and lessons learned. Gil, thanks for joining us. Good evening. I heard you uh I heard you kind of smiling at some of those descriptions to that in this book with what was going on. Yeah, it was it's uh It's kind of interesting of how they, I think even he looks at us. He's in the teams. He looks at us. But every frogman has his own way that he looks at things, every single one of us, right? And um, and I'm just thinking about other people. You know, let's say even Roger, right? His whole his whole mindset and how he looks at it can be totally different <laughs> in a, and even operational, yeah. even combat. You get done doing something, and years later, you're bullshitting with somebody, and it's kind of like, no, we didn't do that. We did this. <laughs> no, nah, bullshit. I'm sure it was generals. No, I think it was tax collectors. You know, I go, are you sure? I mean, the whole history, right? Yeah. And then you have a guy that goes, was it generals or was it tax collectors? And another teammate go, well, that guy wasn't even there. So some of our stories, I think some of our stories get conflicted with other people's stories. But you do remember the ones that were that were specifically yours that came from here. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the heart of the frogman, you know, that, that I see where he's, he's writing from, you know? Yeah. No, he does a great job. And, and, and actually it's pretty incredible. Some of the stuff that he documents, for instance, there's a, a scene where Rangers are being overrun and he's got quotes of, as they're making radio calls, Hey, we're being overrun. We need more support. God, you know, the, the commander's not with them, and he's saying, do the best you can, Godspeed, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you read it, and you're thinking, oh, you know, he, did, he seemed to have done a good job sort of, sort of coming up with what the dialogue would be. And then you read the footnote. It's not something he came up with. It's documented 
these are there were people writing down the radio calls and it's exactly what these guys said mm-hmm. so he he's just a very it took him seven years to write this book uh, incredible book um, but Nothing better than the horse's mouth, and since we got the horse yeah. here. <laughs> well, I've been trying to write a book since I came, thought in my head, as you know, leaving Vietnam or being on the fire department and wrestling in college, I mean, the whole thing of coming back home and looking back into where it all began from being a little boy. Well, let's get into it. You know? Where did it begin? Let's, let's start at the beginning. Well, well, you can tell I'm not as big as Echo or you, right? <laughs> and then when you you go to class, you look around. I mean, look at guys like you. And I went, what the hell are you doing here, right? <laughs> but as a little kid, I was raised in Boulder. Moved from Rocky Ford, where I was a little kid, to Boulder. And I left all my family, my grandmas, my aunts, my all my cousins, everybody. Everybody in my family. And we're moving to Boulder someplace I never knew. And this is with your? My mom and dad. Your mom and dad. Right. And my what, no, what made them decide to move? Um, economics. They actually were migrant workers. Mm-hmm. My dad became a stucco contractor. And then later on, it just got really, really hard. And we had an uncle that owned a barbershop up in Boulder. So the family moved where the family was, right? This, just like now, mm-hmm. right? Everybody moves to where you have somebody to, to get a foothold in. And uh, so in kindergarten, this kid beat me up. Right, so my brother, I'm kind of whining, and my brother said, "What happened? What's up?" I said, "Well, that guy John and Maya beat me up. John and Maya, I know his brother. You know, so they he drags me to his place. And my brother was my hero when I was like five years old. When five years old, I was doing chin-ups. When I remember, when I was one, he'd hang me on a door and walk out and leave me. He'd come around, and I and I got to where I'm one or two, and finally he had look around, and I remember I was like three or four, I could get my elbow up on the door, right." And he'd have me doing chin-ups. We had a rope for a swing. He had me climbing up that rope when I was five. When I was five, I could. What year is this? So this is like 1953 or 19, because you were born yeah. in what, 1947? Yeah. So. Yeah, so I was five years old. It was 53. So your brother had, your older brother had like a, a early start on the physical culture. Yeah. He was a wrestler. He was just in, oh, so he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler. Well, that it, and then when he went to Boulder, he's kicking the hell out of the guys in Boulder, but they were still the underlying racist stuff mm-hmm. and, and so what and so, so what are you you're you're native american well from the pickery's Pueblo, my grandma's pickery's but we identify mainly as spanish right okay not mexicano not mexican because our people did not come up from mexico they came from you know spain from spain from through california then to new mexico through establishing through the spanish land grants and then with the mestizos right the native americans the blended but blended culture right and so then everything you know, subsistence living, then the government comes in and says you gotta pay taxes. It was all subsistence. So how are they gonna pay taxes when they never really made any money? But you would trade ten chickens for a for a cow or whatever. I mean there was always <laughs> So they were doing old barter, school barter. Old school barter. And then um, they had to sell their land and then move. And my, my my dad's family had some Spanish land grant stuff, so his stepfather my dad's dad died when he was like baby my dad says the government came in and gave all the men shots diphtheria shots and you know guys died and so they moved and uh, got up to rocky ford and established themselves as a community my all my cousins lived on one block there was my uncle my grandma my other uncle my all of us lived on one block and literally there was a train track in the back of our yard and and there was one you know it was kind of like a cul-de-sac 
that went out to a main road, and on the other side was a ditch, water. Smelled kind of like the Mekong, man. <laughs> so when I was in Vietnam, I said there, I'd go, what? Kind of smells, you know, kind of smells like that. So I was between the railroad track and the river, right? And we were always told, don't play on the tracks and don't play on the river. Six, five years old, we had a pipe that went across that river, right? It's a slow, meander, a slow ditch. Mm-hmm. Our deal of manhood, or whatever it was, as cousins, we're all about the same age, was to go across the ditch, hanging upside down, going up. None of us know how to swim. But that's where I'm getting to the point of being the young boy, little boy, right? No fear. You don't have that until somebody tells you. Don't go into the ditch, you're going to drown. You don't know what drowning is until somebody, until you do one bit of swimming pool and you go, I could drown, right? But you don't have that fear, you know? You don't, you, don't know that you're, you don't know that you're black. You don't know that you're brown. You don't know that you're white. You don't know any of that stuff. You're a kid, right? Intelligent, loving, caring, that natural curiosity and zest for life, that powerful person as a little boy. Well, I got my ass kicked by John Amaya, right? So, you didn't know you could get your ass kicked I until John Amaya right. kicked I was, your ass. No, yeah, I had climbing ropes. I was having a good time. I'm a kid. And I think all kids are like that, right? Initially, we're all, we're all, they're all like that. And so my brother takes me over there, and he says, had this kid come out. He yells at his brother. They come out. And I'm like, you know, in order to maintain that part that you're intelligent, loving, and caring with that natural curiosity and zest for life, you have these natural physiological releases, which are laughing, talking, crying, shaking, sweating, yawning, and all that stuff, right? To keep that, to keep that, in, to keep that intact, right? So I'm going through all that stuff, and my brother, I had a warrior brother, right? He wanted to make sure he knew I was going to get my ass kicked when I was a kid, so he took. Because I'm sure it happened to him. But he was my older brother. I didn't know that stuff. How much older was he than you? Nine years old. Oh, dang. So that's a big spread. So he's a real, like, hero to you. Oh, man. Yeah. He's a a chief, retired Navy chief. He went to the Navy. (laughs) How'd I wound up in the Navy? (laughs) (laughs) So this kid comes out, and my brother looks at me and goes, now remember. Remember that little? He showed me a duck under, right? Uh, A duck under and a high crotch and a throw. He said, just do that. <laughs> I'm going, because I, mean, I couldn't really do it to my brother, but he would show me. I said, all right. So I came up, the kid coming underneath, I grabbed him with the duck on threw him, threw him down. He says, and when you throw him down, sit on him and make him say uncle. <laughs> I mean, that was an old rule of the old days, right? Threw him down, I'm say uncle. You know, and they go, okay, uncle. And my brother, you know, then he says, don't ever, don't ever let anybody, you know, don't let your brother mess around. Anybody mess with my brother, you just let him know I've got his back. So I go to school, back to Liberty, right, grade school in Rocky Ford, and everybody, watch out for that little guy, you know. They called me Tuffy, you know. <laughs> I didn't know. So then when we left Rocky Ford, I'm crying all the way from Rocky Ford to Boulder, and my dad gets tired of it. He says, God, give me. he stopped at the Overlook. You ever been to Boulder, Colorado? And no. When you come down into it, it's beautiful. I didn't. So I'm crying. My, my dad grabs me and pulls off the side of the road, grabs me and throws me in the back. I don't know where I'm going, right? As we were coming over this hill, I'm thinking, I don't have anybody. That aloneness of being alone, like when you start training, mm-hmm. right? Or you go in the Navy where you feel that you're alone or any time that you left the islands, right? And for a little boy to be alone, that, that was the beginning of being a frogman. I look at it now, right? And so when we came over, I looked. 
I peeked up because he threw me in the back of the truck, got tired of me being inside, in here. And I think the thing is we, those of us who are introspective or really searching for what is who we are, right? That little boy is always who we were, but it gets covered up by all the bullshit. Well, when I went over and I looked, I saw these mountains, and in my heart I heard, no, we're here, and we'll be your friends forever. And it was a squaw and a brave. I looked at them, I could see the silhouettes of them. I went, and I looked down, and I saw the shining lights. And I, it's the same thing that I got when I saw Point Loma, when I was going to Vietnam, right? And I saw Point Loma, and, and, and the finger is pointing that way to Vietnam, right? But when I, when I sensed that, I went, okay. So I go to school in Boulder, and I got dang, Charlie Mestis beats me up the first day. <laughs> but, you know, and my brother, I was like uh, uh, seven, or, uh, seven or eight. And I didn't want to tell my brother because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to go. Didn't want him to set up another prize fight mm, for you. Right. <laughs> so I got my ass kicked for five days, figuring it out. And that's when I understood the inside warrior. The inside warrior is the one that talks to you, that goes, boom, you get hit here, and it's kind of like, Figuring stuff out, it's like your first wrestling match or jujitsu or your first appointment, right? And I felt that that's what I was doing. I was I was sensing and understanding it. And then one day the outside warrior came in. <laughs> he came in. I grabbed old to Charlie, man. I hit him with that high cross, dropped him down, you know, and just started. And two times in my life, that time when I started beating him badly, another time when I came back from Vietnam and got in a fight with a guy, it felt like, and you never see the Patriot, you know, when uh, he hacks up that guy that kills his son. Mm. When I saw that movie, I started crying because that's the way I felt, right? That's totally not out of control. You don't ever have these flashbacks where you're totally out of control, and it's always calc. It's always the the inside. The outside warrior always understands what's happening and what he's doing. It's just that when does he feel like stopping? And the inside warrior says, "That's enough." But they both cover up the little boy because the little boy would have never wanted to have that fight in the first place. He wants to be a little kid. So rather than asking myself, and I did ask myself, "What's wrong with me?" That's not even the question. The question is, what's wrong with Charlie? Why, why is he Why is he jacked up? Mm-hmm. You know, and then later on, I kind of became Charlie. But I mean, when you find out that you can wrestle and you're a pretty tough guy, then you're picking on guys that you know you shouldn't even be picking on. But they don't know how to wrestle. They're big guys; they don't know how to wrestle. But you do. So, I uh, I won that fight. And then what happens? Another guy named Terry Fox, big guy. He wanted to beat the hell out of me. So I'm like, what the hell? Trying to figure this out. And that was the very first time that an ally came in. And he was Mike Martinez. And he said, hey, man. He says, he's too little for you to fight. He said, well, you fight me. I understood allies, you know. And uh, so I called him Uncle Mike. Let everybody know he's my he's my and nephew. What, what grade are you in at this point? That one that was in that was in second grade. Dang, you know. So so that happened. So that was my life, right? And uh, and then I came into this group. It's called the Goss Street Neighborhood, right? It was right after the war. We were all born in '47. Most of us, the poor whites, the Jews, 
the blacks that worked on the radio on the on the train, um, the Polish, the or the guys left over from from World War II, the Mexicanos, and a couple Japanese guys, right? That this was is a, your neighborhood. That was my neighborhood on God Street in Boulder, right? So when people say it takes it takes a village to raise a child, that's bullshit, <laughs> because it takes. If I went and I picked up something that wasn't mine, Miss Toledo is sitting on the front porch. Is that yours? <laughs> no, man. Then put the goddamn thing down. <laughs> you put it down. <laughs> or, or you're cutting school. What are you guys doing over here? I mean, you know, are you supposed to be in school? Yeah. So there was always this. My mom said, well, what were you doing over there? And I'm going, well, I wasn't there. I'm lying right away. You know, kind of like going through SEAL training, man. Mm-hmm. You start lie, cheat, steal, do whatever you can do to get through this training, but don't get caught. Right? Oliver and Chief Allen, don't get caught. That's Miss Toledo and Miss Martinez and Miss Cervantes, you know, don't get caught. And then when you got caught, my mom, how do you know that? Says, little bird told me. So I'm like, who in the hell is this little bird? <laughs> it's a little bird called a rat. <laughs> it was all of them, you know, but, but that was that neighborhood of caring people that really care about you, about what's going on. Not because you're Mexicans or not because you're Spanish, not because you're white, because this is your neighborhood. This is where you belong. This was my... And, and it isn't an identity thing. It's a belonging thing that you know they're invested in, in you. And, and the deal was all of us are going to go to school. We're all not going to cut school. There was a black guy, and we, and we had to give up our language. Those of us were Spanish, right? Don't speak Spanish in school. So we're getting ready to go to school. Um, well, this is in high school, but in, but in junior high, it was, it was the same thing. I go to junior high. There's this guy, Nick Crispin, right? the badass kid in school, the ninth grader, and I'm seventh grade, little, um, beat up this kid. I said, well, I don't even know that kid. Well, if you don't beat him up, I'll beat you up. So it's like, oh. So I don't want to get beat up, so I beat up a kid that I beat him up. <laughs> and so then, but then what happens inside, right, that heart, that, that thing that comes in and goes, this isn't right. So I went up to, to the guy and I said, hey, look, man, I said, we might as well fight now because I'm not going to do that again. Oh, no, you're cool. You're cool. And I, inside I was crying because I beat up a guy that I didn't. And oh, no, you're cool. And so then I understood a bully. I understood what they're going to make me do if I don't make a choice, right? So I go through that. I go to the bathroom. Nick's, what was a guy named Nick, this guy named Chuck, and this guy named Rich. I won't say their last names because they're all dead, but I don't really like those guys anyway. So I'm in there taking the leak, and the guy comes in and says, hey, what are you doing here? And I look up and says, uh, oh, seventh grade, right? I, it's this innocence, right? The innocence. And uh, I said, so who are you? I said, well, I'm, I'm Gil Espinosa. Well, yeah, I said, who are you guys? Well, we're here to beat the shit out of you. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> I'm so little. I'm so little. It's about like this. I was like four foot. I was small. I was smaller than Herbie, shorter than Herbie Corral. <laughs> Herbie Corral. <laughs> That's why he and I are we're, we're good buddies, you know, because we're both little guys. Because there are little guys in the teams for sure. And then there are little guys in the teams and big guy, big little guys like Kirby Corral's a big yeah. little guy. You know, yeah. there are other ones that are, you know, they're like you guys, but shrunk down. I was a skinny guy, <laughs> 100, 120 pounds. You know. Carrying ninety pounds of gear up in the up in the Makwa, up in, when I was working with the with the Prus and working with the Vietnamese seals, I carried the, um, an M sixty with eight hundred rounds when we went heavy on the border, right? So, oh, and so, 
So what happened? To, so did you fight these guys? Well, so then what happened, this guy, Bruce, Bruce McDowell, steps in. He was from Hawaii. And he steps in, and he goes, what's going on in here? And I'm going, those guys want to beat me up. And he goes, oh, he's, he's like, hey, guys, you're way too big for him. But that little Nick, he's, he looked at me, he's really cool. He says, if I stay here, you want to fight that little guy? And I'm already, <laughs> I'm shaking, man. I got tears in my eyes. I'm like, I'm alone? And you're in seventh grade. I'm in seventh, seventh grade. grade. I'm alone. And uh, all the guys from Goss Street, we, we came to school together. We didn't realize that, that, that the classism was happening. There's classism and racism, right? Well, the classism took all of us poor people together, right? Didn't matter whether you were white or whatever. That was, they called our street Sin City. We didn't even know it until we were already men. We didn't know that that's what they called our neighborhood. And so, going, yeah. He says, well, okay. So I hit him with that move, man. High cross, come around, <laughs> boom, hit him, put him in the urinal. And next thing you know, I outside warrior was working, man. It was high order, right? I love the word high order when we went in the teams, man, because that means you're high order. It's a high order detonation, man. I was in it. I took him, I put his head in the toilet, and I sat on his back and started flushing it. And I was screaming. You know, like when, when, you, when you're in the cold water, that whole thing, you know, just <laughs> keeping your shit together, right? And I'm screaming. Next thing, I'm picked up out of the off this guy, Bruce McDowell, takes me over, sticks me in the corner, just breathe, and I'm like, <sighs> you know, breathe. He tells those guys, get the hell out of here, and I'm like, <gasps> and so he, he says, hey, he says, uh, he says, calm, you know, let's calm down, I'm like, breathe, and I'm breathing. He says, uh, Hey, I says, uh, did you ever wrestle? Oh, I wrestled. My brother taught me to wrestle move, but he went in the Navy, and I'm, I'm alone. He said, look, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He says, you ever think about wrestling? We have a wrestling team here. I said, no. He said, well, and, you, and you'd be wrestling guys your size. Not big guy, little guys your size. He says, you ought to come out. Maybe. <laughs> right? So that I did. And that was the beginning of another evolution, right? So I went to wrestle, but I found out I was wrestling... I was wrestling for all the wrong reason. I was wrestling to learn how to fight, wrestling to learn how to protect myself, wrestling so that I didn't have to, if the bully came, I didn't have to bow down to him, that I didn't have to serve anybody. Those seems like actually good reasons for me to wrestle. I don't, you said those are the wrong reasons. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, I tell kids to wrestle all the time, and I well, tell them you're going to be able to take care of yourself. Well, you're going to be able to you're yeah, get good shape. I'm like, those are good sure. reasons. Well, those are good reasons, but I wasn't happy doing it. Do you know what I mean? Got it. There are kids that are happy. They love the sport and all that. I was a two-time state champion. I took fourth one as a sophomore. Do I every once go out there, hey, yeah, you know, run around all the stadium and everybody's high-fiving me? I'm like, well, there's one down. <laughs> and next year's the next year, and every son of a gun I have to wrestle, I'm going to kick the shit out of everybody until they know I'm there. And, and so that's the two, th two things, right? Ego and heart and what you want, Right? What do I do them out of? A lot of us went into teams out of the ego thing. Those cats that were the swimmers and all that kind of stuff, they were successful because they beat guys who were the same as them and they happened to have a little bit more talent. So they win. But was it ego or was it heart? When you're a wrestler and you go out there and you're getting your ass beat every day, like I had so much respect for the kids that weren't as good as I was, but they showed up for practice for me every day, and I'd, and I'd make them hurt, I'd make them cry, because that's where I was getting my stuff, right? My wrestling coach was a UDT guy, right? So what was his name? Harold Ashenbrenner. 
he helped start the um, the museum in in uh, Fort Pierce. So was he a World War II guy or Korea guy? Okay. In the gap of Korea and Vietnam, right? Actually, Russell Campbell, who wrote the book, Russell Campbell's called uh, SEAL Team, was his instructor. He didn't even know how to swim either. <laughs> he had to walk on the bottom of the pool carrying rocks until <laughs> he learned how to swim. That's the other thing about the teams. A lot of these guys didn't, they didn't swim well. They swam long, but they didn't swim well. There were other guys that could, I, mean, I was number one swim pair without fins. You put fins on me, I went to number mm-hmm. 10. And yeah. those guys with big big legs, yeah, yeah. shit, they kicked up and they were number one. I'm out there freezing in the water, <sighs> you know? But, yeah. So, so, you get, so you figure out about wrestling, and did, was there a wrestling team at, in seventh grade? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you immediately, or very soon after you, you, you started actually wrestling. Yeah, I actually started wrestling. And now you started to learn, and you took to it really well, obviously. Well, well. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, and I think of my brother, but there was always that that thing, you know. And wait, what thing? The thing of I want to be able to protect myself, I want to be able to kick people's asses. Yeah, and it was a little bit more ego driven. Maybe survival. Survival. I was going to say maybe just protection of of like well, like you said, not wanting to bow, have to bow down to people. Right. Yeah. So your your brother had joined the navy. Yeah. And what year did he join the navy? In fifty six. And on that wrestling team, he was on Boulder High wrestling team that I eventually went to, but he was kicking shit out of the doctor's son, so they said he had a heart murmur. And, and what, my, they wouldn't let him wrestle? They wouldn't let him wrestle, but when my brother went into the Navy, he had no heart murmur. My, my brother was a corpsman. He finished up over here with SEAL team, right? And in Vietnam, he was, he was uh, working medevacs. A couple of SEAL team guys got hit. I'm there at the same time. We were both Vietnam at the same time, right, in 69. And uh, he was 67 or 68 and in part of 69. And he's sitting there checking all these guys out, you know, the helicopter bring him in. He said, I started looking at him. I couldn't tell him, but they all looked alike, right? He says, then I thought, what the hell am I doing looking at these guys? My brother's like this. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's a Kirby Horrell, you know, he's a a little guy. All these guys, you know, the guys, because it wasn't just the guys were wounded, but they actually actually did the extrication, right? So they just, they flew him out. So he was a corpsman, and it, it got him. Did yeah, you, got so him. did you, at what point did you start thinking about joining the Navy? Well, my brother went in the Navy, and so here I am. When I graduated, when I, when I came back from Vietnam, I'd been back about 10 years, I thought of Harold Ashenbrenner. So I called him up. Hey, do you remember, uh, I was a 103-pound state champ, man, 95 on 103 pounds. When I went into the teams, I weighed about 112 pounds, 115. God, a little. That's crazy. I, I'm, and there's still two guys littler than me, the Waller Wonder Brothers. They're they're in Team Two or something like that. And um, there was like Mike Walsh. He wrote a book. Mike Walsh is about my, like me, but he's mm-hmm. he, he's about like I am now. When he went when he went through, you know, uh-huh. I'm, I weigh more than I did then. You were 112 pounds in buds. Yeah, that's freaking yeah. crazy. I was 120 pounds when. When I got burned, went in Vietnam after the the water and all that stuff, carrying ninety pounds of gear, trying to keep up with everybody, but I was selling them water <laughs> because I drink water and they're sweating and stuff. Yeah, you you know, didn't need any water. I didn't need water, and, and wrestlers don't need water. And in those days, we, you know, we uh, drank. We didn't really drink any water, and we took salt tablets right before practice. All this stuff to kill you, right? Yeah. So, so I had a big triangular water bath, you know. So I'd sit there and. 
we'd be operating, uh, Espy, you got some water? Yeah. And they were all outrank me. So I'd have them the water, and they'd take drinks, and I'd count the swallows. One, two, three bucks, five bucks, eight bucks, <laughs> ten bucks. <laughs> you know, so I'd make money on patrol, and then I'd borrow money from them because I didn't have any money when we were, and so it kind of balanced yeah. out, you know. But uh, so, so you get to high school. Is, did you play any other sports besides? Cross country. Okay, so you were a good runner. I was a good runner. I was too light to play football on a lightweight football team, but when we played in the green field, I mean, just no pads, no nothing, I was one of the fastest runners, and I'd hit you so hard I'd almost knock myself out. <laughs> so, so they didn't want to come around the corner because I don't want them to come past me. And, it, and, and we would have – we would play football, and that football would eventually turn into a fight. Uh-huh. You're going to fight somebody, right? And I, they wouldn't with me too much because I was a good wrestler. You know, but uh, are yeah. you getting good grades? I was struggling with my grades. I didn't understand, how, and that's why when my kids, when they're growing up, I said, "How do you teach?" Because I found I'm more of a I'm more of a hands-on learner, right? A visual learner. So concepts that I would get in my mind would be kind of hard. I found that out when I went through training. All the shit I needed, everything I needed to know, the the dive physiology, anatomy, and all that. I was kind of struggling with that, right? But I got it because I. It was the body, right? Mm-hmm. Triceps, biceps, heart, and all that. And I, that was I dug that, right? But the demolitions, right? Mark Twenty Three Mod One, Bangalore Torpedo, <laughs> HBX, Rate of Fire, is this and that. I'm going, oh shoot! <laughs> Took the first test. I already gone through, already gone through Hell Week, already went through Dive Phase, already went through everything. Hell Week was a trip, but I learned that because you know um, Crawford. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm I'm sitting there struggling. Was he in your class? Yeah, he's my class. Crow daddy. Hey, we were in the same boat crew in Hell Week. He told he, me a story about Hell Week that I did that I didn't know that I did, but he remembered that I didn't. He was my XO when I checked into Team One. Oh, really? Yep. I love him. Yep, freaking awesome. I think I might have even given him that name, Crow Daddy. I even <laughs> changed the other guy's name from John to Jonah. <laughs> and he still goes by Jonah. But, um, yeah, I, I he said, what? what's going on? I said, man, and I'm sad. Uh, two guys died out there before in San Clemente in my training class, right? So Are these um, the guys that drowned get uh, hung McCall. up on a, um, yeah. on a Jap Scully? Yeah, Greco McCall. So he asked me, what's going on? I says, I cry. I said, I'm gonna, they're going to drop me. I said, why? I said, I can't, that, the demolition's death. So he came over and got a piece of paper. He says, okay, write down, man. We had to, and there was just old barracks, man. We had to, under under a blanket with a flashlight, Mark 133 Mod 1, 133 Mod 2, Bangalore Torpedo, H- all of the demolitions that we were going to be tested on, I wrote them every night for a week, mm-hmm. every night on a piece of paper. So that's what, that's what it's all about. I said, okay. And then what they were used for, right? Mm-hmm. So I go take my test. I said, okay, you guys got one hour to get your test done and... So I grab my piece of paper and I start writing it out. Instructor come by, Spinoza says, you got an hour. I said, I know. You got an hour. I said, I know. Just look at the fuck you. Then he takes off, right? And I got it done. So then what I could do is I could take that paper. Mm -hmm. I could look at it, see the question, read the question, look at the answers. Answers right there. But for me to get it, Mm -hmm. you know. And then when I went to college, when I... Well, that's a whole another. Yeah. That's later. But 
I didn't believe. I, I graduated you know, with the 3.95. You know, I wanted to be a teacher, right? But there's the reasons I wasn't a teacher. But mm-hmm. um, so I understood that was my way of learning. Right? But it took, so in high school, you weren't doing great. No, no. But you graduated, what year did you graduate high school? In 66, 65, and then I went in Navy in 66. What'd you do in the... In, be, well, in between time. In between time, I had a wrestling scholarship to University of Northern Colorado. Okay. So, well, actually, Northeastern Junior College. So I was wrestling, right? I went home on break, walked into this bar, and one of the wrestlers that was one of my heroes, his name was uh, Johnny Manzanares from Lafayette. He was just went to junior college. He was a tough guy. So... But go back to Harold, right? Yeah, this is your UDT wrestling Yeah, my UDT coach. He says, did you ever uh, go into teams? I said, yeah. He says, do you remember what I asked you going to do when we were in the wrestling room? You know, like when you're wrestling, you all just kind of laying around. I said, no. He said, I asked you, what are you going to do when you get out of college, out of high school? And uh, you said, well, I'll go into the Navy. And then I asked you, coach asked me, what makes you think you're man enough to be a frog man? And I told him, coach, if you're man enough to be a frogman, <laughs> I know I'm man enough to be a frogman. It was just one of those things, right? Just one of those things. And so, um, yeah, I. So, so you said you were home on break from uh, your wrestling scholarship. Yeah. And you said, did you, you went to a bar? Went to a bar. It's called Grandma's Bar. Mm-hmm. And we all tell them, where are you going? I'm going to Grandma's. They all thought we were going to Miss Toledo's house, right? <laughs> we're all going to a bar, sneaking in, 17 years old. But I, I was in college, right, you know, as a freshman. Walked in, and I see my buddy, um, Ronnie Manzanares. Hey, man, how you doing? He's like from Lafayette. They used to go, wrestlers from Louisville, Lafayette, would go to Boulder, and we'd wrestle because we're all in three different leagues, and we'd prepare ourselves for the state tournament, right, because we're all – and that's when we really knew that we were state champions because we could whip those guys, mm-hmm. and they were state champions 1A and 2A. So this, I'm the real champ, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it was, um, I said, how you doing, man? He says, uh, start crying. I said, wait, what's up, man? You okay? He said, they killed my brother. I said, what? They killed Johnny. He was the big red one, man, small arms, you know. And I grabbed. It was the first time that I'd lost somebody from, that from my family. From you know, when you talk about family, it's just big. And uh, from from Louisville, Lafayette, Latinos, and I hugged him and we cried, and then we sat down and let me have a beer. I said yeah, and pretty soon, he was telling the stories about his brother, and we were all laughing and crying and and everything. So then I went after Christmas break. I went back to school. And I was wrestling real well, and I was doing real well. And when I went, it was just like I had to tell the coach, I said, I'm not coming back. He said, why not? I said, I can't. If you think about, I was raised when President Kennedy got assassinated, right? That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I always felt that my brother was serving in the military. My uncles were were in World War II, right? Uncles that were in Korea. And uh, we all served in, in the military and uh so then it was like what am i doing here wrestling which wasn't real trying to get laid and my friends are dying so i said i'm 
joined the Navy, but there was the other side of that. My brother had gone around the world. I'm going, well, I want to go around the world before because I'd taken the I'd taken the test, you know, UDT, you know, in in um, in boot camp, and I passed all that. But I wanted to I wanted to party. Oh, I got stuck on a ship in Long Beach. That's right. That's where I got that. Right, <laughs> 17, 18 years old, and. Uh, so wait, so you get to boot camp. So I get to boot camp. And and you so you had the plans of going into UDT. I, I had the the thoughts about going UDT. Yeah, I wanted to be a frogman. Just because of my wrestling coach. Because mm-hmm. he's talking about the cool shit, man, blowing stuff up yeah. and you know, dropping pickup and jumping out of airplanes and yeah. I go, Whoa, that that's and then the one thing I like best of all of it, man, you get to wear aviator shades. <laughs> work out, lay in the sun, and get to wear swimming trunks, and chicks dig you. So I'm going, oh, I, I could do that. Right. I used to say, man, I, I used to be a 35-year-old man and didn't put a shirt on at work unless it was like <laughs> inspection day, man. Just never, why, you know? Pair of shorts, that's yeah, it, man. That, pair of shorts and jungle boots, living it. the dream. That's right, and, and we had a blue and gold, man. We had the original blue and gold, that yeah. was it. Guys would wear the blue and golds off off ah. you know, <laughs> off duty, then they'd say, you gotta be wearing lots of uniform. Right? But we would wear whatever we wanted to wear, you know? So but, you so you take the screening test? To go to Bud's? Yeah. In I, boot camp. I took the test, and uh, I was the only guy out of my whole company that passed. One other guy went with me, but he had false teeth, so he about <laughs> drowned. He didn't make it. <laughs> so so then when so then when I really decided to do it, because I was on a ship, man, I got tired of it. I was a machinist mate. <sighs> Stinky. We did our sea trials and all that stuff in the hole and everything like that. But even then... I was doing chin-ups on the steam deals, and I was doing push-ups. I'd, I'd go work out by myself on, why are you doing that stuff? Well, part of it was the wrestling thing. Part of it is, right, it's always there. That's that, that's a, Part of it was your brother hanging you off of a door when you were four <laughs> years old. <laughs> you pull-ups. <laughs> there was part of that. Just, I mean, it's stuck, you know. And, and, and if you think about it, when you're doing that stuff, that is the time that you're revealing yourself to yourself. That that little boy, you always, and when I'm doing that, even now, what worked out over, over at the amphib base, I can, I can, I, I, I feel the young boy, I feel the little boy coming up, I feel that that spirit of, of peace that I have that is young, and that is strong. Even though, even though I got a jacked up shoulder, I got a left knee replacement, my ankle, I'm looking <laughs> at that, you know, it's, uh, and so, yeah, it was. Uh, it was, I was looking out the end of that ship, and here come these guys swimming by, because I'm sitting on that ship saying, what the... Where was that ship stationed? Well, it was stationed out of Long Beach. Okay, so you were But we so did sea trials, and we pulled into San Diego. God. So we're over on 32nd, well, over by the bay, when guys used to do the training in the bay. Oh, okay. And I'm sitting looking out there, and stinky and everything. We had to help the boilermen blow the tubes, so we're all black. And, and I look, and here come these guys swimming by. Yeah. Going, you know they're who, heading to a keg too. <laughs> yeah, who who are those guys? You know, oh, those are UDT guys. I'm like, oh, hell with this. So I put in for it, and my XO wouldn't let me go because I'm too little. Oh, you're too little. You'll never make it. God, I hated the, I hated that sabotaging belief from the time I was a kid. You're too small, right? You're too dark. Even when I was wrestling in in high school, my wrestling coach took a team to Japan. I was a two time state champ. They didn't take me or a guy named Joe Silva, right? And I, and I said, well, why? What's the deal? Well, Gil, you really don't look like what the Japanese think Americans look like. 
I'm like, huh? I didn't understand that, right? What? And so the sabotaging belief like that, right? Is it ego or what is it? But it is something that says, uh-uh. You're not going to make me beat up somebody. You're not going to make me do those things because that little boy that's in there knows who he is, right? Is being revealed. Is being revealed. That was part of that pain of hearing that was revealing, right? So I'm looking at these guys swimming. So hell, I'm going to do that. And that coach, I mean, the exo said, you're too little or whatever. Next thing you know, there I am over at the training. I had to, I had to do this. They took us. They says, once you go down and do a hyperbaric chamber test, it's okay, I did that in Long Beach. Do the PT test again, the run, the swim, and all that stuff. And then we want you to go down to the tugboat, and uh, there's a, a diver down there, class A diver. I said, all right, so I go down there, and there's a chief. You know, those old chiefs, the diver chiefs, right, the hard hat helmet. What you doing, kid? I said, I don't know. They told me to come down. I want to go into UDT. Uh, oh, yeah, come on over here. Sit down. So they put that... The big old boots, right? The big old heavy boots, and they folded all the, the, the was the class one dive suit? Yeah, the, the old whatever, school dive suit. Yeah, thing. whatever they call it, you know. And then they put the helmet on me, and I'm sitting there like this. You know? I go over there, go to the ladder, go down, and he says, and just walk around down there. There's some eels over by some rock. Just kind of make yourself at home, and we'll talk to you and check you out. I said, well, this was your first okay. dive ever? Ever. First time I'd ever been underwater. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So I go down and he's like, uh, how you doing down there? I said, oh, I'm doing fine. He says, uh, everything good? I said, yeah. I said, well, you know, there's water coming in my left leg, you know. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. He says, water will come in your left leg. I said, all right. He says, let us know if it goes into your right leg. So a little bit, I'm still walking around. It was 15 minutes, right? So I'm walking around because of my left leg. I'm my right, right leg and I'm going. Hey, you know this? Uh, what's this? This suit's leaking. Yeah, okay, we know it. Don't worry about it. Let us know if the water gets up to your chest. I didn't know anything about pressure, right? The the pressure in the helmet's not going to go any deeper. I'm going. I said, hey, you know the water's up on my neck. Nothing. Nobody talks about. It. Say, hey, uh, the water is up to my neck. Maybe you guys might think about pulling me up. Nothing. So then it was like, I'm gonna, I'm going to die. So I went over to some rocks. I laid back on the rocks. And I reached back. I thought, well, if I can grab the ropes, if I can grab the hose, I'll pull myself up. But they had it tended, so there's no way I could I could reach it. So in my mind, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I'm gonna die. And then they next thing is it's quiet. I didn't I didn't pray it out loud. They pulled me up. <laughs> yeah, you passed, kid. So about three days later, and then they had already had my orders, and I show up at the area. So show up the area, and I look at guys like Echo, and look at guys like Jocko. I'm going the same question, like, what the, f what am I doing here, right? I'm just a little guy. I'm wandering around there, and I saw another guy, Latino, Greg Lee Garcia. I looked at him in the eye. I said, hey, man, how you doing? This is two little guys. Good, where are you from, man? I said, I'm from Fresno. He said, I'm from Colorado. He goes, you speak Spanish? I said, no, me neither. Just, we're like... You know, but we're the only two, and that was in '41, right? And so we. So became, you're 112 pounds. Yeah, that's freaking. Well, give crazy. me the advantage, 120 pounds. Okay, <laughs> even 120, man. Because yeah. I'm just there's so much physical stuff that you have to do with like carrying logs, carrying boats, like. Yeah, that's and, and so people would sit there and say, like, I was under the boat for a while, 
And then they go, oh, you two little guys, me and Gregory are going to see you. We're in front, right? And then they got two medium-sized guys, and then there's two tall guys. Yeah. So our boat was like this. <laughs> so going up Mount Suribachi was cool because it oh, stays yeah, level. Like level. But when you come down the other side, Ouch. the first three times it wasn't good because we would crash. And then we said, man, we really got to run fast. I mean, we just it was sprinting downhill in order for us to make it, you know. So there was so, a so what's your introduction to buds like, or are you, it's UDT tray? How do you guys say that? UDTRA. UDT, UDTRA. What was your Under, introduction? Um, when I first got there. Yeah, like you got there. Well, when I first got there, everybody just kind of wandered around. You know, we like this was in forty one, right? In forty one. This is class forty one. Class forty one. Mm-hmm. And this is going to share something with you that was really painful for me in forty one. And so um, there's another little guy. His big mouth, man. Another guy. And then there's another guy, Black Cat. Beautiful. Man, look at him going, Jesus, criminy, man. And there was another little guy, um, Mel Tanaka. He graduated. He's a he's a teams. Um, and um, Artie Reese. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's another little guy. And so... You guys had a little mafia, little little guy mafia. They were little guys. <laughs> but they outweighed me by about 10 pounds, 15 pounds. <laughs> but but uh, it was, it, it was, I didn't have any focus. You know, it was, I was just along for the ride, doing whatever they were going to do. And so um, it was like, there was no like this prep stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like we got there for one week. Everybody kind of got to know each other. The second week, we're running. We're in. We're in class. We're in training, and we're doing all that whole physical thing, getting us ready for Hell Week, right? And so during Hell Week, uh, it was the last day of Hell Week before you secure. It's a Friday afternoon. Is it Saturday they secure, mm-hmm. right? I think they secured on Saturday. What when, when Hell Week is over? Yeah. You mean? Yeah, it's it's been Friday and it's been Saturday depending on like okay. what era. Well, it was Friday, and then that Friday night they do a paddle, and then they secure Sunday, right? So that we were doing a swim. So this is in Hell Week. This is in Hell Week. Okay, we were doing a swim, and uh, down and back, down and back. And when I got me and Gregory Lee got out, we got these guys are getting out of the water. So all right. So we, I'm glad, too, because it was cold. We get out of the water. When we get out of the water, there's Chief Allen. He says, okay, you effing quitters over here. And I'm like, well, I didn't quit. He says, you're out of the water, aren't you? He says, yeah. He said, get back in the water. By that time, my I was cramped up. There were like about 60 guys got out. I mean, almost almost the whole class got out. And so I said, well, I didn't quit. He says, get in the water. And I went, I couldn't. I didn't know that if I would have got back in the water, that I would have felt warm. <clears throat> I didn't know that. So I went with everybody else. So that night, that was Saturday night, I could see him coming around for the last paddle. And I looked out the back window and I just start crying. I said, I didn't quit, man. So I went back to the instructor shack and there was no bell. It was on the door. Espinosa reported, they wanted to speak to you, Chief, Chief Allen. And, uh, so what do you want, Espinosa? I said, Chief, I didn't quit. I said, I got out with everybody, but I didn't quit. I said, you fucking quit. I said, I didn't quit. I said, I went back in. He says, you can't get back in. I said, I got to get back in. 
He said, I'm going to tell you this. He says, there's only one way that you may have a chance. He says, you got to go talk to the captain, Captain Myers, command all the amphib base, right? Have the whole command and talk to him. Maybe you might have a chance. He says, but I doubt it. So what and day, of, what day of Hell Week was this? It was the last day of Hell Week. We'd already gone through Hell Week. We'd already gone through all the rolling around and all that. So bullshit. you're done with five days of Hell Week. We were in the we were in the sixth day of Hell Week. So it's it's pretty much over. It's pretty much over. It was the last evolution. It was the swim, uh-huh. and then we get in boats and then we paddle, right? It was late. It was late in the afternoon, probably about five or six o'clock at night, or in, in the just you know like out here. Uh-huh. Starts starts the sun starts coming and down. So, the, six. so you you guys finish the swim. Well, those guys that finished the swim, those guys that were with me that I was with, we were out. With they all quitters, right? I couldn't. I said I didn't quit in here, right? So I went and I told Chief Allen. I said I didn't quit. He slams the door and says, "Get the fuck out of here." So I went back to the barracks. I was broken, man, because I wanted to be a frog man. And so the next that was uh, that was Saturday morning. Sunday came, and all the guys in the class were barely walking, and they're sitting there looking at me, you know, and uh, I'm looking at them and like. And I'm sure they were saying fucking quitter, you know. And uh, I don't really want to say that word, but that. So that next day, I put on my dress blues, man. I go to so the guy say, "Hey, Espy, where are you going?" I says, "I'm getting back into training." So I went, got breakfast, went over to the that knock on the door. Oh well, we go in, and uh, these other guys say, oh, "We'll go with you," right? About twenty guys. Go with me. Crawdad knows this story. Twenty guys go with me. These are guys from your class. The guys that were all that had made it. No, that had quit. Okay. All the quitters, right? All the all the guys that had, that had made it through that phase of Hell Week, and there were even some guys in Forty One that quit after Hell Week. I said, forget it. See, people, it's just the training, man. It's not the real world ops. So when people talk about oh going to Frogman and oh yeah I'm a, I did Hell Week and all that bullshit, but you go then you still got to do World Ops. That's that's what they don't that's what they don't tell you about. That's what you don't see. That's what the hero bullshit is bullshit. But when you get out like Roger Hayden does a trip with UDT, gets shot, gets Bronze Star from there, then he goes to SEAL Team and they look at him and say, "Eh, new guy, huh?" <laughs> He's like, because when I met him, he was those sons of bitches seals. He said they sit there because I'm a UDT guy that I didn't do anything, yeah. and, and you know, and you know Roger. So he's those sons. Yeah, that's some big balls to call Roger a new guy. Yeah, yeah, he was a new guy. Well, he was. Yeah, I know. he was a new guy. I'll tell you something more about that later on. But so I'm in there. The captain walks in. So did these twenty guys that came with you? Did they also want to get back into training? Yes. So they all come with me, right? Skipper walks in. We're waiting. Told him what, you know, what we wanted. He goes back out. The one day, for five days, he never talked to us, never acknowledged us, nothing. So from 20 to 30 guys, people said, fuck it, they ain't doing this. They're gone, right? At the end of, the, end of that week, there were six of us. Me, Schellenberger, Moe, Steele, Garcia, Right, and uh, McGee. So the next week, that that Friday, he had us come in. We came in. He said, "What do you want?" I said, and "I looked. I looked at the guys. You know, I looked at him and says, I, I didn't quit.' So what about what about you guys?" And they just looked and it was like, 
I didn't quit either, right? Six of us says, well, we wanted to get back into the next class. Get out of my office. So we leave. Weekend. So the next week, I show up. The guy said, what are we doing, SP? I said, going back. So we go back Monday. He comes in the, the whole day. We sit there. He walks in, walks out, walks in, leaves. And then he comes in the evening. He says, okay, he says, uh, I'll see you Friday. Don't come in. Be see you Friday. So that was another week. We came in that Friday. He said, I talked to your instructors. I told them who you were. I asked them about what went down, and they're willing to give you a chance. But I have a condition. We're like, okay. He says, one of you quit or get hurt for any reason, you're all gone. So I'm like, I looked at my guys. I said, look, guys, this is important. If you don't want to do this, don't do it because I got to do it, right? I don't want to, I, I had a hard time being a loser. I had a hard time, like, letting guys, you know, with the, to, even when I was getting beat up, the inside warriors working and going, now you're going to figure it out. You're going you're gonna to take care of this. And I wanted the chance to, to push it all the way, right? And it was like, no, we're in. We all agreed, right? So the first day of 42, <laughs> first day of 42, Oliver comes out, Espinosa, Garcia, Schallenberger, Steele, McGee, and Moe, Lester Moe. He was the one who got, went out of our class and got killed, second-class torpedo man. Out of the six of us, two of us became SEALs. We were drafted into SEAL team. We didn't go UDT. Like, you used to have to go to UDT mm -hmm. training, or, and then you go to do tours of UDT, and then you volunteer for SEAL, right? So, did you go? Did you reclass up? Did you start with a brand new class? Yeah. So you went all the way back through first phase again. Back started through all week over, again? and here they are. We're we're up there in front. We're front and center. And they said about face facing the class. These motherfuckers are quitters. Don't walk to them. Don't talk to them. Don't be around them. Don't hang with them because that's who they are. So everybody's just kind of looking. All the cats in forty two, right? And so they put us in the same boat crew. And it was miserable, man. I mean, it was, but me and Garcia were the two little guys in front. And Schaller and, and Steele were a little bit about a little bit higher. And McGee and Moe were taller. So our boat was pretty, it was a lot better than like this. It was kind of <laughs> like this. And they put, they put it on us. And I look at some of the guys like now in my class. They said, then they said, look over us and see what was happening to us. Like, well, shit, they ain't quitting, you know. And. So then we get ready to go do Hell Week. So I'm I'm looking at my guys. And By the way, it takes like months and months and months to recover from Hell Week. So you had been through Hell Week all the way until the last day. Yeah. And then you just went right back into a freaking class. Then, then there was like about, I don't know, like there was probably about the three weeks or something like that, and it was the next class. Damn. We still had blisters on our oh, ass and our sure. feet. You know, and our hands were, were still jacked up. So... So we're we're looking at each other and said, "Okay, this is it. We're, we're what's going to be painful?" But what they did then is the officers picked people in their classes. That's how I got wound up with Crawdad, right? Mr. Kirkland picked me, uh, Crawdad, uh, Courtney, Ingalina, and Paul Selt. What for? Like their boat crew? The boat crew. 
there were six of us. Me and Pasel were two little guys. Uh-huh. And then um, Courtney and Crawford were a little bigger. And then Mr. Kirkland and uh, I forgot the other guy was. They do it so all we, by height now. But so they all, take all the smaller guys, put yeah. them together. They take all the tall guys, put them together. Ours were pretty much together. Six. It, there were six of us in the boat crew, not seven. And we were the number one boat crew. Yeah. We won. We won this shit. And Mac, I was at Crowdad tells the story of when, because uh, we did all those harassment things. Yeah. Well, I did one. I had to run on my knees like this. And, and the guys were, Chief Allen comes out there and standing in front of me, knocking this around. And, and uh, you know, hey, guys, help me. And so we as trainees, right, in 42, a lot of guys think outside the box. There's, there's a lot of guys in 42, but we are the ones that challenged our instructors. Oliver, sing a song, Indian guy, right? One little, two little, three little Indians, bang, <laughs> bang, bang. Oh, you fucking think it's funny, do you? You know, <laughs> sticks us out on the swimmer line, right? We're out there on the swimmer line. And he goes, all I need is one of you to quit. So I'm way at the back end. F you, Oliver. <laughs> F me, I'll have you, you sons of bitches. We'll be out there all night. And we were because it was, you know, the tide goes in yeah. and out. And then Chief Allen is sitting there. There used to be a lady called, well, Wolfman Jack was one guy that was going on. It's Wolfman Jack. I'm doing song music. And then uh, there was a lady named her Sister Margaret, black lady. And she'd be like, do you have problems? Do you have pain in your heart? If you don't know what you're doing in your life, Sister Margaret, call her at 355-3585. And it was like, F you, Sister Margaret. We were, <laughs> our guys were fighting. We're fighting back, right? Yeah. We're fighting back for that humanity. They're, we're fighting back to reveal that. That's why 42 is a pretty tight class and big, you know, because the you, nature you of that class. offense. The nature of that class was set like that. And when we went through training, those guys helped me get through this evolution. Chief Allen lost his glasses. Crawford Dad says, we went out looking for his glasses, and you went over, oh, I got it over here, killer whale. We called him killer whale, right? And I stood up and found it in the sand, and I stomped on him. Damn. And I picked him up, and I go, here you go. He looked out, and he goes, straightens him up, puts him on, goes, Cool. Walks off. Crawford, he said his heart fell through his asshole. He's going, oh, my God, he's going to kill us. But that's what, that's what they want. Your instructors aren't there to kill you and make you. They want, they want now I see it as totally different, not break you down to make you. A lot of, that's, you hear a lot of these seals, right? Where they break you down so we can mold you right back. Uh-uh. I'm seeing it now. They were breaking me down. So that little kid, that little warrior Espinosa in there, that, the young kid that wants to – that is peeled off, right? Through the hurt, through the fear, through the mistreatment, all that is pulled off. I'm not ever going to be the same as those other, however you, you, you become a success. But that little boy, I want to get back there because that's the whole incomplete person that I was. So when I strip off all the bullshit, right, without the socialization that comes in through the society or the socialization that happens in your own family, the pure thing, you know, your your kids fighting each other or brothers fighting each other or in your neighborhood, Bobby Cervantes, you know, going to pick on him because he's black and he looked like Cochise and, and he was the target of every teacher we had through racism and classism and everything else. How's he going to get power to fight back, Right. How are you going to take somebody that, that is in a community? If you were to take in our family, our community, our SEAL community, our family community, we all fought back. 
So that's why there were so many of us, and that's why we were all, even though later on in our lives we do things that cause discord between me and you as a teammate, the bottom line, the one thing that we did have was that relationship of understanding that we were being revealed, not created, mm -hmm. but being revealed that, yeah, well, in order for me to do this, in order for me to be, I noticed you don't have a Rolex, but the old SEAL team, real SEALs got them. No, I just got a Timex. <laughs> I'm not in the real SEAL category anymore. <laughs> yeah, if you, in Vietnam, we'd sit and we'd pull the covers off our Rolex. Did you guys get issued? You guys have got issued those? Yeah, Tudor Rolexes, yeah. See, that's, you know. Yeah. I got some kind I'm going to file that with the complaint department. You man. should, you should. <laughs> I got jacked. That's how we knew who we were, you know. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story about this thing, but. But you know that. Well, I always say that. Well, when people ask about you know, buds, which was buds for me, it was UDTRA for you. Like, like they don't teach you anything, and they don't teach you mental toughness. You just the people that don't have it go away. Right. You sort. It's sorting itself out in yeah. you. Yeah. And 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 uh, and and you know the beautiful thing about it too is that when you're both doing that, and you and I are in the mud, and we're crying, we're sitting there going like this. And you look up and you, I look at Garcia and go. <laughs> he goes, okay. All right. And then Boku cried at, right? You know, or pat on the ass or, hey, we can do this, you know? And and Chief Allen, you know, it set, especially on the race piece with that, about who I am as, as a human being, right? It's the great spirit that I am, the light that's in me that, that, that moves forward, right? Me and Gregory Lee Garcia, because we got rolled to 41, right? We're sitting there looking at each other. Well, shit, man, we're. We're screwed, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. Did you ever know Macintosh? Yep. So Macintosh, Butch. yeah. So Butch comes walking in. Now he's in my class. He comes walking in. He goes, "Hey, you guys in a forty-two? Go, yeah." He goes, "Oh, so am I." He says, "And I'm glad. I'm glad to see you guys, man." He says, "Because and we're like, why is that?" He says, "Well, we got to stick together." I said, "What do you mean we got to stick together?" He says, "Because we're minorities." I said, I said, hey, man. I says, me and Garcia, we know we're minorities, but you're a white guy, because he's, he's his complexion. Do you know yeah. Butch? No, it's Macintosh. It looks oh yeah, that's right, because he's from like the islands, Saint Thomas from, VI. He's from, yeah, he's from the Bahamas. <laughs> so he sits there. So he sits there and he says, no, he says, uh, I'm not a white guy. I says, yeah, you're you're white. He goes, no, man. He says, I'm from Saint Thomas VI. He says, <laughs> so Gregory Lee goes, what's the VI? This is the Virgin Islands. So I'm, we, we're Fresno and Colorado. I said, mm -hmm. you mean there's virgins on the islands? The name of that? No, man. He said, it's named after Redbeard or Blackbeard the pirate. He says, the days of the Caribbean. He says, rum, rum and lobster and, and the islands. That's where I'm from. My mama's, I said, but you're still a, you're still a, you're still a white guy. No, he says, I'm black from my mama. He says, and I'm Dutch from my papa. I says, but I said, you're, but you're, you're, you're a white guy. He goes, no. And he takes his foot like this. He stomps it down. He goes, no, I'm a soul man. <laughs> so, so I go, I go, I don't know, man. I think you're still a white guy. He says, no, no, no. So the very first day of training, Chief Allen gets up there. Espinoza Garcia, front and center, right? The six of us, right? The other four. We try to be shallow. We try to sit in the silence. We try to sit. In, we don't want to be. You don't want to profile yourself. You don't. Want, you, sometimes you are profiled. It's just the way it is, right? Understanding that it is that it exists, right? So he yells at us front and center. 
Hooyah, Chief Allen, Fireman, Espinosa Report is ordered, Chief. Hooyah, Herman Garcia Report is ordered, Chief. Yeah, you guys, he's looking at us. He goes, I'm going to use the word N, right? Espinosa, you've seen. He's big, black, and beautiful. He's like you, right? <laughs> he, said, he looks at him and goes, uh, you see any ends around here? <laughs> it's got to be a trick question. <laughs> Sounds like a trick question. Sounds like <laughs> it a could trick be question. a setup. Could be so because that's what you do. The whole training is that. Think about it. The whole training is that when an instructor has an event with you, there's something that they want out of you. They're guiding you, or they want to provoke you, either anger or whatever that stuff. And it's be- and I always learned it's always better to cry when you're in pain than than to be in anger because the results of anger can it's a hard deal, right? So. I said, no, no, Chief Allen. I said, I don't, I don't see any. I don't see any around here. Garcia? No, Chief Allen. I don't see any around here. He says, well, from now on, for the rest of this class, when I want an end front and center, he says, when I want an end, you two come front and center, right? You understand that? <laughs> so I'm going, well, well Chief, uh, and we just got done with the, you know, we're with the swimming trunks on our boots, right? I said, uh, I think... I think McIntosh. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, who? McIntosh. He goes, where's he at? We're all out there, right? We don't have suntans yet. We're we're out there, and he goes. I said, the guy over on the far left. He goes, far left. He goes, yeah. He says, McIntosh, front and center. So McIntosh, he doesn't run out there like we do, you know, regular military stuff. McIntosh lopes out like a like a gazelle. <laughs> Jumps out loping, comes out in front of the chief. Erwin McIntosh reported to the chief. He goes, McIntosh, are you an N? No, Chief Allen, I'm a soul. <laughs> chief Allen looks at him, he goes, turn around. So he did an about face, looks at the back of his head. Turn sideways, turn sideways. Turn sideways again. So he turned sideways the other. He looked down and he goes, Yeah, Macintosh. He says, I think you are an N. As a matter of fact, you're the ugliest mother N I've ever seen in my life. Hit the bay and take these other two ends with you, man. So so there we were. We would be in class. We'd be in class, Chief Allison. Hey! We'd look. All you ends hit the bay. <laughs> we'd run, hit the bay, get wet, and we'd come back. You know, recover, right? We'd come back and sit in class. So that's what he gave us. You know, he, he gave that to us to say, it's kind of like a letter that I wrote to a girl that I thought I was breaking up with, you know, about, oh, I love you, and da, 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 da. And somebody says, oh, and she didn't come back to me, right? But it's just they say, oh, oh, she gave you a beautiful gift. I go, what kind of a beautiful gift is this? We still broke up. No, the deal is you wrote how you can love somebody. That's who you're looking for. That's what they did. They gave us stuff and put us in that pain so that we would reveal ourselves. So we could say, well. And then one day he comes out and he says, all you non-ends hit the bay. Well, me, me I knew who I was, right? I'm standing, <laughs> me and Garcia, man, we're standing there, and all the white guys, gone, and the two Koreans and two Turks, man. They're in the water, too. <laughs> they're in the water, right? So... So that happened a couple of times, a couple of evolutions, right? And so finally, Yankee 2 comes up. He's a Korean guy. He calls, Epi, Epi. Yeah, he said, I don't understand. I don't understand N, non-N. 
Mr. Chow, we water. I said, you from now on, you and Ann. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 I understand. And so then the two Koreans stood, the whole class went in the water, and Mark Schallenberg, who looked like howdy doody, he's got little blue eyes, you know, and got teeth that actually later on, Oliver knocked, broke his teeth, pushed on his head on a, on a, on a swimming pool, right? And the water is deck and hit his teeth. Chief Allen comes up to him and goes, Schallenberger? Oh, yeah, Chief Allen. I said, I thought I said all you non-ends hit the bay. Who oh, yeah, Chief Allen? I said all you non-ends hit the bay. Schallenberger stood up and says, Chief Allen, today I am an N. <laughs> he looked at me and goes, Cool. Walks off. So then the rest of the class, the rest of the class are going, what the hell is going on with this stuff? We told him, hey, tell me, he says, hey, I'm. So then after that, everybody knew and the Koreans knew, but we didn't tell the two Turks. <laughs> so, so the two Turks were in the bay. And then we finally, we told them. But, you know, and the very first day of training, like in 41, Oliveira comes up, right? He comes walking up, got his ball cap, chew here, scar there little blue slicker caught off you know the instructor shorts the big uh, diver socks mm-hmm. with his uh, shiny Cochrane boots he comes walking up got an umbrella walks up and we're all standing out there and he looks at all of us walks out cocky looks at all of us says as you can see on my slicker this says big G Little O, little D. There's only one big G, big O, big D, and that's a creator of the universe. And he's a creator of you and me. But God's not here. But I am. So for the next 18 weeks, when I tell you to run, you will run. When I tell you to drop, you will drop. When I tell you to shit, I'll tell you what color. He did an about face, popped up his umbrella, and walked off. That was another one of those... Espinosa, what the, what the hell are you doing here, right? So those two instructors are were Moy's pitcher, you know. And and you asked Moy about when he when you know he's he's told a couple of hilarious stories about what class was Moy in. He's probably like, um, he's probably about two before me, maybe thirty nine, mm-hmm. maybe thirty seven. So, you know, he's he's an older guy. You know, I think probably thirty seven, something like that. But anyway, he, he did his stuff, and uh, he, he tells a cool story about being with Oliveira. They lost you know, one of the boat crews somehow they, because they were trying during Hell Week. Mm-hmm. So they went out in a vehicle trying to track them down, find out where they are, and they ran. <laughs> they buried themselves under their boat in the sand. <laughs> so boom, they hit it, about lost control of the vehicle, and they come back around, and everybody's up and about, you know. And he says, it's so cool because Oliveira just comes and says, yeah, we catch you hiding like that again. He says, and we're going to run over you again. You know, <laughs> kill you. He's like, he says, we didn't know where they were at. You know, but there's a lot of there's a lot of that stuff. You know, but yeah. So those those two instructors. And so then, when we graduated, right? We went through the training. You know, and we were in different boat crews. And did, I did. And I assume all six guys, all six of, made it, and two of us. When in SEAL team, we were drafted uh, in the SEAL team. When when I met you for the first time, you were telling me about um, one of the instructors saying to you, can you change the temperature of the water? That was Oliveira. 
What yeah. happened with that? Tell us that. Well, I'm freezing my ass off, <laughs> right? You're 120 pounds, right? I grabbed the big guys. <laughs> like, it wasn't it wasn't a homophobic thing at all, man. I, I was, you know, they're putting off heat, man, and I wanted some of it. So I'm sitting there crying. You know, <laughs> Oliver, come up, Espinosa. Who you, Oliver? What's the temperature of the ocean? The temperature of the ocean is toast too warm, Oliver. And I'm crying. I got tears because, and I'm glad I was wet because I don't, no man wants to see another man cry. So I'm crying. He says, uh, can you change the temperature of the ocean? And I'm thinking, well, if I piss in my wetsuit a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not wearing a wetsuit. So, and I don't want to be a smart ass, right? Because this don't want to be a, all these guys that said, oh yeah, I told you instructor this when I went through training and I, I, Bullshit. I mean, if they wanted to hurt you, they could hurt you anytime they wanted to, right? That's the power. That's it's like society. There are some people that are here that are here. How do you want to function in it? You can be in it and be in pain, but you're not. You're not going to give it up. So I'm <laughs> there in pain, and uh, I said, "No, Oliver." He looks at me and says, "And it doesn't matter what the temperature of the water is, does it?" As blows it. No. Two days later, I'm freezing again. <laughs> kind of remind me when I was crying and the when the little kids were going to beat me up. You know, <laughs> says, uh, uh, "Can you change the temperature? What's the temperature of the water, Espinosa? It doesn't matter what the temperature of the water is, Oliver." He goes, "Espinosa, the temperature of the water is toasty warm." <laughs> so, so then I understood, right? I can't change the temperature of the ocean, right? And the thing about the teams is the only easy days yesterday, right? Those two things in my life were very powerful. Same as that fire that hit me, right? But that is that piece that I'm telling you is being revealing. The one thing I did have though was to say, I can't change the temperature of the ocean, but I'm here. If I I thought of being with my six guys, right? That not one of us gave it up. And that I can't give it up. I gotta, I'm choosing to be here. Because at any time I can leave. Anytime. Nobody's telling me to stay here. Nobody's telling me to be whatever. All the hurt and fear, I've changed. I'm changing. I'm evolving. And that day it was like three choices. One, I can quit. The second is I can be here in misery or I embrace it and say, this is the cost. I said, what it costs. And in order for me to be where I want to be, there is going to be the point where, and I think guys get it after they've graduated and go into downrange into the combat area, I'm going to die to do this. I would rather die than quit. That is part of the cost. And that's what I love about my brothers when I look at them. And we come to all that point, right? And we go out into our world and we understand that and we bring that into ourselves. And then those cats that have all these bad behaviors, the racism, the sexism, the hetero, well, all that bullshit, all those really weird behaviors, at one point in their life they were clean and, and a child. They were for real. And then after that, they go back and they pick this shit up, bring it back, because that makes them feel comfortable of where they were. They don't want to live in that, 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 that spirit of being free. 
of being who you are because it makes you accountable to everything that happens to you, good or bad, psychological bullshit. When I got on the fire department, I was dead. I'd, I'd become inhuman. I remember getting to Vietnam and dad would say, Gibby, I remember you're a human being. And I almost almost lost that. And I remember seeing a jar of ears, right? It wasn't my platoon. Don't know who did it or whatever. But my officers, being leaders, came up and, oh, Boson Campbell, man. He was an enlisted guy who became an ensign, retired, actually, as a lieutenant commander, I think. He says, see this shit? We're all like, what? what is it, you know? And then we, he says, we don't do this. We're not gonna. We're not gonna get rid of this. Get rid of this jar. We don't do this shit. Anybody we kill is gonna have a weapon. Or if they're collateral damage with people that have weapons, we're gonna do that. But we're not gonna do this kind of stuff afterwards. And I guess that was one of the things with the Pru program that was kind of weird because they kept body counts like that. You know, that inhumanity thing. That whole CIA bullshit. You know, the whole, the whole Pru thing. You know that they were all cowboys. You could do whatever you wanted. You know. And, uh, you know, I, I think when I was there, a, a man's inhumanity to man, you know, I, I, was with, I was with my buddy Noyce, right? We were working for the company and doing stuff, and we took a break, went to Saigon to party, hopped on a helicopter, took off. I believe my cousin with the Pru program. <laughs> it was crazy, but party with this I saw this I was always practicing my skills my language skills and I saw this little Vietnamese guy looking at me I'm looking at him I said hey lady comes over Antenye what's your name you know I said oh un beer you know you drink beer yeah he looks at on me I said yeah yeah me yeah so so his friends came we sat and we drank liked him you know we connected you know, you know, sometimes you don't even know somebody, but you, you feel good with them, right? We did that for two days. Third day, we had to leave. And when we left, because he was trying to learn English, I was trying to learn English, Vietnamese, and hugged each other, catch you later, and we take off. Noise was going, oh, shit, I'm in this Vietnamese. They all know I'm an American. But we were in civilian clothes. They don't know who you are, you know? But so Bill was sitting, sitting like this, you know, looking around. But we, we spent three days there. And when we took over this group, which was a Green Beret group, which was the Pru program, my cousin was a Green Beret and, and another guy. Matter of fact, when we flew in, he was flying out, did a Green Beret hand salute, wearing his aviator shades and stuff. And this guy is a, is a black sergeant. Um, can't remember his name, but he said, oh, you just, you just missed Captain Pacheco. And I'm like, oh. And I said, uh, what's his first name? He told me. I said, from Pacoima, California? He goes, yeah, I said, that's my cousin. Ah, bullshit. I said, his mom's Aurora and his dad's Celestino. Yeah. I said, yeah, he's my cousin. So when I got back to country, right, I started asking, I said, you ever heard this? I mentioned the name. I mentioned the caseworker. I mentioned the sergeant and, and the name of the city. And he goes, why are you asking me this? I said, do you remember when you got relieved and you hand saluted some cats coming in? Civilian clothes? He goes, yeah. So it was me and my mate. Bullshit, you know? And then he asked me, he says, what about, was there was a guy with the white scarf uh, of Viet Cong. He said, did you ever run into him? I said, yeah, he shot the shit out of us, you know? But we were using the army tactics. We weren't using SEAL tactics. 
right? And and how we would patrol and our warning orders. They they were, you know, doing a fast uh, a warning order and the brief op and then and going. We never left. We never. It was like right away. It wasn't like uh, an hour going an hour later. We we popped out right away because we knew about that the intel leaks, mm-hmm. and so. <laughs> We when we got back, we decided to do a quick op. I said, let's just go out work. So we grabbed like five guys and we took off. Didn't even tell the rest of the group. And we went out night, early in the morning. We got a hit. We went and checked the bodies. And there's a kid with the white scarf. And the kid with the white scarf was the kid that we drank with in Saigon. I looked at him, man, and I got, you know, I got emotional. And I told, I told Noyce, I said, come here, man. So Billy goes over and looks, and he goes, oh, man, I said, that's, uh, I think his name was Tran. But, yeah, he looks at me and he goes, man. You know, and that's when I understood that warriors, right, that the ideologies of countries, right, use us, that we go fight these wars, we go do whatever that is. But um, I wrote it. You know, I, my God, I wrote it on my phone. Right now, I'm kind of. Well, someone but, on the other side is doing the same thing. Doing the same thing, but we're human. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that. There was that connection that we as soldiers are fighting these wars for other people's ideologies. But if they'd have left us alone, we would have been best friends. So when I got on the fire department, guys are playing, oh, you got to remember where you're from, you know, you, this, you, you know, all this bullshit. And I'm like, did you ever kill a commie for mommy, mother? You know, like, no, you know, they didn't, there's a whole thing about how I fit into the fire department. But, but I would tell them, I says, I've killed, I've killed a better man than you. And meaning it. Because that guy and I would have been friends. We laughed. We drank, we smoked cigarettes, and uh, and when we left, we we felt sad that that it wasn't going to work. And then and then you meet them on. That's a small world, man. You know, and um, and my heart broke that day. You know, and I told the story to my grandson, and he he put it in, like in a poem, but he said, uh, and his heart was crushed, and that was. That was that was that was hard, you know. Other than uh, and then getting connected, there's a guy named Tick, Vietnamese guy, our point man. We got jacked up one time. He said, "Yes, me." Yeah, I said, "Let's go. We go kill communists." So let's go. Buzzed. We went out. We set up on a we set up on a river, waiting. Nothing happened. to the world that could ever see. But him sitting beside me, right, and thinking, okay, we're going to war. And if it happens, we are together. Didn't say a word, but the connection, the spiritual connection, the, the blending of us as warriors, you can't, you can't buy that shit. You can't create it. You can't form it. It, it, it exists in the spiritual sense, you know? Let's go back to just to cover this part of your history to when you graduated Buds, 
because you mentioned it, but you didn't go into too much detail about that. You were one of the few guys that got selected to go straight to mm. SEAL Team, SEAL Team One, without going to UDT. At the time, the normal procedure was guys graduate buds, they go to UDT, the underwater demolition teams. They do deployments there, and then they can volunteer to go over to SEAL Team, which is going to be more land based. Still, yeah. still foot in the water, but going to be more land based. But you went straight to. Straight, to, you got to order straight to SEAL Team One, right? Why do you think that was? Well, Captain Scheibel, um, not actually, uh, Captain Anderson, was the commander when we were selected. He actually lives in Ignacio, uh, New Mexico, no Colorado. And uh, when you get together, he'd say, he says, yeah, Espinosa says, I picked you, you, and Schakowsky, and all. He, meant, he, he knows all the names, right? I said, what was with that? He says, we weren't getting, we weren't getting the guys that were volunteering from uh, UDT because we were getting shot up. I mean, uh, and I think even Roger Hayden, that's why Roger, I mean, he, he got shot up and stuff in UDT. If you <laughs> him, he goes, Fuck. he said, I want to get my ass shot if you're doing UDT. I want to go into SEAL team and figure this shit out. I want to, if we're going to, if we're UDT guys are going to be running SEAL ops, I want to know what I need to know to do that. And so, the whole switch up in operations from the water work to the land, the guerrilla warfare, right? UDT, all the water work, explosive up to the berm line, and then we're from the hinterline in as far as we can go. Now, you guys, she, you're going in big old huge helicopters <laughs> taking them going, hell no, man. I'd, I'd rather be in the jungle, you know, just, and, uh, and they weren't getting them. And so what he did is he, he had the instructors start hand selecting guys that they think could transition and then they took the the they took the volunteers they they, they took the volunteers the udt guys and, and it's really god you know the way things work out guys like from 38 and 39 are marrying up with guys from 42 and 41s right so a lot of the guys in those classes like um uh, like Crawford, right? He was part of the Dirty Dozen, right? And his instructor was, um, one of our, our instructors was Barry Enoch, right? And then some of the guys that were with him too were out of class 3839, and the guys that I operated with, like Hyatt and Richards and D'Angelo, they're from 3839, right? So this whole group, when you talk about only 150 guys, I mean, they, they were making multiple trips. I'd have made two, but I broke my leg <laughs> in a platoon workup, right? And uh, and I about cried. I did cry because I was in Balboa Hospital and felt like it felt like that damn Hell Week when the guys are going around in the paddle, you know, and going to finish up Hell Week. I'm not going. I that's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do. And there were no doubts. And I think I think if you had the doubt, and I don't know how guys work now. If you have any doubt, you don't belong going, you know. Take off. The, I told guys on the fire department, you don't want to do everything. Take off the damn Maltese. If you don't, and all we had was the little gold wings. But I remember Chief Chief Stone, we're going through SEAL training, SEAL cadre, right? We're out there in Nyland. Mm -hmm. We lived in boxcars. 
there was only two girls in the bar. That place was Lunar Face and Crater Face. <laughs> and everybody was hot on them. And they would make them feel like queens, you know? <laughs> well, the Desert Boys didn't like that. So one day, like, eight of the Desert Boys came down, and there was a, a tussle in the bar, right? I don't know where Chief Stone, he's a little guy like me. He's a Korea guy. He's, he is a Korea guy, but also um, a raider. Wow. Army, Army, you know, the Army raider guys, right? Ranger, whatever, you know, because there were the Green Beret guys, but there were also the Rangers. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and have my little beard, you know, and the guys are all laughing and everything, and he comes in there. God damn it. He says, you MFers. And he's the guy, he's the guy when we're standing, going with training, he goes, yeah, I want, I want two rows of corn here. Two rows of corn here. I want my M60 man over here, my M16 here, my Grenadiers over here, my Stoner man, and if the officers with your M16s, I want you over, you know, assigned, right? Mm -hmm. He said, when that left foot hits, you got the M16, I want that, that. He says, and if you on the M16, want womp, womp. So you stoners, I want some singing. He says, and the officer every once in a while, boom, and then you Grenadier, I want you every fourth time your left foot hit, I want boom. You understand? <laughs> we're all like, yeah, we understand. So he'd stand behind us. Okay, let's move. You know, we're like, we're like a, we're like a rock and roll band, man. <laughs> Boom, we just, but really looking at the rate of fire, you know, and the intensity of it, right? So we were trained in in that small group of what it felt like to be powerful, powerful, invincible, right? And so they would grab the guys from UDT, they would marry us up into this SEAL cadre class. And there's there's a book, Vietnam SEALs or whatever, in Vietnam, and my cousin found the book at Annapolis. She went to Annapolis. And you can see up there it says SB and Mo, the boat, how they were assigned, and they're doing the instruction. That's how basic it was. You know, because they weren't getting guys to do it. So he wanted, and I think that was the beginning of transitioning the UDT teams. I mean, the kids that are going through BUDS now and just saying, well, we can save this time. Because we, when we went to jump school as SEALs, right, um, the UDT guys had already gone through jump school. But those of us who were in, they went through the SEAL cadre that hadn't done that trip weren't airborne yet. So we go to jump school. <laughs> we were in shape, man. Oh, yeah. So we were out there doing the run around. We ran at least three or four guys into the dirt. You know, they sit there, they get you know, 10 chin ups, and I'd do one for the army. And I could do 50 of them at that time because I was a little guy, right? One for the army, one for the navy, one for the marines. Oh, yeah, smart ass, give me a couple more. And I did, I'd get all the way up to about 47, 45. And then I'd, you know, instead of yelling hoo yeah, I'd yell airborne. <laughs> you know, <laughs> airborne sergeant, you know. And they, they didn't know who we were. I was what the other thing was so cool about being a team. They didn't know who we were. We, uh, matter of fact, me and uh, my partner, uh, we were in, we went in, we quit, we didn't talk to anybody, right? Didn't talk to any army guys, you know. Oh, Is that airborne school? Airborne school, mm -hmm. yeah. We didn't talk to anybody. And they assigned guys to put us up into this barracks where we were at. So, who are you guys? Where are you from? <laughs> just walk away. Just, <laughs> hey, come on, man. And you guys talk? And talk to each one of us. And we just don't say anything. And, you know, and then we turn our head and we're like, you know, just playing that, whatever that role is. But nobody had to tell you. It just happened. It was just like everybody would pick up on the energy of everybody else. That's the other thing that's created in, in the training class. 
you can see him. I, I, there's a group of kids from Team 8 when I went to a golf tournament. I could see when they came in, they're all picking up on the energy of each other, all wearing shirts that they got from Walmart. One has a cat, one has a bird, one, I mean, <laughs> you know, wearing their flip-flops. I mean, that whole – they're so – out of uniform that they're in uniform. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can tell who a frogman is be, just by the stuff that he doesn't wear to not conform, but he is conforming, right? <laughs> so, you know, it. Uh, but anyway, back, back to Chief Stone, he yelled at us, says, you sons of bitches are living on the reputation of dead men. Get all the money you got out of your pockets, leave it for them, and I'll meet you back at the area. And then we just had a big old hole in the earth that we threw wood into the out an island. We built a fire in, and you'd sleep in these box cars with the, these springs, and you'd put your bed in there like a mummy thing. And you wake up in the morning, there's a damn snake in there with you, you know. And but that night we operated all night long. I mean, it was it was kind of like a almost like a two day op all night, the all night thing with no sleep. And you were glad that you went through Hell Week because you could operate like that. You could you could do that. And um, and and he never scolded us after that. You know, he told us, some of the bitches are living on your reputation of dead men, made us hurt, and says, you're not SEALs yet. I understood it. I'm not, you're not SEALs yet. So I finished SEAL Cadre, right? Those of us who made it through, and Mar Garcia and McIntosh, hey, I'll meet you at the Trade Winds, Trade Wind Bar. That's where we all <laughs> hang out, right? I said, all right. So we, we, show, up, we show up there, and, and the night before, I'm going to meet him next year. The night before, I'm sitting there, and I have me a beer, and this lady comes up, sits beside me, and she just sits right beside me, and I'm like, you one of those FNGs? <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I don't know. I said, man, this is FNG. I said, I don't know what that is. It's a fucking new guy. I'm like, well, yeah, I guess I, I guess I got my Rolex, right? <laughs> I, got, I got my Rolex. Yeah, I'm almost a new guy. I got my Rolex. Um, well, I'm Chief Gustavo's wife. Someone tell you something. I can out drink you. I can out fight you. And I can out F you. I'm like, oh, well, oh ma'am, uh, can I can I can I buy you a beer? <laughs> Chief, the chief's like, and I'm what tw twenty years old. I'm sneaking into the bar, right? Yeah. And uh, so she says, F and A, right, right? So I, you know, you can have mine. I just got it. But anyway, she says, I'm gonna tell you something. She says the chief has three tours of Vietnam. He's never been hurt. Never got anybody killed. He says, we lost a couple guys. And I think by that time, Funk had gotten, all the guys that gotten killed were on stupid shit. Like Funk, they had him hand-tied, and they were going to show these senators how we do stuff when we capture people. The boat broached. He went into the into the river, found him four or five days later. And the way the water runs is so dark, and, and the current killed him, right? We, we, we kill our own for stupid shit or guys drilling out an 82 millimeter mortar and it, it kills guys. Mike Corman that went to Vietnam with this, he switched out with a guy that was a regular corpsman that was with the Marines. He switched out with him so that he could, this other guy could get his pay, right? And Doc Manders walking with another guy that goes off. They're walking by and kills both of them. A guy named Van Hoy who had like, a hero to everybody, man. He had his shit together, right? Doc Maynard, uh, he, um, that's how you lose guys, right? 
but um um i lost track so what'd she tell you so she told me she said yeah thank you yeah. uh so don't get him killed and if you don't want to do this job if you don't know where you're going to go and this is from my wife right and sometimes I guess I, my understanding is some of the wives take on the personality of the officers' wives, start their little stuff. You know, my, my daughter is is the wife of an officer, Marine Corps officer, and but she let me know the human piece, right? This is a family. I mean, she they have this is their family, and this is what it means to her. And I'm responsible for myself to make sure he doesn't get killed. And I have to learn that stuff, not just for me. And I understood that. That sometimes in the teams, just, well, I don't want to let anybody down, right? It isn't that at all. If I would do anything like that, and then you let yourself down, and I have. I mean, I'm I'm not sinless, you know, but I I know that when I when I come to that point where I do something I don't want to do, and don't do the things that I should do, the greatest disappointment is in me because I I don't have power over that, or I chose to do whatever I did and so I looked at her and I went no ma'am I said if I if I I don't know where I'm going I mean I just graduated <laughs> SEAL training <laughs> I don't know where I'm going I said I, I, I promise and Chief Gustavo was a cool dude you know he was a good operator and everything so I got that so I next day I told McIntosh Garcia I said well I'll meet you you know alright you know so we get together and it was early in, in the day and you you never there was a trade wind bar when you went. When Is it an IB? No, it was it was right just where the little. Um, it's on Orange Avenue, yeah, no. down from Mac McPee's between Danny and McPee's. It's where the ice cream place is. Yeah, no, it was gone. But anyway, it had swinging doors. You walk in there, you walk in, and a lot of a lot of character and a lot of who we were is the um, not just the operational piece, but the interpersonal piece, right? Um, so we walk into this place, swinging doors, and we look down, and there's this guy, got chaw in his mouth and smoking a cigar. He's by the bathroom, and you weren't sure whether he was, the bathroom had a problem with plumbing or whether it was him. He's eating boiled eggs and drinking beer, and he went to the head. He was like, Ugh. and he had a full growth. And uh, I'll just, the guys and those guys on the team will know that it was tobacco, right? Because he had a lot of tobacco, right? So he looks down at us, and me, McIntosh, and Garcia. And so, says, hey, you guys the FNGs? I already knew who I was. Miss Gussell already told me who I was. And we go, yeah. He says, that's all we need in the teams is more F and N's. Mexicans and N's. So I was like, who yeah, you know? So we just looked at each other. But the cool piece about it, we already knew who we were. Chief Allen already established it for us. Oliveira already established it for us. I don't know who this cat is, but he's an operator and he has every right to say whatever he wants to say to me because I've not done anything, right? So I miss my first platoon. I go over, do my trip, do my Vietnam thing. Well, what happened on your, you broke your leg in your first workup? What were you parachuting or what were you doing? <laughs> That's what I tell yeah, everybody. Yeah, I was parachuting and uh, repelling was one of the other things. And when I got to Balboa Hospital, it was like, how'd you do that? Oh, well, uh, I'm sure I was repelling. How far away from deployment were you? Two weeks. Oh. 
two weeks. Getting ready to go on deployment. What happens? So what we did, what we were doing was doing um, a compass course, mm-hmm. right? Alpha Brown. You had these different legs, and we went by ourselves, like about four minutes behind each other, so we we'd cover each other, right? Not we didn't go in pairs. We went singles, and so I'm. This is like a ten mile deal, right? So I'm up on this rock, and I'm looking, thinking, oh shit, I got another. I don't know, maybe a mile to go down to this other rock. I have my black face on, have all my stuff. I got my weapon in this hand. I got my compasses and everything. And I'm looking, and here comes the guy on a horse. I said, hey, he says, how you doing? This is good. How you doing? He says, doing fine. He says, I'm doing a nice ride today. I said, oh, lie, cheat, steal, do whatever you can to get through, but don't get caught, right? I said, you don't happen to be going by that rock down there. He says, I'm going right by that rock. I said, how about a ride? He says, sure. So I get ready to shift my, you know, my hands over to a weapon to reach up to grab him. He goes, oh, no. He says, you're, you're little enough. He says, I'll just pull you up. I said, all right. So I put my foot in. Put my, that's the other thing you learn is don't let anybody else have control over your shit. <laughs> right? You just don't. Don't do it. You got to do your own stuff. So he reaches down, grabs hold of me, slings me up. Next thing, he falls sideways so I, he lets loose my hand so I take my hand and I grab up like this and I grab hold of the saddle I have my weapon here and I stick on this side that horse takes off oh no next thing I'm running next thing is like oh this thing in my leg I look at my feet they're both above my heads I have my maps here and I have my weapon here and when I hit it was like and I went oh shit so he scampers off then he comes back you okay I said, no, man, I don't think I am. He gets off his horse, and he said, well, let me, and he got his little bag, and he cuts my laces off and looks at my leg, and then I took my little thirty-eight I had, you know, hand weapon. Doc Maynard was my corpsman, right? He's the one who swapped out. He's the guy who got killed. Doc Maynard comes down, and by that time, another guy comes by on a horse, and he says, what's going on? He says, I think this guy's got a fractured malalias, you know, looks like a distal fibula break. He's got pedal pulse, and... I didn't know what any of that stuff was. I'm, I'm just a soldier, man. And uh, so I said, so what's going on? How do you guys know this stuff? I said, oh, we're doctors. We're up here on the little. I said, no. Oh. So they splinted it and everything. By the time Doc, Doc got there, I was already squared away. He says, you have any drugs? I said, no, we don't have any drugs. Because he, he would give morphine, but then with the morphine charrette, he always had to do the doc. He didn't want to do that. And so the doc said, well, here. And he gives me a pint of peach brandy. He says, drink this. Got in a little Jeep that he that, that the doc kept me. This kind of kept track of us. By the time I got to Balboa, man, I was jacked up. <laughs> you know, so they had to wait, give me a block. And so then my platoon came because I was in the hospital, and they all gave me a kiss goodbye, man. And, I was, and this guy, um, Alan, took my my job, and I hated him. I was so envious and so hurt and so pissed off that he's got my job with my platoon, and in that platoon, I uh, with Mihach, Mihach and I were the point men in that platoon, right? And I wanted, I wanted to go work, so that means I had to stand down again. And all these guys that I was with, right? So then I had to do. It took me two months, right? So I'm in Balboa Hospital. I got my foot up like this. His SEAL team on it. Once they found out who I was. Guys from Quezon were coming in. They were shot, jacked up, man. I'm sitting there watching them come in, and they put this guy beside me, and this little machine is going in. Got, I mean, people were jacked up. I saw war from that. I saw the 
the the the damage this machine goes off stops a little light and so i push the button start it back up again so it happened about four times it was like in the middle of the night i push this button by myself my team's gone and uh pull the cord for the corpsman he doesn't show up finally when he does show up i said he said what do you what do you need i said what's this it went off he what you do? when did this happen i said i've been for four hours so he grabs him takes off then he comes back this guy comes back about two days later he's a marine he's got a patch on his eye his leg is jacked up and he's got wounds in here he looks at me and says uh you the guy that's pushing the button oh yeah yeah you were he said uh i was drowning he says when the when the button would go off he says i would start drowning he says you push the button and suck that stuff out of my lungs mm -hmm. so he and i became good friends and i was only there for another i went back and checked him out later on he had like a floppy leg and mm -hmm. his eyes missing and when I went back and saw him, he says, I said, how you doing? He said, I'm doing great, man. He says, I said, well, they're going to send me to MCRD. I said, really? Marine Corps recruiting station, right? He's going to receive troops. He says, yeah. He says, and check this out, SP. He's got his patch on his eye. He goes like this. Marine Corps emblem inside his eye. He says, I'll be receiving those guys. He says, look me in the eye, boy. You know. <laughs> so he was a cool guy. So, yeah, I miss, I miss my platoon and... And so then when I'm there, I have SEAL Team 1 on there, and this guy comes walking in, got his Rolex, got his ball cap, and I look, his Cochrane jump boots and shit, and I'm going, oh, it's a team guy. So I said, hey, man. I was at the G-Dunk with the CB. and This is at the hospital? At, at the, the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, so I look at this guy, and I say, hey, man, this is you in the teams? He goes, yeah. I said, so am I. He goes, so what the fuck? And walks out. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, well, you rude son of a bitch, you know what I mean? You know, I mean, I'm pissed off. So I did about another month there, and then I, I left, right? Went back to the SEAL team area. I said, okay, SP, you're back. Here, uh, locker 69. I said, go take it and change, put your new gear and stuff. I said, all right. So I go over there, and I look at the lockers. They were like, they were like this, you know, like these spaces here. And there was a window at the end, and mine was at the end. So I go over there, and I look. There's... When I go in, I walk by the lockers, there's that guy that told me, so what the fuck? So I walk by him, he just kind of looks at me. I don't know if you, you know, he just kind of looked at me. I kind of looked at him, and I went, and there's a name up there. So I grabbed it, pulled it off, and I threw it in the shit can. And he goes, that was a good man. I said, so what the fuck? He looked at me, man, and it was like, we're going to we're gonna dance. You know, we're, we're going to dance. And... I backed up into the corner, and he just looked at me, and he goes, fuck you. Turns around, walks out, and I went, wow, that was pretty intense, you know? And so then we we go out, and they said, okay, we're going to start signing platoons, Alpha, Alpha Bravo, Delta, Echo Platoon, right? So they start naming names, Echo Platoon, Espinosa. I'm going, oh, shoot, man, that's cool. So it goes on, da-da-da-da-da-da, and then uh, they call that guy's name. He comes walking to my platoon. I'm going, oh. And you guys are both in Echo Platoon? Both of us in Echo Platoon. And I pulled that name tag and threw it off. Then later on, I found out that he was with a guy named Anton that had gotten killed in a firefight. They McGuire rigged him out. He got hit two times. I, they, were in, they went on two helicopters to do an op. And 
they dropped everybody off. So they were patrolling. They took Anton and moved him up forward. And um, never really was never was really a point man, right? Mm -hmm. But they had moved him up out of out of his out of what he normally does. He stepped out, and in the jungle, there's a lot of times you you just step out, and it's a base camp, right? And uh, and if you're not really quiet, they know you're coming. And so he stepped out. They got engaged. He got shot, killed the two Vietnamese, another American, and two guys wounded. When I talked to my, my partner, and, and I learned about this, so that was what the op was, right? So I didn't know that that Anton had gotten killed, and then I understood what had happened. We were in the same platoon for three months and didn't talk to each other. I didn't talk to him. He didn't talk to me. We'd, look, we'd work and do stuff, and there was like the visual connection about what we're doing but it was like uh, hard. It was hard. I'm not going to. It was like, I don't know, like two invisible forces that had no way to communicate. It was like a big wall, you know. And then one day I'm, <laughs> I'm walking to the trade winds to go to the trade winds to have a beer. And he pulls by in his car. The reason he was in there because he'd gotten drunk and broke out his teeth. That's why he was there. And the only words he ever said, Espy. He go, yeah. He says, uh, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the trade wind. You want to ride? I said, I hate walking, man. I said, <laughs> yeah. So I get in there. Didn't say a word. We drove up to the bar, right? Parked right in front. We get in. There's nobody in there, right? Well, except for Tobacco Lewis. I mean, Tobacco, right? That guy. <laughs> I'll tell you about, I'm kind of digressing, but in the same place when me, McIntosh, and Garcia came in there, and when he said all we need is teams more ends, and right? So I told you about that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so that was Tobacco Lewis? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we <laughs> ratted him off. That was that goddamn Tobacco Lewis. And so so we come in, and and and, and I could, and he's still sitting down there, right? So we walk in, and he just kind of looks at us, and Hyatt says, uh, you want a beer? I said, yeah, and there and there was a keg in, in the trade winds. And is Hyatt the name of the guy that you had yeah. not been able to communicate with? Yeah, I love him. And he, now he says, hey, you want a beer? He's my best friend, yeah, in the teams. Yeah, I shouldn't have ratted him off, but he's 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 okay. So he says, you want a beer? And I said, yeah. So he pours a beer, pitcher. And guys would buy kegs of beer for getting divorced, getting married, <laughs> Uh, d getting promoted, getting demoted, getting killed in Vietnam, coming back from Vietnam, anything. There's always a, yeah. there's always a keg in the afternoon. Monday, you yeah, know, Monday, yeah. Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there was always one there. So there was always a keg. So like at three o'clock to probably about five, I mean, guys would all get in there and drink a bunch of beer, and then it it would go on. So we drank that keg, that 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 pitcher of beer and then he said uh then i said hey uh, you want another pitcher he goes yeah sure so i poured him a beer we sat there sitting at the corner i'm sitting right here he's right here the door is right there you always i always sat there because you don't ever, you know you don't ever walk in that door either without kind of check because you could get hit pretty easy i mean there's some good fights in there it was a wild place and um you want to hear about anton 
He said, yeah, so he told me about the helicopters and about getting hit and then getting out and, and saying, man, I don't know how we flew out of there, you know. I mean, everybody was wounded. The helicopter was shot. Everything was, he said, and he didn't get hit. He's never been hit, right? Uh, I, I was with him. Uh, anyway, he was sharing that story with me, you know, and then he's crying. And I'm crying. And guys, it was so beautiful about the bar. It was man, the other guys would come in. They go, uh, they got a thing going on. Not not interrupt you, and not look down on you. Guys were having their own memorial times for themselves in your own space, in your own, and respecting it. You know, that that was it. Was kind of like the womb. I mean, that bar was kind of like where guys would come in with pain. They would come in with anger. They would come in proud that they have kids. You know, that it was it was a place that. That everybody felt safe, you know. And uh, so he, that's when he became my teammate, you know, of him sharing that with me, you know. And we did a talk one time for Seawolf gunships, you know, he'd come to Texas and he says, Espy, you want to tell me that story about the Seawolf gunships? And I go, well, you tell. He goes, oh, no, you see, you like, you like talking. You see, you tell. <laughs> So I said, all right. So it, we got shot at, you know, from, we were on a dike and these guys shot at us. And so we're, and, and Hyatt had his shit together. The officer we had was a young guy, right? So he's like, well, do we engage him? You know, and, and Hyatt, we look out there and he goes, that, see, that's. You mean engage? Me shooting. Engage who? The, the guys that were shooting at us on this little, kind of an up, like a little dike, you know, we Correct. were up on top of the dike. So they were shooting up at us. Well, the first thing, if somebody's shooting at you down from down below, they got something, you know, but but he was a brand new officer. Actually, he he relieved Bosun Campbell, who'd stepped on a booby trap. That was, that was another op that we were on. Lit him up. Point man got some shrapnel in his ass. And Doc Maynard was with us, and he had me walk the point out. And, uh, but I'm kind of getting uh, a little crossways here, but... Um, where was I at? <laughs> so, I mean, it just basically you were talking about the trade winds and how that's yeah. kind of when you guys got tight. And, I mean, I, I suppose the next thing is, so you're doing a workup and preparing to go back to Vietnam or preparing to go your first deployment to Vietnam. Right, right. And and what's that? Is that like a six-month cycle? You yeah. go to Nyland. It was a six-month cycle. You go to Nyland, you go Cuyamaki, you do the jump thing, you do... Just mostly, you know, patrolling. And, and how, how many guys you got in your platoon? Is 14. it 14? Yeah, 14 guys. And uh, and he told me, he says, yes, he says, you stay with me, you won't get hurt. It's all right. This is my sea daddy, man. He's my partner. This right? is Hyatt? Yeah. And so, uh, matter of fact, I have this watch because of him. We come back from Vietnam. We go in there. He says, how much money you got? I said, I don't know. So count your money out. So I got the 125 bucks. He says, Grabs it. I said, hey, man. I said, give me my money. I said, we're going out and partying tonight. I said, nope. So you're coming with me. So we go to the PX. I said, there's nothing in the PX I want. He says, yeah. So we go in there, and he looks at the lady. He says, I want that one and that one. She, two Rolexes. She puts them up. I said, lady, I says, I don't want a Rolex. So she puts it down. I said, lady, says, he wants a Rolex. <laughs> so she puts it up. I said, lady, I don't want a Rolex. So she puts it down. So finally he says, lady. She puts it up. I said, lady, and she goes, 
little fella. <laughs> He's a lot bigger than you. And today you're buying yourself a Rolex watch, you know. It was that kind of a thing. And we went, we took a break one time, went to Nabea is where he had operated. He had, this was his third trip, two with SEAL team and one with UDT. And uh, they threw us out, <laughs> they threw us out of the base for fighting. And so we had nowhere to stay except for places that he knew, mm -hmm. you know. Like out in town? Yeah, out in town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we were out in town hiding. We were out there hiding, right? And so at night, you know, during the day, we'd kind of hang out. And then at night, the Viet Cong would come in. So we'd be sheltered in these places. And the Viet Cong would be in these places that we were at during the day partying and drinking and dating girls and, or whatever. And and we were we were hiding. And then in the morning, the Viet Cong would leave. And then we'd wake up. You know, for three days, we did that. That close to the enemy is cool, you know. They don't even know that you're there, you know. And uh, so that was our that was our relationship. So when you're uh, you finish your work up, and now it's time to now it's time to fly to Vietnam. Now it's time to fly. Man. Did you leave from North Island? We left from North Island. In what like a C one thirty? C one, yeah, the little one, little C one seventeen. Oh dang! Okay, cargo plane, right? So that's that's where we went. And we stage all our gear and everything. We get in there and the it's loud and it's what year was this 69 it was march march yeah march of 69 march of 69 so we, we we're getting ready to roll looking at the rivets and stuff looking at the chief that comes in there to fly the airplanes big old belly and got his chief's hat and, and he's the pilot he's the pilot oh that's pretty cool and you look out the window and like the airplane has all this grease and oil and stuff we go flying like this next thing is like <clears throat> goes like what the hell you know we turn off and and so we get ourselves back together I goes what, what's happening he says oh i was looking at the lights he says looking at the green light and the red light the green light and the red light pretty soon i said well the green light and the red light they're on the wrong sides he wasn't following. He's was coming right at him, right? So he, he turns off. So I'm going, oh, man, I don't even get to Vietnam. That's happening. <laughs> so then we get to Hawaii, right? So we go in and Hyatt says, uh, hey, SP, I said, let's, uh, let's have a Mai Tai drinking contest. I said, cool. All right. We go in, man. Next thing you know, I'm waking up. I look down, and there's a tomato stuck on Hyatt's face where I was on the upper rack. And I'd thrown up. It was on his face. <laughs> Boston Campbell, we could hear him. You sons of bitches, I told you. We were kind of looking around. And Hyatt gets up, his hair sticking up in the air, you know, and I'm looking at him. And he said, I told you guys we're leaving at 0600. You guys are late. The chop, I mean, the airplane's rolling up. And the number, now, and he says, I'm the rest of that goddamn platoon. Never told you guys, God, get your asses. And we're like <laughs> grabbing stuff, you know, and like grabbing my, my boots, putting stuff on. I, and I asked Bosa, I said, hey, Bosa, I said, who won the Mai Tai drink he got? Who won the Mai Tai drink? I said, son of a bitch. He says, you guys got drunk, and then you got in a fight in the bar, they threw you out, and then you guys stole a damn bus. The, the <laughs> Navy bus, that, you know, they're, they're driving around. Yeah. And we threw the sailors off the bus, stole the bus, and then they... The shore patrol tracked us down, and we got in a fight with those guys on the bus. Then they arrested us. One night us. in Hawaii right there. <laughs> it was one night. It was one night in Hawaii. <laughs> they yeah. needed to get you guys to Vietnam oh, stat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were, and there's another platoon that was before us. Uh, I think it was, I can't remember whose platoon. I don't think it was Crawdads. But anyway, their officer was in Vietnam waiting for him. 
Well, they got in the same fight, but it was the whole bar in that fight. And, and I went to Barber's Point to see that bar. It's now a it's now a gym. But they got there and they got in a fight. And the officer's sitting over there back in Vietnam, waiting for his guys to show up. And where in the hell are they at? And he gets this communicator that comes and says, "We don't know who they are. We don't know where they came from." but we know they're headed your way. <laughs> and those guys have gotten a fight, and they started a fire in the bar. And the whole, I mean, and if you think about it, right, think about somebody that's going to go to war. You're, you're internalizing that shit. And so you are loose. You know, it's like, and, and so you want to try to take these people and tell them that, no, you, you it's, it's. Follow you, the rules. <laughs> It's a hard one. You can try. Yeah, yeah there, that yeah. that is a uh, something that in in the military, certainly in SEAL teams, you know, you like you're parachuting, you're diving, they're doing a bunch of dangerous stuff. And when you're young, you're like, well, you know, I could die tomorrow, so right. I'm gonna have a good time tonight. Right, <laughs> that's, that's what, true. That's what we're doing. And the consequences, right? The consequences of mistake are brutal. They're not. You can yeah. if you're working in an office, you cut your finger, whatever. But we we fuck up out there. We mess up out there. Um, and the same thing when I came on the fire department. You know, two guys got killed in my my fire training. And I thought, okay, Vietnam, probably going to get killed. Got on the fire department, maybe. But this is really a kind of a mm-hmm. lame kind of job. I mean, you fight some fire, you do some. I, I saw it totally different when I got there, right? It ch- transitioned. It changed for me about, especially when I went up in rank, it's like being a platoon leader. Mm-hmm. You know, the other guys do whatever they want to do in the platoon, but as a platoon officer and the platoon leader, and as a battalion chief when I was in the fire department, I'm responsible for them to keep them alive. I become Chief Gustafel's wife, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so, um, yeah, it was, um, you really transition a lot about about what that what that means and those consequences and what's and what's real and what is it to be a real frogman, right? They're the machismo crazy cats out there, but they um, are they good operators? Are they running on on their ego or are they running on the teams? You know, do you love the teams or do you love yourself, right? And a lot of the cats that love themselves wound up in trouble. They're willing to make that or create that for for some reason. I look at some of the events, you know, of, of how guys are getting killed now, and I'm thinking, it's like when Hyatt, when we got when we got shot at, and then the officer says, so "We take him under fire." We, we look at him and go, "Are you fucking crazy?" If we we take him under fire, they're gonna know how many of us there are, right? So then we start receiving fire, so we cause an extraction. There was nobody coming to get us. The army, the, sometimes the army slick guys would not come in, but a sea wolf. They're coming. Oh, they're coming, man. You know, and, <laughs> I've had quite a few sea wolf pilots on here. Yeah. It's and so, freaking awesome. And so when they lock and load and they're, and they're dumping their ammunition just to get four cats up, I mean, that, that, whole, that whole thing is on fire, right? So we're running. So we had no air support until those sea wolf guys said, well, we're coming. And, uh, Couple Air Force guys. Yeah, we're in our little Phantoms, and if you need some help, we can uh, we can help you. And so I'm at the back end, right? Everybody's running, blow everything up on the back side of the blue the blue strobe, right? So I got a blue strobe lit uh-huh. up, and I'm running. I got I got an M60. I'm running heavy, running an M60, and I Hyatt's up ahead of me. And Richards, he married his sis, his Richard's sister. Hyatt married Richard's sister, 
and we're all we're all we're good mates, man. I mean, uh, there's some bars in San Diego that remember us. Just <laughs> you're still still not allowed in. <laughs> oh, oh, just by being crazy, yeah. So I'm running and I fall in a hole. I mean, and these guys, Air Force guys, are coming flying like this, right? And when they're lighting their stuff up, it looks, well, it looks like it's sort of like about 10, 15 feet up in the air because you're running. But they don't tell you, like you see the movies, I mean, they don't, and you're getting support. They don't talk about the, in those days, the links were rolling out. So you're running along and ding, all, this, oh. all the casings and stuff I mean, is beating the hell out of you. And you're running like this, you know, trying not to get them down your shirt. And you're running and they're flying. It's like two of them, in the water and, and I mean the casings. And I fell in this hole and it wasn't even that they could hear me because the whole world behind me, I could feel the heat and everything behind me blowing up. They just stopped. They ran back. One grabbed the barrel, the other one grabbed the butt, lifted me out of the hole. And they took off running, and I'm like, <laughs> "Your feet aren't on the ground." <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, one would hit, and then finally I got my feet, you know. And then we got over to the on the sea. was locked, loading, dumping all the ammunition on the other side, the side that we were coming on. They weren't right, and so we jumped in, and then they they started dumping it all, and then that helicopter was trying to, and everything everything's going. Well, I told that story, and then when, and Hyatt told me to tell it with the Seawolf guys, right? He's in Texas. And so then he says, you tell the story. I said, all right. So then I feel, okay, I'll tell the story. And as close as I could get it, because everybody has their own story. And um, then I saw Hyatt get up, and he walked over up to the podium, you know, when I was I was there, and he comes up beside me. He says, well, that opted. As we just told you about, he says, I didn't realize how much that helicopter meant to me and how safe I felt once my hand touched that helicopter. Then I knew I was okay. And I never, I never ever thought that, because he was always so calm. He was when we all, our platoon, we were a bunch of calm people, you know, and, and, that, and when you have that in your platoon, uh, Except when you're yelling and they're running away from you, know, I'm in a goddamn hole, you know, it's like, you know, uh, everybody is like that. It's that calmness that keeps you right. And and if your officer is calm, even Bosa Campbell, when he got lit up, you know, he really did a real easy transfer to, to Doc Maynard. And they, they, an Air Force helicopter with doctors happened to be coming in. We were in a booby-trapped area, so we're trying to secure the area. And we're receiving fire from a little hooch down there. And me and Hyatt lit that that up. There was that whole thing, the whole dynamics of like when I wrote that piece about the flash, right? The flash of war, you know that whether you're creating it or whether it's being created for you, the the inside warrior is working and figuring it out. The outside warrior is non-forgiving and violent, right? And they're both standing out. And and I think, you know, the in, the little boy in there, is 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 watching that happen, and and I think the whole war piece is totally a- alien, because that's not where we really want to go. So those of us that pay that price, you know, it's going to cost you something, even in the training, because pain is going to cost you something. When I got back from Vietnam, doing my out in the world, psh, I thought that was me. That's just the way that I am, 
you know, I'm fighting, I'm, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's who Espinosa is. It was all my behaviors. I, I've, I confused my behaviors for who I, who, who I am. And I let loose of it because then I was alone again. I lost all my, te my teammates. I was in my platoon when I lost them that time. When I came from Vietnam and I left, right, I'm alone again, right? And it's taking me now to come back to that space of understanding my life, right? And that's crazy. I'm 75 years old trying to figure this stuff out. <laughs> and then I look at guys like you. You got your podcast. You got your thing going. You did too. If they'd have had MMA when I was coming back from Vietnam, I'd have been a, <laughs> I was going. I was going to five points in Denver to fight mostly black guys because that's where the danger was. They had guns and knives. And that was, you get in a fight in Boulder, right, with the hippies. I mean, there's just, you know, maybe. There wasn't much satisfaction. There wasn't, wasn't too much. So you might go to, might go to, might, might go to this place called uh, Peggy's Hilo and you get a hookup with a cowboy. You know, at least when you're fighting those guys, it was in the dirt. You know, but, and I remember going, going in there and this one big brother's in there. He goes, I'm looking, because I'm checking security, right? The other thing is looking at the environment. Th those challenges, right? I'm looking at the bar. And wh where's the security? At? Where's these guys? Who, who am I watching out for? It was like being working with the Pro program and knowing that you had out of the 50 guys you got, there's probably eight or nine of them that are Viet Cong, mm -hmm. that are that are two hoys or they're, they're they're working both sides. That was exciting. That was the the cool thing about when I was with, with my my partner and I working that program versus working the Vietnamese SEALs. Vietnamese SEALs, we knew, and I did that with uh, two East Coast guys first. So I worked with them, and then they took another West Coast guy in my platoon that worked with those guys with the Vietnamese SEALs. And then they said, oh, by the way, you guys have that expertise. Why don't you and me and me and, and Bill, we went and worked for the Prus. We did that. That's where I relieved my cousin, right? That whole thing, that whole challenging thing about depending upon the, the spirit and the understanding and the awareness about who you are, it's exciting, you know, and, and I wasn't getting that, you know. So I was creating the tension. Outside warrior creates the tension so that, and that's who you think you are. And it's, and so then you live your life out like that. You know, you're a frogman. I'm a, I'm a genuine, I always say genuine, barrel-chested, anti-magnetic, chrome-plated, Rolex-wearing, K-bar-carrying, rootin' tootin' parachute MF from frogman who can, it take 40 men, 40 days to track me down. I can see in the dark, breathe underwater, and I can fly, you know, <laughs> that whole that whole thing, you know. And uh, so it's, uh, so that's who, that's who I thought I was. When I got on the fire department, I'm coming, I look at all these, <laughs> these guys don't even train, you know. And then two guys get killed in training. Then they're blaming everybody. Oh, you know, you got this and this and that. And then none of you guys wanted to train. This is our fault. So then when my buddy got killed, it's kind of like, what do I do here? The word sacrificial responsibility comes up. Right? Sacrificial responsibility? Right. Christ. Jesus, man. He didn't have to die. I mean, he's God and everything else, but he's going, God, shit, I got to die for these morons because they ain't going to figure it out. <laughs> right? And so here you are. I'm going to Vietnam. I'm going with these guys. Why? That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So you go, okay, I'm it. Where can I go? My coach told me about being a frogman, right? 
then you get there and you see these guys and you see these instructors bigger than life and nobody knew who a seal was. I knew what a frogman was. I wanted to put on my, <laughs> wear my swim trunks and get a suntan and all that stuff. Then there's the choice. Are you going to choose to do that or not? Are you going to choose to be part of this family or not? And there are kids in their own families right now that are choosing. They don't want to contribute to that about the reputation of your family. My dad told me one time, man, he said, Gibby, he said, the only thing that I ever gave you was my last name. Don't be dishonor on it, right? And this, this is the same guy in fourth grade education, right? The biggest thing that I learned from him was part of preparing me for the teams. We were hunting. And my dad said, Gibby, we shot an elk. We tracked him down. It's getting cold. It's night. I'm freezing. We're poor. We had cotton gloves. There ain't none of this Cabela shit and all that, right? I'm <laughs> <laughs> wearing two pair, of, two pair of Levi's. It's cold. I'm 10 years old I'm with my dad. Well, we shot him. We got to find him. We're Indians. We don't leave. We don't leave stuff out here. We'll track him. We'll make. We'll find him. I didn't realize because of our subsistence, we we killed an elk hunting in the winter time, and we fished all summer long. That's how we ate, and we would plant stuff in the garden, and we'd raise chickens and rabbits. That's how we ate. That's not a bad diet, but hell, man, you get tired of getting eggs. You get plucking chickens and skinning rabbits, and, and he has me up there hunting, right? I'm going, oh, Dad, come on. You know, it says, nope. So we track him down. There he is. There he is. There's the elk. So we're tracking. You can see a little bit of the blood. The wind's blowing. It's getting cold and everything else. <sighs> Sometimes I was fishing with him at night. I didn't want to be out there. I'm freezing my butt off, man. And it's when I would get cold out in Coronado, man. I remember being at Barker Dam, freezing my ass off with my dad. <laughs> but I never thought about what the temperature of the water was, but I knew I was cold. <laughs> so... So I'm, um, we, we find the elk, and he says, okay, Gibby, he says, now you got to go back and get the hunters, get the rest of the guys. Mr. Mr. Chavez, my brother, and uh, Mr. Gomez, you know, I was going, Dad, see, I, Dad, I says, I don't know. You know, he says, look, he grabs me, looks at me right in the eyes, he says, listen, what you're feeling is fear, and I understand it. Don't be afraid. <laughs> okay. So I take off, you know, and I, and I went, and it isn't like left and right. So then when you're talking about the, the spirit of God, right, this, this whatever is that guides you, and when you're in combat, whenever you're doing stuff, a lot of guys, a lot of guys have this, a lot of times they think it's them, but then there's other things that put you in a different place. And the only thing that, that you survived and other guys didn't is time and chance, right? And making a decision one way or the other, the thing, however it gets you there, whatever it is, and you can't feel sorry that you survived and they didn't. That's life, right? So my dad sends me to go find these guys. I'm going, I'm looking at the track, and it was like, I don't know where to go. And then in here it's like, and I go and I find it. I find it. <laughs> My dad shot an elk, and I grab him, and they come, oh, yeah, okay. And they follow me out. They grab their guns. They grab poles. They We go out there, and we find my dad, and he's out there smoking a cigarette, looking at him. 
MSF, you know, and they're all, ah, that's a big elk, you know, and, it, and my dad had had me, we always carried a little bag that had a hatchet, bone saw, and his knives in there, right? That's what he gave me before he told me, go get the hunters, right? So I went up to where my dad was, and he grabbed my face like this, you know, looking down at me. I says, I knew you could do that, you know? And when and when I when I read like in the in the that where God when when Christ got baptized right that the word says that uh, so this is my son of who I'm well pleased I, I thought I thought when my dad grabbed my face and and told me that I thought wow man it was my responsibility. But my dad was sacrificing my life for a deer to go get those guys, you know. But 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 you understand what I'm saying? It's yeah. it's like, uh, yeah. And people say, well, it's a calling to be a frogman. Well, it's a it's there's a thing I think our egos say. Well, can I make it? Can I not? Some guys can say, I never had any doubt, right? That they've been supported with their families all the time, right? My my family. Supportive. I remember writing a letter when, when I was rolling back into 42 about, Mom, I, I really want I want this more than anything in the world, right? And my mom knew now, 50 years later, right, they did that class on 2.30. My mom says, I knew you were in SEAL team, but I didn't know that's, I didn't know that's what you were doing, <laughs> right? I mean, after, that's even after Vietnam, right? I didn't know that that's what you were doing. But I do remember my mom... Actually, my sister said, oh, Gibby, he said, yeah, mom almost got in a fight with Miss Martinez. What? Really? She says, yeah. She said, uh, she told him you're going to Vietnam. And she said, well, all he is is going to do is be fodder. <laughs> you told me my son's father, and I'll kick the hell out of you. <laughs> you know? that Not always supportive. My mom was kind of domineering and kind of mean, really. <laughs> but, but, um, but, I knew they were always there for me, you know. And even even when I came back in Vietnam, my dad, you know, after my workup, after I did all my stuff, Vietnam Veterans Against War, the Young Socialist Republic. I'm going to school at CU. I got a letter when I was getting back from Vietnam to wrestle at the University of Colorado. A dream I thought was already gone. I was I wrestled 118 pounds, right? So I barely make it 120. I didn't really have to cut. I was still just a little guy. These guys, my kids, we go to reunions, they sit there and looking, and they finally got to the age where they went, Dad, yeah, he says, you're the littlest guy here. <laughs> I've been the littlest guy of my life. But, you know, when I, when I got that letter, it's just like a whole new thing. I didn't fit. I wasn't brown enough to be brown. I wasn't white enough to be fight. I was a Vietnam vet. I just got done killing a commie for mommy with my teammates and stuff like that. And they're telling me, Viva la raza, it's Lan and all that. It's like, I'm an American. You know, my people have always been from here. And and it doesn't even have to be that they're from here, but this is what I feel in here. It's from my, my heart, from my soul. It didn't come, but it did. The ego is, yeah, I can be, a, I can be one of those frogmen. <laughs> Until you start getting shot at, and then you're asking yourself, you're going, what the, what am I, what am I doing here? And then you come out with all your teammates and everybody, you know, like after the op, right? You all sit there, look at each other and go, oh, wow, that was, some guy go, that was pretty intense, you know? 
<laughs> you get guys. Yeah, it's like, and the guy that was always pretty cool was Lou. You know, when I got when I got hit, you know, he uh, was pissed at me. You motherfucker. Where'd you get? When'd you get hit? I I picked up some shrapnel up by Cambodia. You know, we would we'd be on these barges and they'd float down river and we'd operate off them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, is this when you got there? That was the first thing you got tasked with. What was the first thing you got tasked with when you got on the ground? What was your job? What would, did your platoon all operate as a platoon, or do you immediately for, get shaved off and uh, no? Split first up? of all, no. First of all, like for the first three months, you know, we were all operating. It was all platoon operations down in Sedek off of PBRs, right? PBRs. What were you guys doing? Uh, were you guys doing prisoner, ambushes, raids, ambushes, prisoner snatch? We we like find out where the tax collectors at. We'd use the intel and capture them. Who's getting the intel? The, um, Were you guys getting it yourselves? It's most of, yeah. Well, we had like the Nilo out of Saigon. Some of our officers, Captain Scheibel was, Mira Anderson was there. Some other team guys, they were getting the information. With, so you'd get a target package like, oh, here's here's a, a grid location for a little village somewhere? Yeah. And they'd be like, it's, it's this hooch over here is where this tax collector is, this Viet Cong tax collector? The VCI, yeah. This is where he's supposed to be, right? So we'd go down and get him, or we would, what, would, or you, we'd just go sit and watch, uh-huh. and sit there for two days and see what boats come, where they come, just hidden. So you do, you do just like a reconnaissance, do an just assessment, wait and watch. Yeah. Do an assessment, wait and watch. How many weapons? How were often? you mostly going in by the water in yeah. this first three months? Yeah, like just waterborne operations. Yeah, on PBRs and our our own LSSCs and uh, LCPL. It's a big boat with a minigun on the back and yeah. a couple sixties and And so would you insert at night, they just kinda of drop you off? Most of the time at night. We liked operating at night more than during the day. And then we'd sit during the day yeah. and watch it all. We wouldn't even know wouldn't even know we were there. How many guys would you have out in those recons? So, well Would you take the whole, we would whole take, squad? Yeah, we'd take a platoon depending upon uh, like if we were expecting something big. Or we just do seven man teams. And were you usually a point man? As point and rear, kind of like go back and uh-huh. forth, you know. So when our but when our point man went on R and R, he went to Australia, and then I I ran point for a while. What'd you carry for a weapon? Did you carry a, a stoner? stoner? Yeah, a stoner. Except when I was with the Vietnamese, and I carried an M sixty. You know how come you how come you carried an M sixty when you were with the Vietnamese? How can we switch from a stoner to a sixty? Because I just wanted something bigger, something like the, bigger, like the like the so like they had their M sixteens, right? Mm-hmm. They none, they didn't have stoners when we worked with the Vietnamese. They didn't have stoners. There was all M sixteens, but I just felt uh, I wanted something big. Yeah, you know, and um, you want that and, big? And, yeah, and with the two <laughs> Vietnamese, there was another Vietnamese guy. There was only one well, M sixty, so they made two sixties, right? And um, that's just I don't know if it's a rule, I don't know if it's a logical thinking, but that's and then uh, my buddy Bill, he was a radio man. <laughs> so <laughs> working, would you, working with the Vietnamese as an advisor, I I dug, you know. Yeah, when you were doing the with the first three months, so you're doing ops. You guys are carrying compared to what we have to carry now. The modern guys with body armor and radio. Everybody's carrying a radio. Everyone's carrying body armor. Everyone's wearing a helmet. Everyone has night vision. It's like even the weapons, because you get your weapon, but then on your weapon you put a laser and you put a scope and like it is. If you put a light, like everything's just. You guys look like super slick compared to us. We were we were quiet. Yep. We're a pair of Levi's. Couple, you know, our our 
stuff where our, some guys wear the stuff on the outside, mm-hmm. but if you went around the wrong side, you'd want to put your stuff on the inside to keep it from getting muddy. Put your bandoliers on the inside to yeah, keep them well, clean? Yeah, you'd wear your... your um, oh, your web gear? Not, well, we did, if you carried... If you, if you if you did it like this, right? If you uh-huh. if you strapped them on there, you didn't really wear web gear, right? You could wear the the harness, mm-hmm. right? Just the harness. And then other guys had their vests made up, like what you wear now. Their vests. Yeah. Guys would go in the parachute loft yeah. and have them created, right? For their M sixteen mm-hmm. uh, magazines and things like that. So you but were wearing jeans, though. This is the one. This is the one bullshit thing about all these guys. These Frogman, SEAL Team guys, right? Oh yeah, uh, because it was better than the BDUs and all that bullshit. You wear <laughs> you wear Levi's and they're wet and they're muddy and they're heavy and you get chafed and all that. And try to take a sh- shit with a pair of Levi's, you know. Uh-uh. So why'd you wear them? Because it looked cool. Combat qualified, man. You want a combat qualified <laughs> pair of Levi's? Yeah. So when you got home, right? It makes more sense, right? When yeah. you got home. <laughs> you walked along to me. I like my Levi's, man. You know? That that was the These main These are reason. from the Delta. These are from the Delta, man. These are, yeah, but I've worn this on five combat ops, you know? Or, or, what, I mean, that's what it was about. I know? make a pair of jeans right now, and we call them Delta 68s. Oh, yeah? Yep. We make a pair of jeans, and we call them Delta 68s in honor of you guys wearing them back oh, in the day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so, yeah, we, we that's that was why, you know? Because there's nothing... Nothing cooler than walking downtown San Diego or downtown Coronado with four guys that have combat qualified Levi's on. And you're going to run into some Marines. You're going to sit there and look at you like. It's just, you know, even these watches would get you in a fight with them. I was sitting at the, you know, the Daylight Cafe down in, in Coronado. No. Oh, the day and night cafe. The day and night cafe. Okay, yeah. The little long booth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've been there. I'm sitting there with me and me and Hyatt, right? So we're eating, and this guy comes up behind me and says, "Oh, so you look like you're one of those little wetback frogmen." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, "Oh shit!" It's Hyatt, gonna be one of those nights. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those nights. And Hyatt looks and goes, "Hey, motherfuckers! The only one to call him with wetback would be me. It's not you, and I don't call him that." And I told him, I said, Lou, I said, be cool, man. It's all right. So when I get done here, I says, I'm going to kick the shit out of him. He, goes, he says, okay, Espy. So I, and I just almost finished. So I finished up, and I turned around. I looked up at him. Big boy. Oh, it's a big guy. I went, hey, man, I'm going to tell you something. And so when I did that, I just one hand behind his neck and the other one underneath his throat, and I hung on. <laughs> Right, he moved, and my my heels were still arced on the wall, you know, like this. <laughs> and I hung on, and then Hyatt jumps on top of the bar. Karate, right? So, yeah, stay where you at, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, and I'm just hanging on, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, and those guys are looking at Lou, you know, and he's like, no, nah! like Bruce Lee, whatever thing, and they all like, like that, you know. So finally, the guy, he, they choked him out, right? Mm-hmm. They hung on, and came around, and choked him out. Now I got mad. Backhands him, my watch pops off into the street, right? Oh, shit. So then I kick him and my shoe goes off into the street. <laughs> you need to secure your gear better. Hi, <laughs> 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 just looks at me like that, you know. Come on, SB, let's leave this joint. So we go out and I pick up my shoe and I put it on and grab my watch and put it on and this way. So we you're always thinking, right? So we walk to the corner and we get out there and 
He says, let's look. So we peeked around the car. He says, are they coming? I said, not yet. And he says, well, let's get the, out of here before that big son of a bitch wakes up. <laughs> he says, because I, I got him by surprise, you yeah. know. Yeah. But, but, but that's when you grab hold. It's like grabbing hold of the tiger, right? You, you, you know that if you let loose, he's going to jack you up, you know. He's, so, you know. So you guys would run recon, look at a target, and then when you were going to go hit the target, what was that? What was the normal profile of a mission like that? You take sandpans in. Did you go in the night? Till you cool off. Uh, we did. We did work for the the poo program. This is a tip. This is a an operation, right? Me and so say, explain what the poo is. It's province reconnaissance units, right? So and these they, are Vietnamese. They were Vietnamese. They were not seals. The, the The seal program had its own stuff. Vietnamese. Seals. So they had Vietnamese seals, and then they also had the PRU, province, the Peru. Re, province reconnaissance units, and they worked for the company, right? They had a caseworker that usually in charge of them, and a senior officer, American officer, or uh, an enlisted, right? My buddy and I relieved those guys, and it was E four, and I think I was E four, right? But we were operators. Right. So and, then and you, already had, so how many people are in a PRU? How many Vietnamese did you have in one of those groups? There's about 40 in the group. So there's 40 Vietnamese there's, yep. and there's two of you. Two of us. Two American advisors. Right. And then the caseworker. And then an interpreter, maybe two interpreters. Mm-hmm. And out of that 40, probably about five or six of them you can count on being Viet Cong. Did you live with them? Yeah. Live with them on a bay, on like, a, like a villa type thing. And uh, yeah, you just stayed with them. And then what was the op tempo like? Well, probably, you know, we'd go out. Um, it depended on the, that was what was spooky about it because a lot of their intel came from them, right? Mm-hmm. So they could set you up. Mm-hmm. They could set you, the, the, the guys in the company could set you up to be hit. So you had to kind of figure things out. And that happened to us a couple of times. It was, and we, and we got hit. We figured out that it was two guys that were kind of, um, when they were around, things happened. Mm-hmm. When they weren't around, so what'd you do about that? Would, well, I told the one guy, I went, my, my interpreter, I says, You know, you know, I don't like him. I think he's a very bad man. And says, Have you seen, you know, and then did you see what's happening with this guy? He goes, Como guachi. He says, I take care of it. So we have another op. That guy didn't come back. So because he, the, my interpreter, that guy was, and he works with my cousin, mm-hmm. right, was. Good and trustworthy. And that's it. See, some were good and trustworthy. Some have, they're there, the sacrificial responsibility, the thing that they feel from their heart was right on. And others, and others were victims. They were in the military by being a victim. I mean, the war is going, where are they going to go? Yeah, where are they going to go? So you were about to you were about to tell about an op, like a standard op that you did with the PRU. Okay, yeah. Um, one of our guys, SEAL Team One guy, comes up to us and says, "Hey, we, I need some gunners, right? I have like I have two boats, probably about six guys in each boat. We're going to do a pro op. We're going to go get these um, tax collectors, right? All I need you guys is to be shooters. Said, All right. So uh, my officer, well my LCPO, Black Mac was with me, me, Hyatt, Black Mac. And I don't know if Macintosh was on it or not. But um, so here we are in the sandpans, four sandpans, right? There are two. 
Black Mac and another guy and me and Hyatt. And we're gonna we're gonna take the bodies. We're gonna we're gonna tie them up and we're gonna take the bodies. Launch off of a sand, off of a PBR in sandpans. Cruise up this little river. It's nighttime. It's nighttime. You guys are you guys dressed like Vietnamese? Are you guys in black? No. Or are you guys just Well, dr- see that was our platoons too though. Some guys wear black sometimes wear black pajamas, mm-hmm. wear Levi's. Other guys would be wearing green tops. So you're just you're kinda of mix and match. Always. Mm-hmm. We did a blocking force one time and the army guy says, Who in the fuck are you guys? you know? Hyatt says, well, we said we're we're frogmen. But there's a whole we were gonna we were gonna we were gonna kill a colonel in his helicopter, you know, but but we didn't. But so the the op I'm we, glad you didn't. <laughs> so it was I, Hyatt was sitting there, he's gun up like that, and I'm going, Oh shoot, we're all gonna shoot this guy. Why? What was but the colonel doing? We were, we got ambushed. The mm. army we were we were doing a blocking force behind an army unit. That's the other thing too. We'd work with some armies, so we were doing a blocking force behind an army unit. They got sniped on, so this guy and the colonel comes flying over and he throws a CS grenade out. So the CS grenade goes out and it pins his guys down. They're getting sniped at. The rest mm. of us and we're in our different shit. Levi, some of us, we're laying up along the bank, and this helicopter lands right outside of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Lands right outside of us. So he comes walking along us. We're laying up the bank, and and uh, he walks by Hyatt. He's sitting there looking at us, and Hyatt says, "I guess you're the dumb motherfucker that threw that CS grenade out." <laughs> so he looks at us and he goes, "Guys, who in the who in the fuck are you guys?" And I said, we're, "We're just the blocking force, you know." And so he said, "Well, I'll, I'll talk to you when I come back." Right, so he goes over there, and these guys, they did, they did a medevac. They got these guys out. They were wounded. Mm-hmm. One guy got killed. But so then, he comes back out. And he says, uh, "Yeah, well, we'll see who you guys are." You know, and I said, "I don't give a shit who you are." He said, "You throw another CS grenade out of there." He says, "I'm gonna shoot your fucking helicopter out in the air." <laughs> he just looks at him, goes back to his helicopter, and when he gets in, he sticks a CS grenade out the. Lou stands up, he's got his stoner, and he goes like this, and I go, oh, shit. So I grab mine, and the other five guys, they grab theirs. We're up there, and I'm thinking, uh, he pulls the trigger, that guy's going down. He pulls it back in and, and leaves. Those were the guys I was with, and we all, yeah. I, that, it could easily get out of control. Yeah. You know, but everybody did maintain. All right, so so back to this PRU or PRU-OP that you were kind of like saying was a good one to highlight. Yeah. Um, Prue, the Prue advisor, team guy, got this information, right? He says, I just need you guys to come in and, and back me up. Because we had the stoners. Mm-hmm. He had, I mean, some of those guys, all they had were the carbines, right? M, M, M2 carbines. And, and maybe maybe a 116. And with those guys, with the Vietnamese SEALs, you might find a, an M60. With the Prues, you wouldn't. When stuff went down, he can't call any American Air, Fo- Air Force or Air Support or any of that stuff. And they don't fly support for anybody. And they, they were doing everything like from the bush, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like guys that worked with the mountain yards, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, I, I got this intel. He says, we should snatch these guys. He says, you set up security. He says, we'll throw them into boats. You guys package them and we'll get our way out of there we'll grab hold of the because we could use our if we're using if we're going on the op he can use our boats mm-hmm. right the, tie the sand pans alongside of them and they can go so 
So here we are, Espinosa and Hyatt in the back with the sandpan. You ever paddle a sandpan? No, I have not. They're like P-Rows. Did the P-Row, the, like the guys in the um, the Cajuns down in Louisiana? <laughs> no, I haven't, I haven't been in one of those either. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're a bitch, man. So we're we're paddling. Is it like a so it's like a canoe? Yeah, I've been like in a, a canoe it's before. It's like a canoe, but the sampans are like they got they're like flat bottom little thing, and they go like this, and they're they're pretty tilty, right? Mm-hmm. And and you got to paddle them. And I thought he re, I thought he really knew about canoe. Well, we were both figuring. We're sailors, right? We're mm-hmm. frogmen. We can figure anything out. So we're paddling. We're and the rivers aren't very very wide. We hit this bank and we're kind of going like this, and we're following these guys up. And they're so we're stroking, trying to you know get up with them. So then we go into an area, and it was like, here's where the hooches were, right? The hooches right here. So the hooches are along the bank of a river. Right along the bank of the river. So we came in, we set up support, set up security for them. He's got his prus his prus up here, and then uh, he's. <laughs> He says, okay, it's the same four-corner security, right? Anything that comes out the walls on the two corners, you shoot them. So we're all right, you know, because that's how we did it, you know, because in a hooch, if you don't have your, your free fire, you know, the two corners, uh-huh. somebody's going to get hurt. So when anybody comes out here, you can you can shoot them. These guys are going to shoot, you know, the four corners. So all right. So we're sitting down here. We paddle in. It's supposed to be quiet. It turned out to be a John Wayne fight. Oh, do my luck, you know, and guys. Wait, so a John Wayne fight is where they know you're there? It means when they got inside, the cats that were in there were fighting back, you know, because they were Vietnamese. They were the Prue guys. They weren't, they weren't team guys. You know, they weren't, they weren't us. So the Prues go into the village. Go into the hooch. Go into the hooch. And they get into a gunfight? They get into a gun and fight. Fighting. Okay. So the guy comes flying out the hooch, and the guys on the corner, you know, kill him, right? And so then there's this thing going on, and then one guy comes out on our side, running right in front of us, Black Mac. This is the very first time I ever saw this, right? Had an M79 grenade launcher, right? And usually, if you're going through the, like, dense jungle, you carry the flechette rounds, or the, you know, like canister rounds, right? Well, this was kind of going to be in an open area, so he did an HE round. And this cat goes running. They popped one flare. Then in the firefight, there was the river goes right like this. There were some people down here in Viet Cong, right? So when we had the firefight, they were getting hit over there. These guys are running out the back. Black Mac shoots this guy in the back with that grenade, I mean mm-hmm. grenade launcher. And all I saw was two hands and two feet flying through the air. And I remember going, wow, man, wow. You know how everything kind of goes slow motion mm-hmm. and there's noise, but it seems like it's quiet. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, you, you uh, I don't know, you yeah. disconnect or whatever. But anyway, yeah. it's, it's all just happening. and and uh, But you know you're okay, right? And everybody's calm about it. And uh, the guy that was running the op captured his two guys, right? So... When we had them packaged up, these guys started opening up to where we were. So Viet Cong started engaging you guys, the, the Viet Cong that were a little bit off the target. Right. They're engaging us, but we need to go out over here. So we grabbed the two bodies, put it, they threw them in, because there was, there was four guys. 
This is the op where one of my friends said, oh, yeah, I says, uh, didn't we uh, capture some generals? We wasn't even on the op. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in a Memorial Day. It was in a Memorial Day thing. He shows it to me. I'm going, so I call Hyatt. And I says, hey, was it generals that we captured? Or wasn't it just some VCI? I think it was two VCI guys and a tax collector. Because, yeah, that's what it was. He says, well, I said, why? I said, because the guy who told me about the story says, he said it was general. <laughs> See, he wasn't even on the app. <laughs> I said, oh, b- because your your stuff get and not and not mm. that anybody's taking credit for it. There's there's another op that one guy did try to take credit from me. It's called the donk story, but okay. And, and another. So, so in the so, meantime, how do you get? So you so, got You so got to leave the area of operations, right. and you have to go by this group of Viet Cong right. that are engaging you. Yeah, and they're shooting over here, right? So then we didn't know that there's other guys on this side, so they start shooting back at these guys. So we had friendlies. Those are friendlies up no, there? No, they were Viet Cong too. Oh, so, the, so there's Viet Cong on both sides of you. On both sides of us. Here's the place we're going out. We have these guys here, and we're paddling out between them. So you're going to paddle out between Viet Cong on both sides. Right. This is not good. This is not good. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that was good about it, though, it was a black night. It was a dark night, so we weren't silhouetted on the river, mm-hmm. right? For the short time that the flare went up, we saw what was going on. We know where we were going out, so we took off. But they had this thing going on, and it was like um, another one of those, what the, what the hell are we doing here, right? But by the time we got out on the river, because there was the two Vietnamese sampans and then Black Mac and two Vietnamese in that the third sampan, me and Hyatt with our guys, we passed everybody. We were waiting out on the river for these guys to show up. It's like, we're, I'm going, oh, are we lost? Are we, where are they at? It's like, oh, I don't know. And then the boat, because the, the radio was with, uh, with Mac, was uh-huh. with Black Mac, so he had the... To call was the, Black Mac the platoon commander? or He the, was our, the, the, the assistant. And, and he made chief. Why'd you call him Black Mac? Because he was a Black Mac. <laughs> we had <have> Black Mac, <laughs> and we had Pink Mac. <laughs> Macintosh. Is you called Pink? You called Macintosh Pink Mac? Yeah, Pink Mac. And we were talking. And, so, and Bimini too. So I was, you know, Echo was asking about uh, Macintosh, mm-hmm. and he was like, he, you know, he goes, "Wait a second. So was so was Macintosh a black guy?" And I said, <laughs> "I was like, no, no, he's a white guy. He's he's, he's as white as me." <laughs> and then he asked you the same thing. And you're like, no, he legitimately had, his mom was legitimately black. Right. Well, for me, this was news, and I knew him <laughs> like for a long time. He, he, he had freckles, his yeah. last name is Macintosh. He looks like a complete white dude. I mean, it, well, it, it makes the story even funnier. You have to concentrate on his face. Yeah. You get, you'll see the black features if you really start looking close. I mean, I knew him for a long time, and you hung always, out with him. I ne- if you would have asked me, I never would have said that guy's black. Other than the fact that you know everyone knew he was like from the Virgin Islands. Right, and that that's what that's. But I just figured he was some white guy, you know, that that grew up there. If you think about it, that's the way seals are. We think we know who they are, but they're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know, we don't know. But anyway, we 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 got we got there those two guys out, and and it was, it was a cool op. And then the guy that was running the op, he he was just so happy because he'd been trying to catch those guys for a long time. Mm-hmm. So stuff changes. It was always a dynamic. The intel was always dynamic. Yeah. So something that was good today 
was different. It's kind of, I think it's kind of like symbolic or kind of like the way the Afghans is what I'm understanding is they're moving all the time. Yeah, well, the, you, you always have to adjust for that. And it's interesting, you know, the, the fact that, you know, we're working with Iraqi soldiers or the I, I didn't fight in Afghanistan, but guys that did uh, work in Afghanistan had to deal with the same stuff. You know, you got these you got these partner forces that you're working with. Some of them are most of them are good. And but you got four or five of those guys that are definitely suspect. And you got two or three of them that are bad. And, you know, uh, one of one of my friends got shot up pretty bad um, by a guy that they thought was you know, was there yeah. to go do do a mission with him? Um, he, he's a special forces guy. Uh, what about the uh, what about the donk op? What happened with that one? Oh, that was a, that was going on to Football Island, man. And me, Tick, the Vietnamese, the the kid that was sitting beside me, mm-hmm. I loved him, man. He was a guy who told me he said, "SP, I want for my country what your country has for you." He says you know, he says you seals, you come. And then you'll go. I said, but I'm going to die here. I'm going to fight here. I've been fighting before you got here. This is where I'm going to die. Nah, hell no, Tick. I said, we're going to be together. I'm going to get out. I'll, I'll become an officer and I'll come back. And I was even going to join the Vietnamese Navy SEAL team, right? That's, that's where I was going with it. But I needed a break, too. I wanted to get out of, you know, there's, there's a thing where you realize that if you don't have, if you're not all in, you're going you're gonna to get killed. And and that's for my respect for the cats like you and guys that have been in for thirty four you know years, that like Hayden, like Hayden Chaldicas, um, um, uh, guys like Frisk and Crawdad and you know th- those guys. Um, sometimes there's the little break of war between after Vietnam that space and it, but then there's more of it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was like I need to get I need to get out. Uh, and I had the offer to wrestle at the University of Colorado. So, so there was with Tick, and so he says, uh, "Football Island was there was a bunch of cats there, and we wanted to pull an op on it. So what we did is we did three people, three seals, and Tick. Got our little sampan, went up to Football Island. Is not any wider than this." The room, so like and 10, 10 feet across, ten twelve feet. feet. This is the, this is how big the river was, or how big the, Football Island was. No, that's how big the river was. Okay, Football Island is probably about three clicks wide, probably about two clicks, mm-hmm. three to two clicks, you know, wide and mm-hmm. long. But we didn't have a lot of intel on it, and then during the day there was a lot of you know they would they would move around right. So what we wanted to do is find out how many were there. So we went in at night, went in with the tide. Sampan, just the four of us went in, crawled up the still river. Then, then it, it narrowed to probably to about that wide. So, like six feet. Six feet, right? But way out was the big river, and that's what we came in on. We came in with an LSSC, right, with the sampan mm-hmm. attached to it. So they launch us, they cruise on up the river, and then we turned in and went did our air evop. So we're in there and we're sneaking peek. We got up there probably, when we first reached the mouth of the river, we heard just So it was like, uh-oh. Is okay. that, that, is that sig- them signaling? That's a, them signaling, mm-hmm. right? But it was right at the, near the bank where we were going up. So well, sons of bitches, are, I mean, they're right there, right? So we stayed low, clo- you know, low paddle, paddling up, just kept going, went by them. Probably about 
two minutes, three minutes up. You know, not not that far up, maybe maybe about five minutes. So then we got to where it was easy to pull in. There was like a like a shallow bank that we can get in. So we harbored up the the boat. And then we crawled up, picking up like picking up and looking and. Jesus, those cats were smoking cigarettes. They had their weapons kind of stacked and talking. And then there was this thing that went like this. How many? Probably about 50. That's a big group of cats. That's a big group of cats. Yeah, it's like 50. You know, they were, they, what, they, did you have a stoner? Did I, anyone yeah. have a 60? We all had, no, no, no. We were going, that's, so see, that, four stoners? Three stoners and a and, uh, tick with the 16. So we, okay. so we could have we fought. Yeah, but we don't. We're not there for that. So we'd hear this, you know, just but it was like a, like a dog. It made like a real hollow sound. It was a little piece of wood, little piece of wood like this. Had two serpents' heads, had a hole drilled through it, and then there was a line that was cut out that would make that hollow sound. Oh, okay. It's almost like a percussion instrument. Yeah, and okay. it had, but it had a place where your thumb would fit and where your finger would fit. I didn't know it at the time. We just heard it. So then we get up there and we're laying. Out on the river, we hear this. Well, the boat, and we were up there just, we were were just kind of hanging out for probably about 40 minutes, maybe, maybe an hour. We caught it just when the tide was full and then it started running out, right? Well, the cat's out on the river hooked up on a barge, I mean on a sandbar. So the Vietnamese guys are there and they're going, and the one guy was hitting his little donk. He said, oh, sounds like the Americans are stuck. <laughs> I go, yeah, and then one guy says, should we, should we go, we should get the guys and we'll go kill them. Ah, we're just hanging out here, you know, and let's just take a break. Let's let them live tonight. And so... Tick was like, we're going to have to get out of here, right? So this one guy gets up and he says, I'm going to I'm gonna go take a leak. So he goes over with the little thing, and I'm laying here, and Hyatt's laying there, and he takes this thing and he puts it down. This is the percussion instrument thing. Yeah, he puts it down. And so then Hyatt, Hyatt was the platoon leader, right? He's the one who's calling the op. I'm here, Tick's here, and Rich is over here. So Hyatt said, well, let's go. So I'm sitting there looking, and he laid it. When he laid it down, it was like right in front of me, and then he started pissing between me and Hyatt. So I'm sitting there like this, going like this, like, you know, you can feel the like rain fitting off the top of your head. I'm sitting there going, son of a bitch. And so the other guy said, hey, Chatay Sin, who took? You want a cigarette? Oh, yeah. So he turns around, goes back over, and gives this guy a cigarette. Hyatt's this move, man. I grabbed that thing, put it in my pocket. We slid out, and then we're. On the, the low, low we're, the the current is starting to move out, so it was, it was pretty cool. So we weren't like mm-hmm. we were going out with it. Those boats are run, so we we get out there and then we pass by the guy that shot. You know, I was like, and uh, I didn't I didn't really understand it, but then Lou he says, uh, I can feel the fucking bullets going into my back, man. He said I could just feel them all the way. Where you just get that? It's not reality, right? There, there are things that, well, I'll get into that a little bit later, but so we went out and it was so dark that when those guys were still sitting there, we pulled the boat up there and we said, hey, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so let us push you off. We pushed them off the barge and then we took off. 
But I had that dog. I put it in my pocket. So I told this story to a buddy of mine, Andy Willingham, right, team guy. And uh, he said, that's cool, man. And I showed him the little thing, you know, because I, I brought it back. And then uh, he was in class 41. Tough guy, man. Just actually, he had a tussle with a guy. I'm not going to say the guy's name, but he's East Coast guy, the real high end that ran a lot officer that he's high profile and shit. And we were in the trade wind bar and he's starting this East Coast, West Coast bullshit. And Andy Willingham tells him, you know, you don't shut the fuck up. I'm going to knock you out. Andy's dad used to bet money with all these guys down in South. And he was a, a relative of Strom Thurmond. And he used to knock donkeys out with that six inch punch. Well, the guy goes, what? Out. <laughs> he drinks his beer and says, I'll catch you later, SP, and he takes off. And that guy's a very famous East Coast SEAL. You know, big name, high name. That's never going to be in the history books. But that's how things happened then. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, you know, the, the guys that are high order, top end dudes, you know, with the big reputations and stuff like that, they're just regular guys. You're just a regular cat. 100%. You know, we're all we're all like that, and I and I I think the sense we're, we're the media gets hold of this thing and, and sensationalizes everything about you know we're that we are anti magnetic genuine role. I mean all of that <laughs> stuff, right? And but but when when you when you're going to screw with the frogman and you're out somewhere, you're not going to just have to kick the hell out of one. There're going to be ten guys with him. You don't have to prove that. You know, I mean. This is this is where the power is at. Everybody knows that, mm-hmm. right? And and when that goes down, where's the calmness? You know, and you know. The the the, the one thing is that, in a millisecond of time, you're both a coward and a hero. And when shit goes down, and you on your find yourself somewhere, you go, "How in the hell did I get here?" When you can run as fast backwards as you can run forward. And each one of the instances look alike, they smell alike, but they're not alike. You know, it's a, a totally different thing, and each one has its own evolution, the same as a fire. It has its own character. It has its own, and what what I used to say in Vietnam, it's not the thing you see that's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And I tell my guys in the fire department, it's not the thing you see that's going to kill you. What is? It's the thing that's sniffing around with Jocko's name on it. Mm-hmm. It's going, <laughs> where is he? And that's where the training comes in. And if you have the training, then you have the millisecond of saying, and there's that spiritual thing that says, we're in the wrong place, or don't. And when I look at ops, that, you know, like the, like our new guys now, you guys, right, the young guys that get killed in Afghanistan, Rack's like, where was the discussion? That was pretty jacked up from the beginning. But because we are who we are, we give the space and time to say, I wasn't there. They were there. That's their that's their op and, and however it went, however it went sour, whatever happened, it's the thing that was sniffing for them and they didn't see it. You know, no matter how well trained you are, sometimes it's just not there. You know? What did you do with uh with Mac with, with SOG? Did you work did you do SOG any SOG operations? The the Mac V S O G thing was the proof thing. Okay. So that they had that was their that was their yeah that's their that's their thing yeah got it so those are the ones and I didn't even know what it was Mm -hmm. they just sent me and Bill over there you go in there these guys are leaving take over we're like all right you know 
And the only reason they sent us for that is because I was with the Vietnamese SEALs with two uh, East Coast guys, mm-hmm. and I and I worked that. So then it was kind of like, hey, we want you to, because I could speak, I spoke better Vietnamese than I did Spanish, you know. So then you just pick it up from yeah, how'd you pick it up from the point men, from from Tick and Quan and uh, Unlock and all the guys, all the guys that I operated with were Vietnamese SEALs that all the rest of the Americans operated with. So when Tick said, "Yeah, I'm going to be here, but you guys are going to leave us, and I'll probably die here," all of them were killed. Lock, uh, Hong, um, Tick, um, all these guys. So. That's how I picked it up. Mm-hmm. There were guys that went to Vietnamese language school. They didn't send me. I spoke better Vietnamese than I did than the guys that went to Vietnamese language school because they personalized it. Mm-hmm. Macintosh could speak Tagalog because he in Vietnam he <laughs> had the little thing on learning all the all the uh, Tagalog phrases, right? And uh, so I was invested with. Tick, and I was invested with the liberation of South Vietnam, and I think there were a lot of South, I think there were a lot of Vietnamese, a lot of SEAL team guys, Vietnam SEALs. That that's how they felt. And then after it went down, I mean, I, I talked to some guys. I said, "Well, yeah, I'd like to go back someday." And I had some partners that said, "So I didn't leave a damn thing over there. There ain't no reason for me to ever go back there." And and I think what happens is. There's a romance. There's a, where you romanticize the memories, right? People romanticize wars. They romanticize of of what it is or they think about what it is. I think those of us who be there see the nakedness of it. You know, see the, well, the the deal, right? The flash of, of, that changes your life. That changes everybody's life. And, and we think sometimes that you can only see that in war. We got people in communities that that are going through the same thing of, of trying, going through post-traumatic stress in their own neighborhoods, you know. And uh, but what I went through has given me language to what happened in my life. That I'm that I'm now able through reevaluation counseling is one where I have the picture of who I am as a human being. Uh, advanced reticular therapies, the vision thing that mm-hmm. some that some guys are doing that they gave me. Uh, mental pictures of where I'm going, and then this lady's really helped me with the. Uh, it's her thing. It's called Rewired Creator. But, but where where I've come to the point where I'm not going to settle for that. Like I said earlier, you know, my convictions and my wants need to be stronger than the than the alternatives that I settled for in the past. That it's okay to do this. You know, I can't do that anymore. And and I got to forgive myself for the sins of my past, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a biggie. And when I when I was in Coronado this last time at the reunion, uh, I go there. I go to Denny's Bar and I have a beer with Mario Maestas. I I mentored him. I was his wrestling coach in Colorado. Right, bad dude. And I, I'd wrestle him and then be like, okay, you know, when you wrestling the guy and you know he's getting stronger and tougher, and then you go, oh shit, I hang out here a little bit more. He's gonna beat the hell the out of me. Clock's ticking. That was that was him. You know, and. Um, I, I that that family and that relationship and what we create for each other um, 
it's beyond just a happening. It's all. It's beyond just being a frogman. It's there's the whole spiritual connection to those old UDT guys that didn't know shit. They went and they picked them. Can you swim? Yeah. I remember asking one of my old guys, World War II guys. I said, "What did you kind of weapons you carry?" Well, I sat on my crippers, my swimming trunks, and my flare. Uh, I said, "What about weapons?" I said, "We're just doing drop and pickup." He says, "If you miss the boat." He says, you're swimming in with the fleet, you know, with, with the guys that are landing on the beaches, and there's usually a Marine laying around. You can just take his weapon. He didn't care. That was their character. That was That's who we're born from, right? That's where, where the tadpole to frog, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, um, and Chief Stone, man, we're living on a reputation of dead men. Like just the people, they're going to sit there and say, oh, that's your reputation, right? But each one of our generations... Those guys behind us are building their own generation. They're they're building they're they're building. Where's it going to go? If it's left to the people that operate, um, that tobacco Lewis. When I came back, I was by myself. He's sitting there in the trade wind bar. I look at him. I come in. I go, shit. They still sitting there. Hey, Espy. Yeah. So I come over to him. I say, hey, man, how you doing? So he grabs a pitcher of beer. And as I understand, they're a pretty good, badass little operator. <laughs> <laughs> Take my drink, right? See where it is, the transition? Yeah. To, to being called that, not call, and, and you couldn't, I mean, like now it's called SEAL operators. Nobody would ever have called themselves an operator. The only person that could call you an operator is yourself, is your, is your teammates, the guys that were with you. And when they say that and somebody else says it to you, it never came from you. It came from the cats that were with you. And there's some cats that were never called operators. They're Vietnam, they're SEALs, Vietnam guys, they're team guys, but uh, not at that level. Not at whatever level that is, and it isn't mean to to put one type of operator over another operator. You know, it's just that you are not not better than all the rest of the operators in the world, because then then become then it becomes the ego thing. But from here, if if somebody calls you that and you almost cry, it, it means something, you know. <laughs> and and I went, yeah, you know. Have, have my a drink with him, and uh, you know. And I had you know you you have these these guys that they say that are bigger than life, and, and actually they're not bigger than life. They're people that know how to connect with you, that are um, they give you life more than anything. You go, yeah, I can do that. I can I can be this. Olivera, Chief Allen, Barry Enoch, you know. Uh, no, I was, I was fortunate, man. I I walked with some. I walked with some good people. Yeah. Did you guys? Did your platoon? Did you lose anybody in your deployment? Doc Doc Maynard transferred. He he rotated with uh, the the army. Um, corp, he was a Marine corpsman, so that that Marine corpsman could get some money, right? Do the shipover stuff, and he was the one that was walking by. With uh, Van Hoy, Doc Maynard and Van Hoy were walking by when they drilled out that 82 millimeter mortar and killed five seals. And uh, he, he just happened to be there. It's walking by. 
And then they'd had a, I wasn't there because I was working with the uh, Prus, but uh, another buddy by name D, they were having a were party, you know, they, they're changing out. That was the other thing that was crazy. But anyway, at that party, because uh, we were coming over and they just had a party and they were gonna still doing a little bit more operations. And Van Hoy told D, he says, uh, I'm gonna get killed here this time. He said, what the hell is about? What are you talking about? He says, these, these guys are careless. They're dangerous. He says, and I've talked to him about stuff. He says, but we're going to mess up. And they did. Mm-hmm. And and he, he had already had like three or four trips, you know. And uh, and he was one. He was one. He was a cool. Van Hoy was. He was a rock star. And uh, you get me was the very first time we go to Vietnam, going going to relieve relieve a platoon, and they grab you like this. I say, hey, uh, how you doing? You're SPA. <laughs> like, what? I think I'm shaking hands with a dead man. <laughs> I said, well, you, you think that's funny? <laughs> you know, they would do those kind of things, you know? And uh, so then I did it when I left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how was it coming home? Did you think you were going back to another platoon like you're going to well, do it again what, at I what got, point did you make the decision like that you're going to get out i got the letter to russell at the university of colorado which was always one of my dreams because i was raised in boulder and i thought man i'd love to wrestle at the university of colorado babes and booze in boulder my hometown or bombs bullets and bullshit <laughs> i kiss well, i kiss hide on the lips and i said hey man i'm gonna get you later i'm gonna, because i got i i wasn't ready i wasn't right you know i i felt that I felt that thing that if I if I go back again, I'm, I might get whacked, and I needed to I needed that time away, you know, and if I had that space and I had that time and I wasn't ready, then I'm cheating. My I'm I I may be, the wink link in you're letting down the team in another's operation, so I'd rather not be there, right? And um, so, yeah, and and saying goodbye to those guys was really hard, you know. Um, and then all the other stuff, you know, there's the, the people talk about some of the movements that are coming now about gender and all that other kind of stuff. You know, we dealt with that in the teams a long time before that, you know, uh, we're gay guys or whatever it is, you know, the, um, like in, in community, you know, we, we allow for everybody to exist, not in the teams. I mean, in the teams it was all, but we were in California. So I mean, all the stuff they're talking about now is already all the gay thing, the whole, all of that stuff is. So when I went to school at CU, there were, there was a lot of people trying to surprise you about things, the Viva La Raza thing about how violent they are. Well, I'm back from Vietnam. <laughs> it's like, you know, wait a minute, you know, I, uh, no, I, I, Vietnam Veterans Against War, the Young Socialist Republic, the Viva the Atsalan thing. It's like, and I was raised in Boulder, right? All this stuff's going down. I'm like, what, what happened? In my life, when I was a kid, it felt like my days were black and white days. Vietnam, they're green and black. When I came home, it was all technicolor, man. All chicks getting, come and ask you if you want sex. You know, it's like, what happened? You know, this free love and all that other, like, where, where's... Where's the moral conviction? Where's those things? It was like there were there weren't any. There's what not, year was it that you got out? Sixty nine. 
In 70, I, I got back in Vietnam in 16. So it's just March. like the height of mayhem in America. Yeah. Yeah, that whole thing was going down. And, uh, and I remember at a party, this guy was talking about the the Chicano movement, right? As there was another kid there. He was from Del Norte, and um, I'm listening to him. This guy Falcon was really an activist. I said, "Well, I don't agree. With it. I think it's kind of bullshit, you know, <laughs> because I just killed a commie for mommy. I'm back here. I, I'm from Boulder, and and I uh, said, "Well, you're a sellout." I goes, "I'm a sellout because I love my country because of what I did." And this kid, Mar- Marty Martinez, he says, uh, "Yeah, he can say whatever he wants," and he backhands him. So that's kind of a cheap thing in it so you don't like it let's go outdoors sorry so we go outdoors and i i forgot where i was right so i walked out and as soon as Is this I, the other time that the outside warrior kind of got the upper hand a little bit well what happened what happened was he hit me right so i turned and i looked at him and i said you i've been slapped by women harder than you can you just hit me I says, just stand by, because I'm going to kick the f- out of these three guys first, your little girlfriends, and then you. <laughs> he says, oh, no, no, man. He says, you got to. Then it was reminding me back when I was in junior high. Fight this guy. And then they go, oh, no, you're okay. You're cool. I says, bullshit. I says, you are manipulating these young kids into what you think it is. But they're not, but they're being manipulated, and it's not creative thought. I says, so I'm going to tell you what. No, no, you're cool. I said, no, no. I said, I'm going to go back in the party, me and Freddie. I says, you come back in there. I'm going to kick you sh- inside there out. I says, as a matter of fact, when I go to a party, if you're there, you better leave. And if I'm there, don't come in. And later on, he got killed by tra- threatening some old guy in New Mexico, right? So I didn't fit. Asked my dad. Hey, man, I said, did I, did I screw up Vietnam and all that? My dad, I love him, man. He's the guy who grabbed my face, you know, told me I was, don't be afraid, right? And my last name's the only thing I gave you. <laughs> so he takes me over and he makes me stand in this. We, we put tiles in the bathroom. Not the stick I'm kind, not, not this mm-hmm. court. I mean, so we did that and he had me stand there. And uh, this, this is after Vietnam. After this is when Vietnam. you asked him if you, if you had screwed up. This is when I was going to school at CU, right? Because I came home and they were still there. Before my dad told me, we're moving. I said, why are you moving? We're afraid of you. We think you're going to kill us. I said, why? What do you mean? He says, the way you are, the behavior, the way you look at us, the way you carry yourself sometimes. He says, we think you could kill us. That's when I understood where the, that's where the outside were. I started looking and going, what the... And there's another couple other things I'll get to a little bit later about what happened. But he had me stand there. He says, you know, the way we are as people, he says, the man can say that they own the rivers, the mountains, the valleys, even the buildings that they built. He says, the air or the sea. He says, but they don't. But I want to tell you something. That square tile that you're standing on, everywhere you walk, Gibby. That's when I knew he loved me. When he called me Gibby, Gibby's different than Espy, you know, and, and Gil. He says, uh, 
everywhere you walk is paid for by you, by the blood of yours and your friends. He says, and you did it for your family. You did it from your heart. So it's paid for us too. He says, you'll never be ashamed about what you did and who you are. Because that, you own it. So when I walk into a village, all right, this place right here right now, it's mine. This is your, this is yours. Mm -hmm. But this little chair here, it's mine. And I didn't understand that. But somebody has to tell you so that you do. And my dad, fourth grade education, told me in the Indian way, you know. And uh, he gave me so much power. I, when I came back, uh, I didn't fit. So when I wrestled at CU, it was just wrestling. That's what I'm saying. I couldn't get it. I had to go to. I had to go to five points. I went to the nationals two times. If I beat this one guy, I would have been sixth in the nation, right? But he ran. I beat a national champ that another guy knows, but they they ripped me off. And actually, when my wrestling coach talked to this guy, he said, why'd that happen? He said, I just couldn't let that Mexican kid beat this kid, right? All right. I understood that. No big, I'm, I'm a frog man, you know. I fought for my country. I'm not, def you know, I, uh, I, I just fortunately had a pop that told me that, you know. When I went hunting with him one time later as a man, uh, we killed an elk. I was just back. I mean, it was probably that was later, and we were getting him up. He says, "Gibby, he says, uh, you're hunting." He says, "You go up over the ridge." He says, "And we scare down an elk, and and I'll kill him." I said, "All right." So I'm up there walking up on this ridge. Now, he wouldn't. My my mom wasn't going to let him go, but she said, "He said, what if Gibby goes with me?" Well, if Gibby goes with you, you can go. I said, Dad, I don't want to go. He says, you you go with me. I said, all right. So he tells me these orders. You go up on top. He says, you chase down the elk and I'll kill him. And we'll be, you know, it's all right. So I'm up there humping. I'm like 47 years old. I can feel my heart. You know, like when you're on ambush or something like that and you feel your heart beating in your head, your neck, you know. I'm thinking, I'm going to have a heart attack up here. My dad's not coming up here and they're going to find me a bag of bones, right? <laughs> So anyway, I came down, and he was driving. He had, and so I got in here. I put my weapon here. You're supposed to have your weapon where you're hunting, right, with you. He said, well, you drive. So I went around around the truck. As soon as I got hold of the door, I heard the sound, man. Somebody shooting at us. went right over my head, two of them. And I said, I, he said what's going on? I said, I don't know, Papa. I said, whatever's happening, they're shooting at us. And And... And then I grabbed his weapon because I'm going to shoot somebody. And he goes, no, no, no. He says, there's the elk. It's coming this way. So instinctively, I drew up. I was going to shoot the elk. And my dad goes, no, no, no. He said, that's my gun. And when we went, my dad, I said, Dad, I don't want a gun. He says, no, I'm just going to be with you. No, no, no. You got to have it in case you get hurt. Some, you got a gun. It's all right. So he, he locked and loaded the round for me. I shoot, clipped him like this. And I took the second shot. And then I was I locked and loaded, and I'm running. Next thing, I'm just running after this elk. And, uh, and I heard my dad as I was running. He says, I'm going to shoot him again. My dad, no, 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 Gibby, he'll fall, he'll fall. And when I got there, the elk fell. And I looked at him, and the elk goes, 
and I felt the spirit. You know, it was like, and I saw him die. You know, and I hadn't hunted anything since Vietnam, right? And uh, you know, like sometimes when you see those guys and they're they're gone, when when you know that the spirit was there but they're gone. It, it was like that again. Those aren't flashbacks. People go, "Oh, I had a flashback to Vietnam." Those are stimulations. You know where you know where you're at. You you have a choice to do and whatever. A lot of guys bullshit themselves out. They quit on themselves. They give themselves an out of being responsible for themselves. That's how I think, right? And so I looked and I'm standing there, and my dad comes up behind me, uh, and I had my H harness with my K bar and stuff. He says, you okay? And I turned around and looked at my dad. He goes, he says, you're not okay. He says, give me your knife. He says, go get the truck, the little bag that had the hatchet and the and the knife and the bone saw and all the stuff. He said, so I go to the truck. I get to the truck, and I'm like shaking like this. It goes, oh, man, God, you know, wait, what, what am I doing here? Why did I even? So we grab my get the truck I come back over to him my dad looks comes over to me and he looks at me and he gives me a hug got me like this with a knife with the blood I'm like this going shit so he says looks at me and he says uh, forget that Vietnam bullshit so I need you to help me right now hold the legs <laughs> so I'm holding the legs right where this place where all the the, it was out in the, like a pasture, right, where they'd cut the the stuff down, right, the um, stubble, right. I operated up the plate of reeds up by Cambodia, right, and that was a pretty flat place, but that's what it looked like. And I could hear, isn't it like, but I could hear them in in the heart of my mind, right thinking and shaking. And so then we got him up and everything. He caught, shoots a gun. His buddy comes down. We load him in the truck. We take off, get in the truck. And my dad says, okay. He says, now we pray. Right? He keeps the liver too, you know, in the Indian way, right? So we pray and he grabs my hand. He says, Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that my son is with me. And I thank you that you gave this elk's life to bring him home to me. You know, I'm sitting here, Pops, man, come on, you know. So then that night, I couldn't sleep. It was in like a little tear, teardrop trailer, man. It was freezing in there, right? We're cold. My dad's rubbing my back. I said, Dad, I said, I, I, I'm going to get outside. So I went outside and I looked up at the sky. And up in the sky, and there's two times I've seen it. One, when I did a Native American sweat with a guy that was a Vietnam vet that invited me to be part of the American Indian Veterans of Colorado. His name was Wendell Irving, one of the greatest honors of my life. That was the beginning of me stepping out of all that, the oppression of Vietnam and, and uh, losing myself, losing the humanness that I was and and uh, that piece, the, the young boy being revealed, right? I looked up and I went, oh man, God, this this is too much. These hunting trips are too much. And then again in the spirit, the same way those mountains spoke to me and said, we'll be your friends forever, 
right? And the way that Paul Lama says, I'm with you, and that's the way to Vietnam. Uh, I heard him say, I heard the Spirit is like, the same way that I gave that elk's life to bring you home to your father, I gave my son's life to bring you back home to me. It was the beginning of of the spiritual thing, you know. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I'd accepted Christ and all that kind of stuff, but it was different because then it was blood again, like the war, like the Vietnam blood again. This, this, the the blood sacrifice of things changes things. If people knew what war was and what the blood was, like the people in, in Ukraine right now, they know. The Americans don't know. I mean, they'll kill guys in the in you know the the ghettos or whatever over meaningless stuff, right? Because you want you want your car, or you or you want his whale tail, right? I I'm right now I'm in I am Jonah in the whale right now. Because I'm trying to sort things out and where am I going with this seventy five years? Where am I going for the next twenty five years, right? Where, where where am I going? This is part of that challenge. This is part of it. And where does that come from? That comes from being a frogman. That comes from not being afraid of being cold. I hate it. I hate it more than anything. But I'm not afraid of it. Right? I, I'm not, and I'm, you know, it's, uh, people say I'm not afraid to die either, you know? You're not going to know until somebody's there to kill you. I mean, that's the reality of it. I'm, I'm, I look out there and I see all the MMA guys, man. They're going to go out there. The one thing that I admire about all of them is going out there. They're the ones that's going to know. Not the cats sitting around outside that aren't in the arena, that aren't in there getting their ass kicked. And then even even though they are, which is the one that has enough that's going to pull them out that isn't going to be ego that pulls them out. It's going to be their heart that pulls them out. Those are the true champions. There's a guy with all the talent in the world. He can kick shit out of everybody. But it, but if his heart's not right, man, it's on ego. He's, he's a he's an angry person. And I and I was that angry guy one time. I sit there looking in the mirror and going, you know, the face of death was mine. Like what? And then I'm gonna have kids. I can see I can see some the guy was with the three Indian, the young seal, man. What do I do? How can I do this and still love my babies, little kids? I said, Barry Enoch did. He would sit there and hold my babies. And Barry Enoch is one of the baddest dudes in the valley and one of the nicest guys. You ever meet him, no. Barry Enoch? He, he's a true mentor of teams. Of He was with Crawdad, you know? And uh, it's, it's bigger. Um, so my pops uh, gave that to me. You know, fourth grade. You know, then he... When I was wrestling in high school, he never my sophomore he didn't go see me. And uh, and then one day I was dry. <laughs> told him I need to go to a wrestling camp. I got to lift weights and this and that. I eat some protein. My coach wanted me to do that stuff. My dad says, "Well, I don't know about that." He says, "I got you a job." <laughs> he says, "And uh, if you make enough money, he says you can go to your wrestling camp." He says, "Now shut up and eat your beans, right?" protein i went i said well, what's my job he says hanging drywall so i was 98 pounds man hanging drywall with grown men i had to get on this on a scaffold i mean on a horse to get on a horse 
to hold that up, but there was nobody that ever wrestled that was stronger than me. And so all of that prepared me for the teams when she'd hang it on the, on the bottom rung of, a, of a, a helicopter in the air and I'm 500 feet uh, going through training, right? Through Bud's training, we did the drop out of the helicopter mm-hmm. and pick up, uh, hanging on and no big, no big deal, you know? That, how do you get there, right? It's each of those little life life things and or knowing that Chief Allen's on my ass, you know? <laughs> I was doing drop and pick up with him, right? And they were telling you about what that is and I'm sitting there going, you ever do drop and pick up? Yep. You know, they don't do it anymore, but I did it, yeah. Yeah, well, there was one East Coast guys told me, how do you do that stuff? Just sitting there, just jerk you out. I said, well, you got to be swimming backwards. He said, oh, really? And they weren't teaching them to do that, you know, kick and, and go. So he says, yeah, he says, uh, it's going to look like the boat's going to hit you, but don't stay there and it'll pull you in. So I'm like this. Oh, bullshit, you know. <laughs> I stroked out. Boom, the boat goes by. Chief Allen comes back in that ground. He says, Espinosa, don't move. Who yeah, Chief Allen? He takes off comes back i swear he's gonna hit me again so i <laughs> so then the third time he didn't say anything he just turns around and comes over and i go this is coming at me it is really coming at me. i'm <laughs> stroking and gliding he ran over me with that boat <laughs> boom man my face piece was hanging down and stuff and then he pulls by last time he grabbed me when that boat grabbed me and i hooked, hooked up he threw me all the guys ducked as I fly from, <laughs> the boat's about this big, huh? Everybody's duck, and I'm flying through the air, and I caught the other side, you know? I never, ever, never, ever missed a, a, a pickup again. So what'd you do when you graduated from college? Then you wrestled all, all your years of college? Yep, I wrestled four years of college, qualified, qualified for the Nationals two times, and then it was like Brad Leach was a sheriff, and um, what am I going to do? Right, I was going to I was going to teach school. I was doing my professional year teaching school, and this kid comes up. And I was with my mentor, my proctor, and he says, uh, "You see, this kid walks out of the classroom. He says, uh, hey, get back in class.'" The kid looks and says, "Fuck you." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> you know, he walks out, and I said, "Hey, what's what's the deal with that?" He said, uh, "No, man." He says. Uh, you can't, I said, you can't grab his head, stuck him in the locker, kick him in the ass and tell him. He says, no, no, you can't do that. They'll arrest you. I said, well, I'm not going to be a teacher. And I graduated. Mm-hmm. And I was, what am I going to do? I didn't want to teach school. So Brad Leach was a sheriff. And he says, uh, how would you like to come on to the police department? He says, and we'll um, start a dive rescue team. Since you're in the teams, you can shoot and stuff and do that. So uh, it was like... Um, come down and do the polygraph and gave me the whole test. I did everything. Polygraph, the drug thing. I was just from CU, right? <laughs> I says, you ever done any drugs? I'm going, well, what do you mean? You know, he says, well, <laughs> clarify. I said, you know, they gave you those pills in Vietnam, you know, that speed. And they kept us awake all night. That was the only thing that I'd ever done. And maybe down in Mexico, a little bit of white pills, <laughs> <laughs> just a party for the weekend. But uh, so I thought, well, okay, smoking grass, I did. So how do you justify it? Well, if you take a lid like this and you smoke it and you share it with people, you accidentally smoke about that much, maybe a quarter of a lid. Huh. Other than that, did you do any more drugs? I said, oh, oh no. Okay, I passed that. So then Bradley says, oh, yeah. He says, you, you're good. He says, well, come on, we'll get you to the academy, give you a gun, and you can. This is for sheriff. Sheriff. And I went, I said, okay. So I go home Sunday, go to sleep. 
wake up and it was like, wait a minute. Ain't no way I could be a cop. If I can't take crap from a 13-year-old kid, <laughs> I'm going to kill you. Uh, it, I mean, yeah. I'd fight guys at, at the bar, right? But if I'm going to be stopped by somebody and you're going to pull a gun on me, I'm going to kill you. So I thought I can't do that either. So then the fire department came up. So I couldn't be a cop. Couldn't be a teacher. There was a there was a there was a movie called Kung Fu. Uh huh. And it was like grasshopper stuff. It's kind of like everybody in Boulder was kind of like, oh, the essence of life. <laughs> Shoot, I've learned all kinds of lines. I could pick up on chicks, right, and talk to people, and 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 going to you know in, in school, I kind of. So it's like, what am I going to do? And so then they were having affirmative action hiring for um, people of color, right? 200 people are going to hire one guy on the fire department. I didn't know about it. Miss Martinez, who's who my mom was going to kick the shit out of calling me <laughs> fodder, right? She calls up and says, hey, they're hiring firefighters in Boulder. They're going to hire one. So why don't you try it? So I'm like, sea, air, land, and fire. Four elements of life, you know, just like the directions, north, south, east, and west. I mean, it was all coming together, and I was really getting sensitized to this. Uh, I almost became a Buddhist, you know, I was thinking about all that stuff. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll try it. So I did... And I was I was wrestling at CU, right? And I was running 15 miles. You know, I was, I, I was, I was in good shape. And uh, at that time, it was push-ups, sit-ups, chin-ups, and all that other kind of stuff. So I kicked everybody's butt on that, right? I had an afro, my mustache, my, you know, because I had a, you know, you got to look cool up there at CU, you know, it's the whole hippie-looking thing, right? And so... Uh, I do the interview and stuff, and they're like, oh, yeah, you really was a SEAL team. What was that? I says, well, not really much. I said, you know, I got to wear shades, wear swimming trunks, and just kind of hung out on the beach and stuff. It was red boats. Oh, okay. So that's the Navy? I said, yeah. I didn't tell them what the team, no, they wouldn't know what the teams were, you know. I did have a jacket that had UDT on it because SEAL team didn't have a, but I had a UDT patch, right? My In my fire now, it's all, all gone, but... Uh, and when I hitchhiked home from the Navy, when I, when I, when you got out, when I got out, nobody picked me up because I want to know what I fought for, right? Two old ladies picked me up in New Mexico. These other Mexican guys picked me up and wanted to frisk me. I had my thirty-eight in the back, <laughs> and uh, I, I they frisked me, but I was sitting in the back. I think I ought to pull this thing out and say, "Okay, guys, everybody out of the," but I didn't. <laughs> then when I got over into Colorado, some. Coyotes were were stalking me. You know, I'm thinking I'm gonna get, come back in Vietnam. I'm gonna get eaten by the damn coyotes. <laughs> then a guy in a tractor trailer truck tried to run over me. Thought I was a cow. He stopped, and gave me a ride into Colorado. So anyway, that's how I got home from the Navy. But so I said, yeah, I'll 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 do this. Took the interviews and everything. He said, well, yeah, but you got that good uh, stuff there, boy. You know, and I'm all. White-haired guys, blue-eyed, you know, from Nebraska, and um, uh, so I, I'll just try it. I said, "Well, he shaves off." I mean, my hair's been cut shorter. I can shave my mustache. I'm not okay. So I show up. Um, I was drinking, you know. I was still, I was still over here. I was, I was going. I didn't know I was going through post-traumatic stress. Uh, when you look at the behaviors now, I know I was, but um, and the behaviors are drinking, fighting, 
all of that just stuff. the whole nine yards. Racism, sexism, you know, screw the white guys and whatever. So I'm telling you about, you know, you finalize yourself as a frogman and you, you're pretty clean about who you are, right? But then when you don't fit, you don't feel that you don't fit, then you start bringing all this stuff back, right? That's, that's the socialization piece because that's easy to fall back into, right? So when I got out of the fire department, I was like, this guy says, uh, yeah, kid, you know where you belong? He says, uh, we're going to get along fine on this department, right? So I put up with that for about, well, five months later, I was drinking, and I was, it was already the beginning. I, I lacerated my liver, three holes in my duodenum. I got this, this cut here. I have one down my leg, lacerated my liver, riding a motorcycle, drinking and going back over to Denver. The one thing cool about those guys was they covered for me because I had no sick or vacation. We worked every other day for three days and then we were off four days. So if you'd have 10 days off, you had to offer a month. So 20 guys, 20 shifts were covered for me and I paid those shifts back when I got back to work, but I kept my job. So I'm going, well, that's pretty cool. Waking up at seven o'clock in the morning, the same thing as waking up at seven at night if you're drunk. And every other day thing, it was got to call up. Oh, shit, I'm sick. Hey, uh, you know, I'm calling in sick. They go, well, you're on a four-day. You don't come back. I said, when do I go back? Three more days. <laughs> oh. So I'd use all my sick, my vacation. There's times I wasn't coming to work. I mean, it, it, was, it was hard because it was so free. I didn't have structure. structure. And even when I was wrestling in college, my wrestling coach, I wanted to go back to, the, I wanted to, go back to war. I'd be drunk. I'd smoke a cigarette in the bar and say, hey, man, I just want to let you know I want to leave. Shelby Wilson, Olympic champion. He said, well, Gil, says, if you want to quit, I'll tell the team you can go. <laughs> Son of a gun. So I didn't quit. I struggled the, the last, you know, I struggled, you know, staying in college because of that quit thing. I, if I, I couldn't let them I couldn't let myself down to let them down because I have never quit anything in my life, right? So, 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 so how long did it take like at, as a firefighter, at what point did you start to kind of figure out that maybe all this drinking wasn't so good for you, maybe that you were, uh, had some stuff you needed to sort out? Well, finally I found out who I was, right? I'm on the, I'm on the first fire call. I go out, put a cup of coffee down. We go out, go on a call, and there's this guy trapped like this. In a vehicle or in a in building? A, in a vehicle, car wreck. So I'm looking, and I'm like, what do I do? And he says, here, hold the hose, kid. So we're doing extrication. We'll tell you what to do. Car catches on fire, open up. I'm like, all right. So I'm sitting there watching this guy, and they're trying to get him cut open and stuff. And, and I remember it had that. I'm not going to drink any more of this. Uh, I'd had that, I think it's a diuretic. <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I took a cup of coffee, right? First cup of coffee, man, sit there and, and boom, get a call. I put it down, we take off. I'm sitting there watching this guy, and uh, all, I, all I could think of when I was watching him was, look, man, why don't you just hurry up and fucking die? Because I know you're going to die. My coffee's getting cold, you know? That's where I was. So they cut him apart and he died, right? So we go back, I grab my cup of coffee, take a sip, and I went, ah, it's cold. And I went, okay, what's happening? What, 
what's happened to me? When my dad told me, he says, don't forget that you're a human being, right? And I saw this go down, and I had no feelings, nothing. It's like getting disconnected over in, over in Vietnam, getting disconnected. That this space and time, uh, and not discharging, you know, because when when you're there, I wasn't discharging anymore. I wasn't crying. I wasn't laughing. I wasn't mean. Uh, even now, sometimes some kids say, "Well, Mr. Espinosa really doesn't have a sense of humor." Because sometimes I don't, you know. Even on the fire department, I'd look at somebody and they'd say, oh, I think this guy's trying to kill me, you know. But so it was like, okay, that was the thinking about it. And I I became very best friends with this guy named Billy Duran. He was an Air Force guy, right? He's a, a firefighter. So as I got on the fire department, they told me, you remember where you belong and this and all that kind of stuff? And then about the fifth year, I mean, four years, because it was easy. I was drinking, I was getting paid good money. I spent most of my money on a bar tab. I'd buy in for everybody, you know? I wasn't even taking vacations. I was just using my time and drinking and fighting and whatever. And uh, I was not happy. It's kind of like, um, what am I doing here? So then there was a training fire. I was the second guy. I was a, I was I was the third engine to go in and do this training fire. So the training fire is it, they set a building on fire that's yeah. going to be demoed or something like that. Yeah. So they're just taking advantage of a was, building that's going to be demoed. What they were doing is they were doing smoke training, and in the smoke training there was a new lieutenant. So this older lieutenant was trying to train the, the see new how what kind of macho man he was, see whether he could really fight fire and what kind of smoke eater he was. I was at another station. Billy Duran and this other young kid had one month on the job. Well, if you burn tires, it's a hydrocarbon. The temperatures in this chicken coop over the period of time, because there was three or four other evolutions that happened in that same building, it lowered the flashpoint, right? So at one point, it ignited, killed Bill Duran, killed the other kid, the lieutenant that was in charge, he suffered some burns. The lieutenant that was in charge of the engine company 80, 80% burns on his body. So he died. You know, he got burned up, and but Billy died. And for me, it was kind of like, there was there was something that was going on too because I was pretty violent. And previous, you know, when, when that happened, I got fed up with everything, right? And so one day, knowing how I felt about not having any feelings, Billy Duran getting killed, all this petty-ass bullshit was like, for instance, a, a black guy was walking with a girl, right? And I'm sitting there, and they go, look at that. And I said, look at what? It's that black guy with that woman, white woman. What do you think about that? I said, what I think about it is, is if it was me walking out there with that woman, you'd be on the inside looking at me and saying, look at that guy, what's he doing with that white woman? You know, that's what I think about it. You know, it doesn't mean nothing to me. And so then it was... So then I got fed up with that. So I was in a dive locker, right? Because I'm doing diving, kind of trying to reorganize the dive team at my level. And one guy was talking about, he had a little booby trap cleaning up, petty ass bullshit, you know, kind of like cleaning up. He was an officer, set me up that I didn't clean up the space in, uh, on the engineer's room. So I set one up in the officer's room. He didn't clean it up. 
He got on me for not cleaning up mine, so I got on him for not cleaning up his. He said, why didn't you just clean it then? I said, why didn't you just clean yours? As a matter of fact, I grabbed hold of the door, closed it. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to tell you what, man. Today, either you kick the shit out of me or I kick the shit out of you because I'm tired of all your white man bullshit and all of this traditional firefighter bullshit. He goes, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, Gil. Wait, wait, what do you mean? I said, where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Lincoln. Yeah, I said, where's your people from? Well, we're Germans. I says, were you raised here? He said, no. I said, well, I was raised here. My dad, we're from the Picris Pueblo. So I'm from, I was born in Colorado. I says, and did you ever kill a commie for mommy? He goes, what? I said, did you ever, you ever in the military, did you ever kill a commie for mommy, man? Well, no, you know I'm not. I'm not in the military. I says, well, they don't give me this shit about where I belong and or anything else. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, God. I don't know where this is coming from. I said, we well, don't know where it's coming from. This is affirmative action bullshit that all you white guys are talking about. I says, and I'm not buying into it. I'm a frog man. He goes, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. He says, you know, on this fire department, if they have fires, they want you with them because you're a good firefighter. Extrication now, you're good You're good at extrication, they want you with them. They go into a bar fight, they go into the bars, they want you with them because you know most of the guys anyway in Boulder, right? EMS, they know you know EMS and they can count on you on the engines. He says, but there's more to being an all-around firefighter and you're not doing it. I said, what? yeah, what's that? He says, coming to work on time, coming to work, not being on suspension and not being um, hungover. Boom, man. In my mind, I heard my dad say, Gibby, the only thing I give you is my reputation, my, my last name. Don't bring dishonor on it. And then he says, you know, I said, well, I don't give a shit. I says, I'm getting connected to go to Saudi Arabia as a weapons instructor. Got connected through, it was called Brown Magazine, Soldier Fortune Magazine. I already got accepted, and they were going to give me 100000 for the year. But if I got killed, they'd, my family didn't get it. It was totally disconnected, total, you know. And I, and I said, I'm, that's what I'm doing, so I don't give a shit. But, and I was going to put my two weeks' notice. It was a Friday. I said, I'm going to put my two weeks' notice in and be gone. <laughs> he says, well, when you do that, he says, everybody's going to be glad that you're gone because your reputation sucks. So I went over to the door, I opened it up, I stepped out and I closed the door and left him in there. I went over to the, the, the dorm where the beds were and I laid down and I thought, shit, I can't leave here until my reputation's right. So the next day, I go to, Monday, I go to the chief. So I'm gonna tell you what, man, I says, I'm gonna come to work on time, I'm not gonna be hungover, I'm gonna try to max up my, my vacation days, my sick days, and that's what I'm giving you my word as a, as a, as a man, my word, period, not as a man. Mom gave me my word. Okay, Gil, that's cool. Everything's good. And, and um, he actually gave me some space. One of my battalion chiefs told me, he says, Gil and my cousin, Davey, when I beat up a guy real badly, and my bat chief sits there and he says, Gil, I don't know if you need a priest, a psychiatrist, a doctor, a counselor, or what, <laughs> but I don't know how to deal with you. I said, well, I'm a man, man. I'm what a real man is. I don't need anybody. And there's nothing wrong with this, with me. The whole world's 
jacked up, but I'm not. I'm right. Everybody else is, you know. So anyway, I made that commitment to him. Two shifts later, I'm in a fire. I fall in a hole. My lieutenant falls over me, and terrorists later on tore my ACL out. But I'd given my word, so I ace wrapped my, my, uh, my knee for a month and, and worked like that. And so then later on, we're doing training fire, um, and I jumped off the apparatus, and it caught my leg just right. And, ah, man. So then I went to the hospital, and I, they said, oh, yeah, you tore your meniscus and your ACL's been torn for a long time. So then I had to... I had it rehabbed. So that was the beginning of me now becoming a firefighter that I can't leave until I get all this all this stuff straight. And so then the, the part of being revealed again, when when I've got on that job, my when we moved to Boulder, my dad's first job was working at fire station two, shoveling snow. He was a laborer. So he comes home and I said, How was you do today, Dad? I was like ten. Well, it was after the hunting, right? Maybe 11. No, I was younger. I was like before the hunting thing. So I was at the fire department. I said, what, what were you doing? So I was working with the fire department. What would you do? I was shoveling snow off the roof. I said, oh. I said, what, what were the firemen doing? Oh, they were in there smoking cigarettes, watching TV and drinking coffee. And he says, I think I could do that job. You know? I said, yeah. He says, yes, I could do that job. I said, cool. So I became a firefighter. My mom, when I became a firefighter, has a little piece of paper. It was in a book. It's called First Latinos in Boulder County. And I have a copy of it. And in it is a thing that I wrote when I was in fourth grade or third grade. I was shitty handwriting. So when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. I might ring the bell. I'll wear the rubber coat, the, the, the rubber coat, the boots, and the hat. And we'll go on a fire truck real fast. And I'll ring the bell. And I might sleep in the fire station. She gave that to me. And I went, I didn't even know it, right? So my first assignment is station two. I walk in there with my bunker goats, go out and stuff. The same station that my dad was, right? He's, put your gear up there, kid. All right, put my gear up. And I walked walked into the lounge and looked out the windows where I know my dad was looking in. And in here, Right? I love God because God talks to your spirit, you know, those things. And it's always a good thing. It's never, ever God telling you, oh, you fucked up or you're bad or you're whatever it is. It's like, hey, now you guys are on the inside. <laughs> hey, pops, I'm on the inside now. <laughs> you know? So so there I was as a firefighter. In, in, uh, and I did have a little, little bit of trouble I was blessed by this guy named J.J. that became my lieutenant. And when I got there, he says, uh, I heard some stuff about you, and uh, what, what, how are we going to make this work? And I already made that commitment. I says, I'm going to tell you what. So you treat me like a man, not like an idiot or a baby or anything else. I said, we're going to get along. I said, but don't mess with me. He says, it's agreed. And, and he actually was my mentor as a lieutenant, and then he became a captain. So I became a lieutenant. And then when he was a captain, battalion chief came up. He's the guy that came up and says, I think you should be the bat chief. One position. I said, I don't know about being a bat chief. I know, but you would be the guy. How, how, how many years was this into your career? Ten. 
about 10 years. So you did, did a good turnaround. Once your first five years of kind of. Oh, yeah, it was bad. Being a jackass. It was horrible. Once you squared that away, then you turned around yeah. and really got on the path of the, doing the right things. That commitment, right? That, that commitment of to myself to not let myself down for my dad for this gun which I can't do that you know so yeah it was it was the 10 years and then um I remember when he told me to go for bat chief and I tested and then I became the bat chief then all the sabotaging beliefs come in like you're too I mean you're too small you're not smart enough you're not all this all the bullshit that the so I'm going, oh, here we go again. Well, I'm driving a fire truck. I'm a bat chief. I didn't realize that everybody in the county hears what the bat chief says on the air. And uh, that's a lot of pressure. That's like being an incident commander, right? I mean, you got the op and stuff, all the air op stuff, all the stuff you say, everybody hears, everybody knows everything that you said or think about, right? I'm driving down the road. I'm going, oh, my God, I've got a panic attack, man. I pull off the side of the road and go, what the hell did I do? what are you doing here Espinoza? <laughs> what the fuck are you doing here and so I called up this lady who was part of the reevaluation council I told her what I was feeling she said okay this is, sounds kind of weird but she said I want you to say this I am com- totally and completely incapable incapable and incompetent to be the battalion chief I said what <laughs> she said yeah say that so I went alright I'm totally and completely incapable and incompetent to be the battalion chief so, well, what do you think about that? I said, well, that's kind of, kind of, I don't know. I said, it's kind of, I can't, it's hard. I'm, I'm having a hard time processing that. She says, okay, so now say this. And so I said it again. I'm totally and completely incapable and incompetent of being the battalion chief, right? But fortunately or unfortunately, I am the very best person to be the battalion chief. So I said that. I went, so what do you think about that? I went, yeah, I probably am. Because it was spooky because at that time, if you were, became a battalion chief, you weren't in the union anymore. And that's why a lot of people didn't want to leave the union. Because if you screwed up, you're gone. That is the sacrificial responsibility piece. That's the piece that says, okay, I was going to write a book. My book was going to be called Frogman Out of Water, right? <laughs> because that's where I was at. Mm-hmm. Now it's changed because of my fire. I was going to be frogman out of fire because there's a whole other dimension about losing everything that you ever had in your life. What I just went through with this fire, everything I ever had, except my kids, the greatest treasures in my life, right? And being good with them and being bad with them, being a great father with them and being a bad father with them, being a good mentor with them and not maybe not being a good as good a mentor as I could be. In those three spaces, my dad, he filled those spaces. I would hope that I could fill those spaces for my kids. That's why even sharing this with you is part of me trying to write my story so that those things, these dimensions, the flavor and texture of my life, they understand who their grandpa is. This is important. That's That's all I have to leave them, right? What comes from your heart and what you say. When when did you end up having kids? I was thirty three. So and my young my oldest is forty when be forty one. So were you in, in the fire department when you started having kids? Yeah, I got on the fire. <laughs> I met my wife. Yeah, that was crazy. Uh I was steaming, man. 
Oh, so she's a Christian girl. I was steaming, and I was going, I met her sister, her sister, right? And then she comes in, and it's like I, I wrote a poem. It says, "You, she glowed with the light. It was night. I didn't know why, but I cared." And she led me softly and gently into the knowledge of love. And in May, we three will be one, right? When I asked her to marry me, because that night she. I went, wow, man, she's hot. I mean, there was a there was a devil fighting with an angel, man, because uh, the devil is telling me, don't go over there. God's telling me, go over there. Don't go over there. So finally, my buddy Andres goes, Jesus Christ, man, you, you never have any trouble talking to girls. Go over there and talk to her. So I I said, hey, uh, uh, would you like to dance? He said, I don't dance. I said, well, why not? He says, well, I'm, I'm Christian. I said, I'm a Catholic. I said, but I dance. I am not dead. He says, no, I don't. I said, so my buddy's looking at me, so you don't want to lose face. I said, well, oh, you mind if I sit down? Oh, no. Good. Uh, sure. So I sat down. He says, well, so it kind of went on. So finally she was going to, let, to dance with me, and that was in the days of platform shoes. Mm-hmm. So I was a lot taller than her. <laughs> Matter of fact, later on, she maybe says, "I thought you were taller." You know, <laughs> so I love those things. But but anyway, we um, we we did dance, and then it was like, and that's when I think maybe when we talk in the spiritual sense, where God was trolling with her because all I wanted to do is get laid. I mean, that was that was it, right? Being in the teams, the whole the whole sexism thing, the anger thing, the race, I mean, all of that's those behaviors. And then later, eventually, you know, it was like I, I liked what she had. I liked what I was missing, you know. And that's why I'm saying that even after you accepted Christ or you get into the Christian thing that you'll let loose of it, you'll go somewhere else because it's the alternatives that you settled for in the past, if you don't keep it in front of you, it's like seals or guys that operate, but they don't keep the basic training in front of their face, and so then they get killed or they hurt somebody or they don't pay attention to it. And that's what happens. That's the way the world is. It's, this, this is the way that, it's the way that the world is, and if we don't take care of it, then we are like sheep led to the slaughter, man. We're going to be taken out somewhere. You know? And so doing this is part of that. The fire department saved my life because of that being able to party or whatever that was. And then the responsibility that I had as a bat chief to keep my guys alive, to change to tell a captain that has 20 years on the job, hey, man, I need you to do incident command. I need you to wear your bunker gear. I need you to wear your coat. I need you to tell me where you're going and this and that. And he's telling me, I've been doing this for 20 years. You've only been on here 10 years, and you want to tell me what to do? Then the frogman stuff comes out. I go, yeah. So, well, you don't know as much as I do. I said, no, but I do know about being in combat. I know about getting shot at. I do know what the war we're fighting. I do know the training that we need. And the other thing I know is that Chief Gustavo's wife told me a long time ago, if I get you killed, I'm in trouble. And Karen is the one that I'm worried about. And so for me to tell you to put on your bunker gear and everything else is easy. And I'll write your ass up if you don't. You wouldn't do that to me. I said, try it. Oh, God, so good, man. There's a fire alarm. What are your grade school, man? They go out on a fire alarm. He gets off the truck. I just follow him, just two engine response, and then me. I roll up, sit on the corner. I, I didn't go arrival. I didn't tell him I was responding. I just followed him. And uh, I don't have to run on a fire alarm. So I'm waiting. I watch him get out of the truck, and he looks down the street, sees me, gets back up in his truck, 
puts on his helmet, grabs his gear, throws it down, puts on his coat, puts on his stuff. And he looks at me and he goes in the building. He says, yeah, 25, I think it was 2501 at that time. It was engine one. I'm a rival, sprinkler alarm, third floor. So I heard that, nothing visible. I just left. That night, uh, and this is where I learned a lot about about his example too, was if I'm going to have this stuff going down with somebody, an officer, good officer, takes that, especially an XO or something like that, to another room, not in front of the people. So he said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. I said, the, my, his office, because the captain had one. He said, yeah. He says, you wouldn't have wrote me up, would you? I said, I saw you. And this guy said, yeah, I would. So, okay. After that, he talked to me on the radio. Because when we were fighting fires, he loved to see me show up because we'd gone into some fires where other people are bailing out. So he knew how I would fight fires. And uh, I gave him that respect. He gave me that respect. And my whole shift after a while, all the promotions were coming off my shift. Because I wanted to do what we did in the teams. I want to teach you to take my job. I want you to be better than me. If you know more than me and you're better than me, when things go down, I'll, you'll see what I can't see. That's what I loved about the team. So for for one of my misters saying some stuff and then for one of my teammates going, are you fucking crazy? Why are we going to do that? Well, and it wasn't like, oh, who has the bigger sword, right? It's like, well, tell, well, tell me why. Because of this. Yeah, it makes sense. So that's why when, when we look at the history of the teams, my, my, my era and your era, is that I don't know, and I'll never be able to, to, but that's what I want back in the teams. That's what I want on fire departments. I want, I want all my guys to know more than me because, I mean, there was like, oh, why do we want to do hazmat? Because I, I brought hazmat in. I, I, because I was the little guy on the end of the ladder, I did ice rescue way different. We, that's where the Gumby suits came from me because they shoved my ass out there with bunker gear on. I'm going, hell no, I'm not going to do this. There's a better, be better way. Ice diving, we always ice dove in wetsuits. There's dry suits. There's stuff that we can wear, right? Swift water, right? Teach guys how to be around swift water because if they don't know, they die. That's, that's the thing. If you don't learn something, you die. The consequences of our mistakes. The consequences of our business being in the teams, being in fire, and being a cop, right? Yeah. And and uh, so. I'd so you mentioned this uh, a couple times, but it's a very uh, horrible and ironic end to your fire career. Is that when you when you you retired from the fire department and you ended up losing everything? Yeah, <laughs> in a fire. <laughs> yeah, and was it? It's the uh, it's the Marshall Fire, right. December thirtieth, twenty. This is just just what last year. It'll be a year coming up, twenty twenty one, New Year's. Um, this fire breaks out. You're retired. Yep. You're just enjoying life. Yep. This fire breaks out in in Colorado. Wind gusts of one hundred and fifteen miles an hour. There's six thousand acres burned. One hundred eighty four. Uh, uh, sorry, one thousand eighty four structures either totally destroyed or damaged, $500 million worth of damage, um, two people killed, some other burn injuries, and one of the things that burned was your house. Yeah. How the how did this happen? In, in Old Town, that's, my house is in Old Town Superior. 
They're still looking at the causes of it, but they do know that fire happened and then the wind gusts came in, like you said, at 100 miles an hour. And when that when the fuels are, are that way, there it's like you ever take like a like a torch when you're doing heating a pipe. Yeah, right. And go. Yep. That's the kind of fire it was. It was a superheated, wind-driven fire, and so the contact. It's not only just a conflagration of one structure to the next structure. It's also the the heat and fire generated by the by the winds, right? So did you get evacuated? You know where I was. No idea. I went. I went and got my ex-wife because there's a marine. Right, a little, little marine, uh, Red Rich. He said, "Hey, I'm at the bowling alley. You want to come down and watch me?" And he always invites me, but I never go. He's a muffler guy, and going. So I, he says, "Well, I'd like to see Rose because we were." Rose and this and was I just a normal night, like you didn't know anything about a fire because this thing happened nothing, fast. Nothing. Nothing. So just a normal night. He says, "You want to come watch me bowling?" Bowling. Yeah. So I go. <laughs> I put on my seal trident. Put on my marine the flight jacket with the seal trident on it. So we're gonna go see the marine. You know put on a crappy shirt, put on my boots, left my dog, Chief, in a kennel, right? I put him in a kennel because he eats my stuff. So I that night, that day, I told Rose, I'll pick you up. Usually she would come to my house, then we would go. If she'd have come to my house, her house would have, her car would have been burned up. I had a little Jaguar that my buddy, the team guy, had sold me that was in there. I had my coat, and we took my truck. I'm in Denver at the bowling alley. I get this call from a neighbor. Hey, Gil, yeah. You got to reverse 911. You got to get out of uh, Superior. Did you get it? I said, no. I'd reverse 911 is where they make notification that something's coming. Well, I wasn't, I didn't get that notification. Uh, for some reason, I wasn't on the on the callback. I said, really? He goes, yeah. Prior to that, the girl that I was dating, we'd broken up. She called me too and said, hey, um, you know there's reverse 911? I said, yeah. I didn't know at that time. Uh, she said, well, I can go down. and I'm not in town. I can go down and pick Chief up. I said, nah, I don't want to be beholden to her, right? I'll find somebody. And so then, then that's when the other neighbor called me up. I said, nah, I didn't know him well enough. I'll call one of the other neighbors, guys that were in my neighborhood. They were all gone. They were up on the hill watching the fire. So then I get the call back from the first guy. He says, Gil, he says, my buddy that was down there, he says, broke your door down, and he's got your dog. I said, broke my door down, because I don't lock my doors. You know, that's that kind of the community. She says, yeah, he said, broke your door down. I said, broke my door down. He said, don't be mad. I said, I'm not mad, but he had to break my door down? He goes, yeah, because I was thinking it was evacuation, not the fire. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, um, and the other thing, too, and then I asked, I asked the guy later on when I got him, when I picked up my dog, I said, well, did you close the door? Because... If the door is open, I always leave the upstairs open so that my dog can look out. So then what that does is it creates a draft. It creates a draft, a chimney, right? So I'm going, oh, that doesn't sound good. So two days later, because they wouldn't let us in, two days later, I called another one of my firefighters from Boulder and said, hey, Suzo, can you get down there and check it out? So I'll check it out, chief. So, and I've already been retired for 10 years, right? 2012, yeah. Did and you see it on the news? Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't showing real close-ups. Everything was from way back. Got it. You know, and that, and they were saying that Old Town was affected, but they didn't talk about the devastation because nobody was getting down there. And so I'm like, well, whatever. Only easy days yesterday, man. Can I change the temperature of the water? No, right? That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. The development of that, 
the revealing of who I am as that little boy of going, hey, I can only take care of what I can take care of, right? And uh, one of one of my uh, friend's friends, well, actually, Rose, my ex-wife, right? Her friend said, I can't believe he's so calm about it. You know, other people, I can't believe you're so calm about it. Time and chance, man. A guy gets killed, you don't get killed. What, what can you do about it? You can have you can have feel bad about it, but you can't change it. You can have the emotion, right? When we talk about things, we tell story, and we have these because it's emotional, right? It's emotional because it starts creating in you that piece about who you really are. It starts opening it up for you to see yourself to say, "Hey, I am going somewhere good, or I'm not." Look at Tommy. He's mad at God. Ah, God, why did God do that? I'm a Christian. I'm a I'm a bishop and all that other kind of stuff. For me, it was like, why would I be mad at him? He didn't start it, <laughs> right? And and he's invisible anyways. Invisible God. I'm having hope in an invisible thing that I can't see anyway. And and he's given me another house to live in. He rescued my dog, right? I mean, I mean the whatever the deal is, and. So and then the guy tells me. Well, you, so now you, this is the firefighter that you, that you knew that you said, "Can you go check it out?" Oh, the, the no, no, the firefighter that he went and checked it out. He calls me up and says, "I said, how are things?" He goes, "Better than you, chief." I said, "Yeah." Well, I said, well, what's left? He said, "Nothing." I swear, you mean nothing? He said, "Nothing." There's. I swear, what about walls, roof, nothing. I, so I went over and I looked with my family. The asphalt shingles are usually around. They were in dust. There were no there were no two by fours in the walls. The only thing that was left were gusset plates, things that were metal like stove. I had a wood burning stove. The only thing that was left was the top, you know, um, washer dryers all gone. Everything. Yeah, I looked at some pictures online, and it just there's nothing left but sort of the concrete foundations. Right, and then That's they took, they took my foundations out. That's the other thing, man. I felt the full force of water, right. Through the serve, right? And if you're not prepared for that, it'll jack you up. Got to see if it's sniffing for you, right? Fire. Air? You don't have that shoot on, you're going to die, right? Land to land warfare, man. It moves. It's always dynamic, the war piece, right? All the jumping, just jumping out of boats and all the whole recovery thing. And fire? I thought I knew fire. I put out a lot of fires. I've been to a lot of fires, but that one, it was totally consuming. So when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah being completely gone, that fire is, uh, you know, and people would sit there and say, well, it really humbled you, right? No. Fire, the water, all that, 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 whole, that whole thing. The humbling piece was the generosity of people like Mama Lee for her to call me up. Say, hey, I understand uh, you've gone through some stuff. I don't even know who she is, you know. And uh, so I'd like to, I always want to confirm your number. I want to, you know, want to help you out. And, uh, and when she did, she sent, you know, I said, look, man, I said, uh, if you ever get to Colorado, I need to give you a hug. And then, so then I did, and that's where I ran into you, right? That fire. This other guy came up, is uh, Revital's the name of the organization. It's a firefighter's deal. The family, the, the fire family too, right? And the frog family, they set up, they set up the uh, Navy SEAL fund for me, right? 
a guy Julio Fitzgibbons calls me up. Hey, SB. Yeah. Uh, do you know him? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Espy. Yeah, he says, uh, class 42, right? I go, well, yeah. I says, what were your top medals? What? So what were your top medals? I said, Purple Heart, Navy Commendation with the V, Combat Action Ribbon. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. So what the hell's that about? So then I get a call from Dozenbach. Do you know him? It, anyway, they're, and so he says, this is. I, a, think, I, I think that's Dozer. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Chris, Chris, Chris Dozer. Yeah, yeah. he says, yeah, he says, uh, well, I got your name from Fitzgibbons. He submitted your name into the Navy SEAL Fund. I said, for what? He says, we're going to do some, a fundraiser for you. I'm like, what? And uh, he says, yeah, so we'll get back with you. Hangs up. <laughs> so I'm like, what the hell's going on here, you know? And then uh, this revital guy, named Jordan Long, he's, he's a firefighter. Right, and he was a firefighter that went through some um, emotional stuff. Quit being a firefighter, but he's since then um, started intervention for post-traumatic stress firefighters and cops, really helping them out. And so he calls me up, so I want you to come down to this place. Uh, you have any coats? I had, all I had was that seal coat. <laughs> my best coat was burned up. All my gloves were burned up. My best. I'm wearing the raggy, most raggedy shoes that I ever had. So I show up and. And I loved my gray coat, right? So he has a gray coat there and the gloves is here. He says, you take these with you. I'm like, it was a warmer coat than my coat. So God gave me a coat that was warmer than the coat that got burned up, right? Get, get, give me some shoes that are nice and some gloves. And so then this is how the world goes around, right? He, he says, I got this furniture, um, this firefighter's whatever the um, – brother-in-law brother isn't getting married but he has furniture and if you want to go up and look at it i said all right up in dillon up in up in bailey colorado so i drive up there let's get it to do this get his oh yeah furniture upstairs we'll go inside he says and this is my cousin he's in the garage right oh i said nice to meet you i'm, I'm S -S -S i said i'm gil espinola he says no he says you're sp i look at him and go what he said you're sp he says uh, i says, said i know you i said where do you know me from he says, you're in SEAL team with my dad, Tom Dixon. I said, bullshit. He goes, no, yeah. I knew him when he was a kid, right? So there's that Tom Dixon thing, right? SEAL. I grab all my furniture. I take it back. The house that I have was referred to by a cop, referred me to another guy, and they got the house that I'm renting right now. I'm with my daughter, and we're looking around, and she says, Dad, she says, look at this house. I go, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it says, no, he says, but the floor pattern, the floor layout, it's the same as Grandma and Grandpa's house in Pueblo. Two bedrooms on the side, front porch, kitchen, and a little little basement. And and the chief has a fenced yard. He didn't even have a fenced yard where I was at. I used to have to yell at him, you know. <laughs> yeah, he has a fenced yard. I got furniture from another team guy. I mean, you know, that knows that guy. Um uh, and now I'm meeting two old guys in the park, the dog park that I go to. Um, and I didn't really know too much about you then, but this kid's name's Artem, right? He's, uh, he, he watches your stuff. He says, oh, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm, I don't know, I'm going to go down and do a, a podcast with this guy, Jocko. Oh, I know him. <laughs> I go, well, you know, you know, he knows your deal. I'm going, well, who is he? I, he told me about you. And he goes, yeah. He says, and there's another guy named Echo. He's a big guy. 
I go, yeah. He says, yeah. I said, well, we bring us some shirts. He says, you better take some de- extra larges. I go, <laughs> you, you don't see how the circle is, right? And and there are no coincidences, you know. And that fire, uh, I thought I was a seal. I I I I was bad. I thought, you know, there's this thing. A friend of mine, she told me, she says, I I think you say that you're not a seal. You don't identify with it, but I think you do because you got a lot of seal stuff, you know. So then I started feeling insecure about that. I thought, well, maybe she's right. But all my stuff is gone, my medals, and, all, and people have given me back. I'm consciously, I mean, I got like some coins and stuff. I kind of, uh, I'm hesitant about getting all this stuff back because now I got to keep it or I got to put it on the wall. Or I, I just got this thing from Frogman um, Distillery. It's mm-hmm. called uh, Art, uh, the Art of, Art of the Spirit Distillery. His name's Paul. We, we tapped a keg for Mike Thornton. And I was there for that, one of two seals, right? Now I got a hat, you know, and I got two bottles of whiskey that now it's like, oh, I don't want to get too much, you know? And um, because I'm, I'm thinking, trying to, trying to build my house. That's the other thing is recovering. The, 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 uh, the gap of insurance and all that kind of stuff, right? And I got one firefighter that's a builder that's going to help me have one guy whose son I coach wrestling. He's a big builder. He's going to help me. But um, where do I feel comfortable in here, right? I feel more comfortable with the with the firefighter that's going to help me. Nothing against the other guy, but uh, how do I feel in here? Right? So then that's going by. I don't know. That's that's the challenge, you know. Yeah, that's uh, uh, definitely a devastating story. Um, and but like but I said, I'm okay I, with it. Yeah, and I, and that's the amazing thing. I was going to say it's a devastating story, and for you to be sitting here talking about it, like not quite with a shoulder shrug, but like almost with a shoulder shrug of like, hey, guess what? I got a better jacket out of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and Mama Lee, um, I always mention her charity, uh, Amer- America's Mighty Warriors dot org. We always mention that, and the Navy Seals Fund dot org. That's another group that helps out to my, my buddy Drago. That's he, oh yeah, he yeah, to, yeah. Drago talk, started that, and his wife Rachel. Yep, and, and she's he's yeah. a great friend of mine, and yeah. and just and so uh, anybody that wants to help out organizations that help out, these are two organizations: the Navy Seals Fund dot org and America's Mighty Warriors dot org. Those are two awesome organizations yeah. um, that help out. This is one case of where you know a guy that didn't even ask for it, but somehow they figured it out. They figured me out. It tracked me. <laughs> it tracked me down. You know, I'm wonder, it's, it was wonderful. Well, yeah. I think that probably gets us up to date of where we are now. Um, Echo Charles, you got any questions? Yeah. What do you weigh now? About 155. There you go. What's oh. that? What's that workout program that you're? Because you're 75 years old, and it looks like if you wanted to step out on our wrestling match, you you give know, some people man. a run. What's yeah, up? Ouch, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> what well, do you eat? It's a Rolex watch. Man. What do you eat? Mm. What do you eat? Um, I'm just some protein. Uh, do a little bit of stuff called a super pump. Uh, as, as far as supplements go, mm-hmm. but I struggle to eat. I I hate eating, man. But I eat fish and chicken. Cool. You know. What about like them beans? Your mom was pushing down your throat. Mm-hmm. I'm done with beans. <laughs> <laughs> I do like going to Bob's Diner yeah. in, in Louisville and get myself a a um. That's my that's my little fix. Huevos uh, rancheros with chorizo and and sometimes a Bloody Mary. What about uh, what bacon. about your PT program? 
That I work out every day. What do you do? L- lifting, right? Chest, yeah. chest and tries. I do all the splits, old yeah. man splits. Chest oh, yeah. tries, back and by shoulders and traps, legs, something along those lines. Legs, legs, legs front, legs back. <laughs> when you're 75, man, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, I do the front, fronts and back, you know. But I, but I do something every day. My ankle hurts so badly that I don't do a lot of cardio. If I do cardio, it's on the stair stepper. Take it up just one minute at one, one minute at two, all the way up to ten, you know, and then back down, and then that—that's pretty much it. I don't. Well, like I said, and I—I I mean, I think genetics, you know, my dad was my dad was a drywaller man. He did that stuff till he was eighty-one years old on the ladder, wearing, on, on stilts with a cigarette in his mouth. I'm looking. I had firefighters who wouldn't do that. You know, I'm like, are you nuts? So then I had to move him in with me. And then actually, um, Serena went to college at um, Colorado State University in, in Pueblo, and she watched him for three years, watching him do his. He was, he's amazing, man. He uh, gave me all that uh, uh, love, I guess. You know, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't a, you know, he wasn't afraid to share himself. And I, and I was coaching wrestling for well about four years ago. For four years, the number one rule: don't hurt the coach. I get in me wrestling and tussling. If they got in, someone say, "Okay, yeah. stop, stop, don't hurt the coach," you know. And I didn't realize my my shoulder was so screwed up, you know. And uh, so I, at some point, I need a shoulder replacement. At some point, I need to do my ankle. I'm waiting, trying to find this Navy doc if he ever gets if the VA ever helps me do the community care to get that done. Hmm. But um, no, it's my brother, five years old man, had me doing stuff. When I hit the teams climbing that rope or doing that stuff, is like <laughs> piece of cake, you know. And no, uh, but it is, it is, it is that time that's mine. You know, and I and I do and I do really look at it revealing the little boy man. You know, because I don't I didn't I was living myself with the outside warrior so much that I destroyed so many relationships that I didn't have to destroy. And uh, and and understanding that I am worth loving, I'm where I am a good person. You know, and uh, but now after where I'm at with the, I'm back into the nakedness again. It's going to be interesting to see where I'm going. You know, as is where my life's at and um looking forward to an Oliveira or chief allen or my creator right you know i'm not pissed at him you know all the all he's all he's doing is saying hey i want you and i'm leading you here and and uh to keep your ears open and what's the instructors pay attention right i used to do that with my firefighters pay attention I'd look at him sometime when this guy, Lieutenant uh, Rzeski, comes to chief. He said, yeah, he says, uh, what'd you do to what's his name? I said, I didn't do anything to him. What's up? He said, well, I came over and says, I think the chief hates me. He says, why is that? It's because he just looked at me and I felt it. He says, he says no. and that comes from instructors, right? <laughs> it comes from the Oliveira look. It comes from Chief Allen. It comes from an instructor going, it just lives. And uh, he said, nah, I just told him that's your face sometimes. <laughs> that's what you look like. Well, Gil, uh, any other closing thoughts? No, I, I just want to thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity, Echo, um, that, that I'm here. I was pretty apprehensive about it. I wasn't quite sure, but then it, it just, uh, 
um, I'm grateful to the Creator that you're here and that that we're here together, and I'm glad I'm glad you made it through, and just I'm just pray a blessing on you, and, and echo. Well, um, thank you. Definitely appreciate it. Um, definitely, you know, blessed to be here as we all are, um, and and just thank you, thank you for. You know, thank you for laying that groundwork in the teams, the the the, the groundwork that you guys that, that we built off of, that we tried to maintain the the reputation that you guys earned, and and we always did our best. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for your service in, in the Navy and the teams. And of course, thirty how many years as a firefighter? Thirty seven. Thirty seven years yeah. as a firefighter. Um and just that, that level of service, uh can't thank you enough. Appreciate you coming. Thank yeah. you. Hoo-yah. Hoo-yah. And with that, Gil Espinoza has left the building. And I think makes it pretty clear that getting after it is a lifelong mission. Yes. It's a lifelong mission. And, you know, it was very interesting and awesome to hear somebody that's been doing all kinds of things, badass things, from being a SEAL in Vietnam to being a firefighter to being a, a wrestler at a really high level. And he's 75 years old, and he's like, I'm still trying to figure it out. I know, so pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. The parts that stood out to me, which is funny, is the black Mac and pink Mac. Oh, yeah. And you're like, why do why you call him black Mac? I was like, bro, I know exactly why. Because he's black. Yeah. So... Interesting. Well, you take that. That that is the that is the uh, assumption, and it's a it's a correct assumption to make. Mm-hmm. Oh, in, see, in the teams, whatever, whatever. Like, if you're a Mexican, you're gonna have some kind of Mexican nickname. If yeah. you're black, not guaranteed, but most likely, you're gonna have some kind of something that, that has to do with your ethnicity. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, because it's like that's just that's just how. That's just how, uh, well, in Hawaii, I told you this before, in Hawaii, race, racial issues is not a thing, not a big deal at all. Everybody's mixed and there's so, and there's so many races or whatever. So to say, oh, the Filipino guy, oh, the black guy or Popolo guy, you say Popolo for black guy or the Haole guy or the Japanese guy or whatever. Like that's not a thing. No one's like, oh, that's racial or nothing. There's no racial sensitivity in Hawaii because everybody's something. Um, so I get it, but so I get that that kind of like commit where if that's it, funny that they called Pink Mac because he's <laughs> because Even though I, he was a like black I guy. said no he's a black guy I'm telling you bro he didn't he not did guy. not look black yeah you know he might have had a black mom but he didn't look black and he's from the island so he seemed like a howly guy that just you know he had kind <laughs> had of freckles soul. He had soul yeah yeah soul he's a soul man but that's the thing too though if you're like if you're hopper like that. And you're half black, and you just pull the white side. A lot of times, you, you wind up with freckles. Mm. Oh yeah, there's this guy. One of my friends from college, Gerald Lacey, white guy, holy mm-hmm. guy, half black. His older brother's like dark skin. He's like a white dude. He didn't talk like a white dude. He's from Crenshaw. But to look at him, you're like, and he had freckles. They call him a. Uh, I think my dad used to always say this. Call us red bone when you're a real, real light skinned black person. Red bone <laughs> for real, bro. <laughs> Um, Check. so also, okay, so for the black thing and white thing. So my brother Jade's nickname when he was young was snake, right? 
And there's a guy in the teams that you know. I don't want I think he's still in, so I don't say his name. But his name is Snake, too, because he has a lisp. And he's a twin, too, by the way. But so when we moved here, uh, so Jeremy, my friend Jeremy, he'd always tease Jade, call him Snake, because that's his little nickname from, you know, when you're a little kid, you call <coughs> you're him, you know, to tease him. So when we moved here, we met Snake. He's a white guy, blonde hair, blue eyed dude. So, but there's Jade, who's black, half black. Mm-hmm. Then there's Snake, who's white. So Jade was black snake. This guy was white snake. Mm-hmm. Same exact thing. Yeah, so I understood exactly what it was. This guy's black, Mac. This guy's <laughs> <all> pink. <laughs> That's another level. Of yeah. Kind of funny. So I dug it. I mean, I understood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was wasn't like I was surprised. He's like, oh, he's black. I was like, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> okay, obviously. But it could have also been like some random story about yeah, you know, yeah. oh, we called him Black Mac because he, you know, he got gunpowder on the blah blah blah. Yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. whatever. Yeah, but yeah. but it's a good nickname. I so I figured we had to get to the bottom of that there one. There you go. Um, but anyways, what a, what an awesome uh, opportunity to hear from a guy that's been through all kinds of stuff and and is still out there trying to learn. So staying active, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's like saying, Oh, yeah, my shoulders like jam. But when you look at a 75 years old, when you look at him, you're like, Bro, this guy's like, He looks, what do you, how old is he? How, does, how old does he look? If he said he was six, if he said he was 55, I, I wouldn't be you like, wouldn't, Oh, well, yeah, I'd be okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. You're 55. You're 55. Cool. You're, you know, you look like you're aging a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Look like you've you look like you've been rode pretty hard, but at fifty five you're still doing pretty good. No, I would But then he's like, No, I'm seventy five. No, I, I would look at his body and be like, Oh, you're fifty five, dang, you're still getting after yeah, it. Like yeah, lifting yeah, and for stuff, sure. obviously. For you know? sure. That's literally what he looks like. Yeah. Impressive. So hey, it pays, man. Stay active. You know, stay in the game. Probably that that's gotta have something to do with just staying humble. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're not like taking it for granted. Yeah. Yeah, you know when when mentally you stay in the game. Who is one of the this guy Tom, he's a wrestler here. He trains here. He used to anyway. He he said something really important where he was like, "Yeah, my dad, he would like." He said there was something along the lines of, uh, "Don't give yourself like the excuse of age to start going less hard or whatever." Hey, look, if you can't go hard, you can't go hard. Yeah. Like if you're trying to lift your max or whatever and you can't get it, then okay, you can't get it. But don't be like, "Hey, you know, I'm 70 now," or probably yeah. a lot of times it starts younger. So, hey, I'm 40 now. So I'm going to, instead of getting this hard set of 10 with, you know, 100 pounds or whatever, dumbbells, see what I'm saying? I'm going to do like 80s, mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Just because I'm getting older now kind of yeah. a thing. And look, I'm not saying go crazy and be dangerous. I'm not saying that. But that mindset of like, hey, I'm going to cut I'm gonna cut myself some slack because I'm getting older just in general is not that good of an idea where it seems like, like he wasn't, you know, Gil like didn't do that. No slack. He's like straight. Yeah. Oh yeah. No slack. He's like 75. He's like, you know, I'm really looking forward to like, you know, de- really developing and you know, like my, most people 75, bro. Yeah. That's like, done training. The final, <laughs> you were done. Yeah, bro. But yeah. So you can just tell by them um, that he has that mindset, you know, and it shows right on. Awesome. Well, speaking of staying in the game, yeah. Got to stay in the game. Get yourself some Jocko fuel to stay in the game. Get yourself some joint warfare. That's the thing that's going to keep you in the game. Well, yeah. let me rephrase that. That's the thing that's going to knock you out of the game is when the joints break down. Yeah. When the joints break down, we break down. The machine breaks down. It's true. <laughs> true so you got to be careful of that one. Uh, JockoFuel.com. You can get it there. You can get it at Wawa. You can get Vitamin Shop. You can get everything at Vitamin Shop. You can get it at the military com- commissaries. Hannaford's. 
Dash Stores up in Maryland, Wakefern and Shoprite, Circle K in Florida, H E B in Tejas, Murphy's down the southeast, and Meyer in the Midwest. That's where you can get this fuel for you. That's good for you. That's the key component. So there you go. Also, you know, wrestling. Yeah. He was coaching wrestling for four years. That's going to keep you in the game. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu is going to keep you in the game. Yeah. So you should train jiu-jitsu. When you train jiu-jitsu, you're going to need some gear to train jiu-jitsu in. You're going to need a gi, rash guards, shorts, originusa.com. Originusa.com. Go there. You get whatever you need. Get hunt gear. Get jeans. We we got to talk about the Delta 68. The funny thing. See, here's the thing. He was like, we didn't wear those because they were, he said there's no operational purpose. And I was like, oh, just to be cool? He's like, it wasn't even to be cool there. It was to be cool back in America. Right. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to make this statement. Mm -hmm. If they would have had Delta 68s that we make, they would have preferred to wear those. Oh yeah. Hundred percent. Because they're they're light. They got they got a little bit of stretch. Well, fatigues don't stretch. Yeah. Like fatigue jungle camis, they don't stretch at all. Delta sixty eight's got that little bit of give you a little leeway. Not it's not even a little, it's all the leeway that you need to move. You want to do a squat, you can do it. You want to do a front kick, you yeah. can do it. Yeah. So the Delta sixty eights re engineered. Yeah. If we could get time travel, we go back in time and just drop off SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2. They're out there in the Delta. Give yep. them some Delta 68s. Here you go, boys. Yep. So Let freedom ride. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so just to clarify, and this is one of the cooler things that I've heard, too. One of, one of many. Small, but very cool. So he was saying you wear them in combat just so they're almost like got their street cred when you come back where it's like these jeans are the ones that I wore. You know, it's not like you can wear your helmet or your (laughs) night vision goggles. I'm just saying, you know, and be like, yeah, these are the ones that are probably why you're going to wear that. But jeans, you can't. Have you seen pictures with guys that are carrying like flags, like rolled up on their gear? They'll carry like an American flag, like on their gear, like a Mm -hmm. full American flag. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, hey, this has been on ops with me. Right. You know, I have the little, the little American flag on my body armor. Yeah. That's, that's like my favorite flag, you know, yeah. little American flag that went out on ops with me. That's what it did. So let me ask you this, and this is maybe I'm out of touch, but so you know how they they would wear jeans, mm-hmm. right? Can is that even possible now? Could you, yeah, you ever could. go on like oh, a, totally? Oh, for real? Yeah, you can wear Delta sixty eights all day. Oh damn! Like on a real <laughs> yeah world yeah. op mission, whatever. Yeah. Damn. Okay. I mean, sometimes you wear civilian clothes on missions. I've done it. You know. You yeah. Low oh, yeah. visibility operations. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And if you really, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could wear them. In the SEAL teams, you can get away with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. look, if you're in Ramadi and you start mixing, matching uniforms in 2006 and somebody sees you and you don't look like an American, that's not a good call. Okay. You want to look yeah. like an American soldier or Marine, 100%. I understand. So, yeah, there you go. All that stuff, Origin USA, made in America from the dirt to the shirt. That's what we're doing. OriginUSA.com. Get it. True. Also, Jocko's store. It's Jocko's store. Go to JockoStore.com. Discipline equals serum. Shirts, hats, hoodies, some new stuff. Got Shirt Locker, which is a new shirt every month. A lot of people like this one. For real. 
they really like this one um uh you know a little bit different designs but you get a new shirt every month um so yeah you can subscribe on there too for that as well jockostore.com subscribe to that subscribe to the podcast subscribe to the jocko underground getting ready to record a couple of those right now give some people some backside information about the world answer questions so jockounderground.com if you want to get involved with that. We got the YouTube channels, we got Psychological Warfare, Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. I've written a bunch of books. Hey, the the beginning today, I read from By Water Beneath the Walls. I was just at the SEAL Team One reunion. Mm-hmm. I'm with guys, I'm with plank owners, meaning I'm with guys at the SEAL Team One reunion that were the first guys. They were there when SEAL Team One started, they were there. Mm-hmm. And all these Vietnam guys were we were talking about this book. And guys were like, oh, there's so much information that I didn't even know. People that started SEAL Team 1 were like, I learned. So (laughs) Ben Milligan, By Water Beneath the Walls, get it. It's just an unbelievable uh, book. And then, of course, Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. That's another book about war. Gets you you some insight into human nature. And then, of course, I've written a bunch of books. So you can get some of those books as well. (sighs) Echelon Front. Leadership Consultancy, we solve problems through leadership. So if you want to help your company, your business, your team, go to echelonfront.com. If you wanna come to one of our live events, check out the events that we have. Also, we have the Academy where we teach leadership online. We got online recorded courses. We do live training on there, extremeownership.com. If you wanna help out service members, active and retired, you wanna help out their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, she's got that charity organization. You heard about what it did for Gil today. So get get involved in that at americasmightywarriors.org. And then of course, we have Drago's organization, which is navysealsfund.org, and then heroesandhorses.org. So those are some uh, good charities if you want to help the people that help us and also if you want to hang out with echo and i um on twitter on the gram on facebook twitter's reignited there's lots of people jumping on twitter right now some people are leaving i don't know what's happening i've been there i'm still there we'll see where it goes but no matter where you are on the social media world watch out for that algorithm because it'll sneak up and grab you by the throat and you're not gonna like that uh so that's that. Uh, one more thank you to Gil Espinoza for joining us today. Thank you, Gil, for your life of service to the Navy, to the teams, and to the fire department. We all thank you for that. And thanks to all the firefighters out there. All the firefighters out there on call, keeping us safe, ready to sacrifice your safety, ready to sacrifice your life for us and our families. Thank you to all the firefighters out there. And the same goes to our EMTs, paramedics, and of course, police, law enforcement, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thank you for keeping us safe on the home front and by, with certainty, thank you to the folks in military uniform who go out, protect freedom and liberty around the world. We are eternally grateful for the protection that you provide us and everyone else out there. Like Gil learned during basic SEAL training all those years ago, you can't change the water temperature of the ocean. It's gonna be what it's gonna be. So don't complain, don't whine, don't grumble. 
Instead, just go and get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.